You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. It's 1978. Disco Stan! Those jeans are so tight. I can see your... Uh... It's the last day of school. Yes? This is better than the first time I got to finger a chick, man. And to celebrate... The night is young. Four friends are busting loose and hitting the highway. I'm making it. Oh, man. Give me this pizza. (laughs) No more. No more. It's going to be the most repulsive. Ah. Oh. (laughs) Offensive. I've never heard a girl blow ass before. Vile. And certainly the most momentous time of their lives. You better have something really sinful for me this time, son. Detroit Rock City. They're young, dumb, Look at him. Some more. and full of... Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sure there's more where that came from, right? Oh. Detroit Rock City. It's a girl walking along the side of the highway. We should pull over and help her out. I mean, they, they make scary movies that start out like that. Hey, but, but they make porno movies that start out like that too, man. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. You wanted the best. You got the best. The hottest co-host in the world, Heather Drain. Woo! Yeah! Oh, and uh, Josh Stewart. He's also back with us, too. Hey, shake your wee-wee, man. If Josh and Heather are here, it can only mean one thing. Velvet Von Ragnar is not far behind. Or in this case, you can actually see Gene Simmons briefly in one scene, despite the name of this film being taken from Kiss's Destroyer album. Of course, I'm talking about the 1999 film from director Adam Rifkin, Detroit Rock City. It's the story of four friends and their desperate quest to get from Cleveland to Detroit to see Kiss play Kobo Arena. They're faced with a series of challenges that threaten to keep them from seeing Gene, Paul, George, and Ringo play the hits. Josh, when was the first time you saw Detroit Rock City, and what did you think? I actually saw it back in 1999 when it first came out. It was a movie I was I was really excited for, despite the fact that I was only 11 when it came out. Probably just due to the influence of my mom. I'm sure we said all this on the Never Too Young to Die episode, but I'd always been a bigger fan of like 70s and 80s rock and all that. You know, it, it seemed like a movie that appealed to me, even though I was way too young to see it. And since it got kind of bombed out of theaters real fast, I had to wait till it hit video. And I rented it pretty much the week it came out, and I'd become obsessed with it. It used to be like one of those movies that was in constant rotation for me. And uh, I've I've just always felt a deep connection to it. How about you, Heather? The first time I saw Detroit Rock City was probably when it first hit video. So I remember renting the DVD and, uh, of course, being a, a Kiss fan, the trailer looked like it was like kind of a fun, sort of a reverent movie uh, in the style of, say, like, you know, Rock and Roll High School or uh, something like that. And uh, I thought it was cute. I really enjoyed it. I only 
watched it that once until, you know, obviously I rewatched it recently uh, to freshen my mind for this episode. But I thought it, I thought it was cute. And um, rewatching it, I actually appreciate it even more. It's a, it's a fun movie, great cast, and um, lots of, lots of, uh, lots of moments where you're just like, oh my god, that's they went there, and I love them for it. So full disclosure, I only recently saw this film. I hadn't seen this film until we started talking about doing this as an episode. Until then, I had only read the screenplay for this way back in like 98. The draft that I have was dated, I think, 628-98. And I wrote about it in Cashiers to Cinemart, and I compared it to... Uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, the Robert Zemeckis film. And I wasn't as big a fan of Detroit Rock City in the script form as I was of I Want to Hold Your Hand in the movie form. So I just never watched it. And I was very surprised that I read this thing called Detroit Rock City and that in the script, Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter aren't in it at all. It basically ends at the concert. And it's like, oh... Well, that's kind of weird, because here I was expecting something like a sequel to Kiss Me, Phantom the Park or something. But unfortunately, that's what wasn't what I got. And I'm always curious if maybe that's why this didn't do as well at the box office as it probably should have, because it's a it's actually a pretty delightful film. And it reminds me of a lot of other films as well that I enjoy. So I kind of enjoy this subgenre of teens on a night out kind of uh, a movie. But yeah, I just never took a chance to see it, knowing that even though Kiss is featured on the poster and the poster art is done in the Kiss font kind of thing, that they really weren't in it. And I was expecting another Kiss movie. At least that's what I – that was my dream anyway. There was like an, apparently a draft at some point of, of – or not even of Detroit Rock City, but there's a prior Kiss film that was supposed to be a lot more fantastical with talismans, very similar to – Kiss Me's a fan, but that never get never was greenlit. I know around the same time, probably around the year 2000 or so, they put out a PC game called uh, Kiss Psycho Circus The Nightmare Child, and that is probably the closest anything has been to being that movie that did not get made, where it's just this weird, you know, fantasy action storyline, kind of featuring the members of Kiss, but it's more facsimiles of them. You're playing different characters, but they all gain the powers of the kiss members it was it was pretty cool are you saying that if you play this game you're basically like a tommy thayer or eric close close enough (laughs) (laughs) well the movie starts off with kiss music though it takes a little while to get there because it starts off with lynn shea which is really nice that this movie begins with her this is a new line film and for a lot of folks who are familiar with new line i mean you're you're your chances of seeing Lin Shea in a New Line film are pretty good. And uh, other than like the Lord of the Rings, unfortunately, I don't think she has a, a role in any of the Lord of the Rings films. But she starts us off by just settling down for a nice, relaxing smoke, maybe a drink, and listening to some, what is it, Carpenters she wants to listen to. But instead, it ends up being the Love Gun album, and it blasts her eardrums out. And then that leads us into meeting our four main characters and they've got their band and apparently i think it's just a kiss cover band i don't imagine they're writing too many original songs and immediately puts us into conflict between jam sam huntington his mom lynchay and then that's 
really at the heart of the story because Jam, even though we have pretty much four protagonists in here, Jam is really our main protagonist and he's going to be the heart of the story. So we should be paying more attention to him, though I think at times Hawk kind of outshines him. Now Hawk is the Eddie Furlong character and it's nice that throughout this movie we do get very distinct personalities. That that was one of the things that I was afraid of when I was reading the script was it was a little tough to tell Hawk from Jam, from Lex, from Trip. I mean, Trip is the fuck up of the group played by James DeBello, but luckily we do get a real distinct role for each one of these guys. And of course I didn't mention Lex who's played by Giuseppe Andrews, who as I'm watching this movie, I'm just like, God, I know that guy and I know his voice and I could not pick it up. And then finally I, I thought of the line, one of my favorite lines ever, this guy likes to party. And I'm just like, Oh yeah. He was that awesome deputy from cabin fever. Your top priority is a party man. Do you realize how many great parties we're going to have? Fortune shined on you, brother. I know where all the big parties are at. That was pretty much the only thing I remember about Cabin Fever. Yeah, he he steals that movie far and away. I like that movie, but he steals every second of it. And, and apparently Trip was in it as well. I don't even remember yeah. the other people from the movie. Yeah, no, Trip was in it as well. But, you know, he, he kind of plays the same basic character he does in Detroit Rock City pretty much. He's almost a bully. I mean, that he wants to beat up people to take their kiss tickets. <laughs> it's like, well, he's just kind of a kind of a lunkhead. You got to go with you know what you have. With movies like especially teen comedies, you always you know the group dynamics. You always have to have like a guy that's the brains, which in this case is maybe kind of a, a tie between Hawk and Jam. But Jam is kind of like the heart of the group. Hawk's the brains, but Jerry's got to have kind of the more lunky guy. In the eighties and horror movies, it's it's like a chubby guy. Right, like Night of the Demons, but here, you know, you you have to have kind of the the, the super stoner, uh, which is trip, which is trip. You know, I could see that, Mike, because I didn't get a chance to read the script, but you know, I could see that with a film like this, if it had been cast a little more poorly, you know, especially with like the characters that aren't jam, of everybody kind of blending in together a little bit. But um, to me, that was like one of the strong points of this movie was just like everybody is like so perfectly cast. Especially Lynn Shea. I mean, oh my God, that that introduction, complete with like the wood paneling, her amazing album collection, which includes like Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute, Liberace, and of course the Doctor Zhivago soundtrack. And uh, sadly, I didn't see any Raycon of singers. Yes, I did pause to try and find the vinyl because I am that nerd. I think everyone's parents were issued a copy of the Dr. Zhivago soundtrack at some point. I'm not sure when that was, but I think there was a day where they just mailed it out to everybody. It's, it's right there next to uh, Frampton Comes Alive. Frampton Comes Alive? Everybody in the world has Frampton Comes Alive. If you lived in the suburbs, you were issued it. And uh, Fluid Max Rumors, or and if you're my mom. The Frampton Comes Alive and Samples of Tide. Oh my God! Or if if you if your mother was like my mother, uh, not one but two copies of Meatloaf's "Bad Out of Hell." She literally played the first one so much that she ruined it. I don't know how you do that with vinyl. Vinyl's really sturdy, <laughs> but when Jim Steinman calls, baby, you gotta answer. What did you guys think about that sort of great like montage during the title credits? Like I thought it was very I love the '70s, like that VH1 show. As somebody who didn't get to live through the '70s, I feel like those credits. Or that's the kind of thing I would show somebody else if they wanted 
an understanding from me as to what that time period felt like. It feels like it hit all, you know, all the topical points, uh, no matter how strange some of them might have been. And it, it, it also sets in motion that I feel like the editing on this movie is really strong, actually. For such a kind of just, you know, what on the surface could be a, just a throwaway teen comedy, like the editing is so solid. The use of, you know, like split screens and multicams and just everything else. Uh, and, and it really starts with those rockin' ass opening credits. Set to Love Gun, which is one of my absolute favorite Kiss songs, period. It's so good. Even though, like, at one point you see, like, a photo from the Kent State shootings. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, that stuck out like a sore thumb, man. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Here's Fonzie. Here's, here's JJ from Good Times. Oh, and here's Kent State. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Oh God! On so many levels, I want it's like, whoa, that's dark. We just took a twist, and which I usually like it dark. Most of my favorite teen movies tend to be more like on the over the edge, massacre at Central High level. But um, but I'm like, that's dark, and also I'm like, that was wasn't that sixty eight? Like I don't think Wicked Lester were even formed. Yeah, I feel like the the Kent State thing is just that that feels like a Rifkin touch because he's got a real dark edge to him, even when he does silly, silly things. So I, I would not be surprised if he said, hey, let's just throw this in there to mess with people. That's a, that's an excellent point, especially uh, re- yeah, revisiting like the dark backwards. Oh, God. Yeah. His, his first film, which uh, we won't go too much into but here, but it's awesome. But yeah, like you have that great and just like that Lynn Shay's reaction. So when she's got the headphones on and, you, you know, it's blaring out kiss. Oh, my God. That woman's a treasure. She's so good. And of course, she's the big time Bible thumper. I was so happy when she ends up taking jam to a priest and putting him like in what, like Catholic school or whatever. And the priest ends up being Joe Flaherty, who is one of the most underappreciated members of SCTV these days. Oh yeah. At this time, when this movie came out, I think it was right around the time that Eugene Levy was having his real Renaissance with uh, American pie. But here's Joe Flaherty, who is just so good all the time and we just don't get enough of this guy your words yeah. to my heart like i love joe flaherty and to me he was actually one of the most talented i mean and, I, and all of the original sctv people are amazing but joe flaherty come on he was count floyd you know he, he everything he did was great guy cabulero he was fantastic oh don't you he, he had the wheelchair not because he needed it, but because for respect. And we get to see him not only as a priest here, but a priest who gets accidentally uh, doused with shrooms via a pizza. Be- absolutely beautiful. In fact, uh, what was the line? He starts laughing and says, the prodigal son is a comedic mastermind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this film is full of just some really, really funny lines. This is, um, I think when I first saw it, especially, I was shocked at how funny I thought, because, it, you know, I think like teen comedies kind of were getting watered down by the time Detroit Rock City came out. Like it, it was already so formulaic as a subgenre and um, just on the money. This was just so sharp. Yeah. And especially coming out the same year as American Pie, which is a movie I have no love for. I, I felt like it was a stark contrast. But at the same time, it says a lot about the public in that American Pie was the mega hit and Detroit Rock City got buried. I saw American Pie and Rushmore uh, as a double feature, and 
this says a lot about me that I just went right for American Pie and was like, okay, yep, this is the funny one in Rushmore. I never want to experience this again, ever. We, I feel like we must be psychically connected by because I that was my feeling with Rushmore. Oh, don't even get me started on that one, but like <laughs> <laughs> so overrated. No, I mean American Pie. I mean, like everything has its place. American Pie's cute. I think um, my thing about it was I was you know I was young when that came out. I wasn't quite a teenager yet, but oh. as I got older, they kept making those movies, and I felt like I I, I was felt like i was being personally attacked like oh they're coming for me this is what they think i am i'm not fucking a pie this is insulting my demo was like oh god what was that awful reality bites like ugh. yeah that shit's gonna make american pie look like you know animal house like it's oh hell no it's not good but you know what is good detroit rock city (laughs) like this this was sam huntington's second feature as far as i understand he had before this he had only been in the and they just did an episode on we hate movies about this uh he was in the wonderful jungle to jungle as uh, mimi siku uh <laughs> the jungle boy who comes to the big city and uh Aww. makes uh oh god makes tim allen's life a living hell yeah yeah good stuff luckily he went on to uh do this film and a lot of other things i really like sam huntington and for whatever reason, whenever I see him, I think like he and Paul Dano should be in a movie together. I think they would play brothers really well for whatever reason. Yeah, I can see that. Huntington would be kind of the nice one and Dano would be the really stressed out one. By 2001, not another teen movie was coming out. And here we are talking about these teen movies at the ends of, of the 90s. And that's already skewering the teen movies that were just coming out right around then, as well as, of course, uh, Pretty in Pink and all the John Hughes films. And his role in Not Another Teen Movie is, I love Not Another Teen Movie. It could have been just a real piece of shit, seltzer and um, Friedman kind of a knockoff thing, but I thought that it actually had some real intelligence to it. And I think he's the one in the scene with um the guy the principal from the breakfast club when he just keeps getting more and more detentions that's probably my favorite scene in that film what in god's name's going on in here what was that ruckus i know he a ruckus i was just in my office i heard a ruckus can you describe this ruckus sir oh you better watch your tongue young man you better watch it we were just sitting here like we're supposed to i don't want to hear it mister you just bought yourself another detention but that's not fair. Cry me a river, dickface. You just bought yourself another one. You shorts. What was that? Eat my shorts. Don't mess with a bull, young man. You'll get the horns. I'm shaking. You just got another. Good. You through? Not even close, bud. You want another one? Yes. You got it. Good. That's another one. You had enough yet? No. That's another one. So? You just say the word. I'll keep going. Go. Eeny, meeny, miny. Mo. Your mother was a... Ho. He was a famous clown. Bobo. Mitch, cut it out. That was another one where it was coming out right in the middle of that spate of all the scary movies and all that. And it really stood out from the pack, just from actually knowing the material it was going after and actually writing, you know, jokes that made sense as opposed to just random pop culture references. You know, it's funny. I saw that movie and you guys are making me feel like I need to rewatch it because I don't I gotta be honest, I don't remember a whole lot from it. Was it Randy Quaid in it? Yes. 
And he was like a sleazy dad. He was like the, the, the crazy Vietnam vet father. Yeah, he was the Harry Dean Stan. Plus, he was a little John Goodman from Coyote Ugly. That's all I can say. Oh, poor Randy Quaid. Uh, let's have a moment of silence for his sanity. <laughs> oh, but um, always have freaked. <laughs> well, oh, oh God, yes, yes. Uh, of course, the film we have two female characters. I should say female teenage characters with Christine and Beth. And you made the excellent point of there's no Shandy. <laughs> If there was a third girl, there should have been a Shandy. She'd be like the real simpy one that they none of them hark up with. They're like, oh, yeah, we're good. Maybe maybe she was the girl because there's a scene later on in the film of a gas station where Trip tries to – maybe that's our Shandy. Yeah, Melanie Linsky. I love Melanie Linsky. I kind of fell in love with her in 1994 with Heavenly Creatures. And unfortunately – she ended up just, oh my God, she just has done so many shitty things over the years because she was a regular cast member on Two and a Half Men, and I, I just couldn't stand it. I mean, good for her. She probably made buttloads of money doing that, but I'm not about to watch it. Um, she does a really good American accent. I was surprised at how good her American accent is, and she's been doing that from almost the earliest parts of her career she's been doing this american accent and oh speaking of coyote ugly she was also in that so playing the uh the friend who just you know is there to support piper pierbo but you know it's just kind of the comic relief so i'm hoping we can kind of move past that type of character one of these days and actually have melanie linsky be the main character instead but yeah she's fantastic if you want to watch that Two and a Half Men flavor of her recent career out of your mouth, uh, she did do a movie, I think came out last year on Netflix of all places, called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. And it's wonderful. She's the main character. Almost every scene is her. Uh, basically, she gets robbed, and then she goes on a journey uh, just to make people stop being assholes. It's it's kind of a, like a really soft-edged revenge movie. She just wants an apology. It's really cool. I, too, love uh, Melanie Linsky. I always thought she... I mean, she's charismatic and she's a great actress, but I always thought she almost she looks like an angel or something. She has this like oh, almost yeah. ethereal beauty uh, about her that stands out. I never saw Coyote Ugly, and you know what? I, I you know I hate Hollywood. I fucking hate Hollywood. Like you casting that girl as the the quote unquote friend role, you got to be shitting me. But anyways, uh, no, she's fantastic, and uh, I'm I'm glad she got that two and a half min money. But oh my god. And we have N- Natasha Leone as well. Uh, and- another one of my my long long time loves, who is just coming off of American Pie at this point, which is funny. Oh my God, you're right. And about to do a one two punch of Freeway Two, Confessions of a Trick Baby, uh, the Matthew Bright film, and that's just fucked up beyond belief. But I love it. And then, but I'm a cheerleader. Which, if folks haven't seen, but I'm a cheerleader, you have to see that movie. I love that film. If I could get Bull from Night Court to be on this show, I would immediately just do an episode about that. Oh, my God. I love that movie. Yeah, and I don't, I don't even like romantic comedies, but that one is so good. <laughs> yeah, there's so much more to it than that. And and that was one that I felt like was always, you know, that early 2000s area of IFC where they were always playing that and like happiness and five other weird movies all the time. And that was the one that always kind of stood out as, as being something really special. Like it, you know, on, on one hand, I mean, it, it felt kind of like a romantic comedy, but it had so much more to say in, in a time when people really weren't opening their minds yet. 
they were getting there. And I think I think movies like that really helped. You know, the thing that's cool about Leon, it's almost maybe like uh, Lenski, is that, you know, she her career kind of had a dip. But um, I believe, isn't she on um, Orange is the New Black? Orange is the New Black, yeah. The, the, I haven't considered watching that show at all, except when I found out she was on it. Yeah, I've not watched either, which is why I was like, oh, I was about to say Prison Girl Show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Prison Girl Show. But um, but yeah, so no, that's that's so cool. Maybe, maybe Edward Furlong will have a resurgence too, because I always thought he was a good actor. He's an interesting dude, man. He's a really interesting dude. I mean, yeah, he was doing some really groundbreaking work at the time, or like, you know, back in the, the late 90s. Like, of course, we all remember him from Terminator 2, where that really put him on the map. But then things like what? He was in American History X, right? And then Animal Factory, Animal Factory I think it was. Yeah. And then American Heart and Pet Cemetery 2, of course. We all love Pet Cemetery 2, right? And then he was pretty good in Pecker. I mean, I wish Pecker had been a better movie. Yeah, it's that's a lesser John Waters movie, but it's still it's still like a six out of ten. It's a John Waters movie. I got to see a friend of mine get teabagged in that movie. That was kind of nice. Oh wow! If there's one thing I feel like that movie introduced to society, it was the concept of teabagging in a popular culture. And then the tea party came along, and they were originally the teabag party, um, and that was really funny for about a hot second before they found out what teabagging was. That was really good. I'm a little in awe of you right now, Mike. That you you have a friend who got teabagged in Packer. Scott unpainted <laughs> Huffhines. That is amazing. It is a lesser film, but that's cool. And and yeah, I mean, Furlong was great in it. This cast is full of so many interesting people. Like I, like when I was rewatching, I was like, oh my god, Giuseppe Andrews is in it because he's made. I've I've been wanting to go into like delve into his filmmaking work because I've what I've seen like I've seen clips of some of his films and they look completely. Unlike, unlike anything I've seen in a really long time, he, that is, you would talk about a, a fascinating guy. The clips that's almost reminded me of, of like early John Waters, mm-hmm. um, but different, you know, I mean, he's obviously his own artist, just some cool, cool cats here. Now you actually watch that Giuseppe makes a movie. Do they use clips from his movies in that Josh? Yeah, they, uh, they do have uh, a fair amount of it kind of leading, leading like the beginning of it where they talk about the stuff he's made in the past, because what he has, what he has a tendency to do, even though, you know, he was in some big movies like in, uh, independence day and stuff. He chooses to live in a trailer park, uh, surrounded by a lot of homeless people and make money, make movies, you know, with a VHS camcorder for a thousand dollars or so with all the homeless people that are around him. It has to be avant garde just by the virtue of his circumstance and it's it's so weird. It's definitely it feels like if John Waters made movies, but the people in the movies weren't characters, they were just actually like that. That's the only way I could describe it. It almost sounds like he's doing what Harmony Corinne wishes he could do. I can see that. Yeah. Harmony Corinne kind of just wants to get 
a rise out of people, I think. And Giuseppe is just making these because he wants to. In the documentary, there's even parts where he talks about how, like, he's tried to, you know, throw some of these things in the trash or whatever because he was done with them. And, you know, they pulled them out because, hey, you never know. Somebody might want to see it someday. So he's just making them for him and his friends. And Giuseppe makes a movie in particular. It is uh, Detroit Rock City's director, Adam Rifkin, uh, pretty silently, actually, just sort of chronicling uh, the making of a movie that they had two days that he intended to make it in two days for a thousand dollars. And basically from pre-production up until him intending to edit it at the end of the second night, that that's as long as it takes. And he just rolls out, grabs as many people off the street as he can and just tells them, okay, this is what you're going to say. <laughs> this is what you're going to do. And it's a hell of a way to make movies. And that's probably even easier for him with the way technology's come forward since. Well, getting back into Detroit Rock City, you mentioned, you know, that intro and the way that it's edited and just, you know, some of the, the split screens and everything. There is, yeah, a real style to this film. And that's what I think helps set it apart from other movies that could be, you know, following kind of the same thing. Because it really follows a lot of familiar beats, right? We've got the four guys. They want to go to the Kiss concert. The Lin Shay burns the tickets. Oh my God, what are we going to do? Oh, we think that we won tickets from a radio contest. We get to Detroit. I'm surprised that the road trip isn't more of the movie, but it's almost better. Like they get to Detroit fairly quickly. There's some adventures on the road with some Guidos and Stellas, which I'd never heard that term before. But they get to Detroit and the tickets aren't theirs for the taking and then they break up into four individual stories and then they have their adventures and the way that they cut between those but yeah there's even just like little simple things like when jam goes to the catholic school the way that we focus on the gate and the way that the gate opens up and the camera tilts down it's just like it's really nice like there's no shots in here where you're just like oh yeah he just grabbed a shot like everything feels like it was very much done on purpose so it feels like this is a very it's not over directed this isn't a brian singer thing where you're just like oh god you could have just put the camera there and shot it it feels like everything was done with the purpose and it was very well directed it wasn't over directed yeah it's just very Uh, deliberate yeah well and the pacing like there's just there there is not like a frame wasted throughout the whole running time and one thing that actually i really really love that that's you know is hitting me right now about the movie is just it does actually capture the dynamic of being because there were actually like kiss fans in fact um a friend of mine who does uh, the rocket battle combat podcast ralph Vier, he did a whole video about how he actually got beat up as a kid like physically bullied because of being a kiss fan and, you know, and that's something that I don't think people probably kind of, of like a younger generation doesn't realize. But even when I was growing up, it, there was always like this sort of like metalheads and stoners were always kind of looked down on. And, you know, just like, oh, there's, you know, they're going to grow up and be no good. And, uh, and that's tapped into a little bit here. And um, so you kind of have that great like anti-status quo element that I think always makes a really great like teenage film. Well, you used a word there that I am surprised didn't come into it more, which was stoners. These guys are the most clean living stoners <laughs> I've ever run across. <laughs> Do they even smoke one joint in this movie? Oh, in the car. Okay. During the road trip. All right. Thank you. I, I was trying to remember because I was like, God, these guys should be smoking down all the time. Like if they're not jonesing for kiss music, they should be jonesing for pot. But it just felt like that was – 
like this is 1999. The war on drugs has been in effect for so many years, and you are being looked down upon in any movie for the most casual recreational drug use. You know, I think maybe the pendulum's coming back from that a little bit, but there was a point where. You know, you just weren't a good person if you even had, you know, a drink of alcohol in a movie, much less, oh my God, the, the marijuana, the weed with its roots in hell, you know? So it, it was, I'm surprised that there wasn't more pot smoking in this movie. Gene Simmons was one of the producers, so maybe. <laughs> I don't know if that had anything to do with And we know Gene is very straight edge, yeah. He is super straight edge, to the point where I was surprised a joint even made it uh, into the film. But uh, but yeah, no, now if this movie had been made in the 70s, I think you're right, Mike. I think the, the whole film would have been just shot in a cloud, <laughs> a cloud of pot smoke. But there's a whole thing where they're passing the joint, uh with with the uh with Natasha Leone's character. And I love it cuz like she's so sassy like her Christine like I love it that, like you know cuz at one point like some of the guys get kind of creepy with her like particularly uh Trip uh Trip and Lex with Jam kind of being the one guy that's you know like noble but you know basically being like oh you know are you going to suck my dick or whatever? And she's just immediately like, she's having none of their shit. And what a perfect actress for a role like that. Like she's so, so assertive, so sassy in her, in her bond bell, <laughs> her bond bell lip smackers. I had a lost opportunity. One of the guys should have offered for her to put her hand in his pocket and hold on to his rocket. You know, just thank God this movie was set in the seventies. Imagine if we had to hear them like, you know, rocking out to uh, all night or, you know, forever. I do like that bit where she says that Kiss is going to figure out that disco is so popular and record a disco album. That was pretty nice. Yeah, that's that's what we were missing is the, the cut scene where the guys hear, hear Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> they start crying. <laughs> but I love Disco Kiss for the record. Oh, yeah. No, nothing wrong with that. They split into four and then each of them has their own adventure. So we've got it's pretty much, you know, Jam Jam having two things going on, torn between two women, as it were, between Beth and then his mom. And Beth just happens to be in Detroit that same evening and run across him, sees him going into this church where his mom's taken him after she's seen him. Like, apparently she's really anti-Kiss, that so she drives all the way from Cleveland to Detroit to protest this Kiss concert. I mean, yeah, I guess you got to follow your passion, but it was kind of surprising that she ends up there. I mean, Cleveland is not that far from Detroit. It's only like two and a half hours, two hour drive, but it was still like, how are we going to get all these characters now from Cleveland to Detroit? So they managed to figure it out pretty well, and it, and it worked. And luckily, the security guard from the high school was left behind. And those guys that they leave tied up on the side of the road, they don't show back up, which I was glad for. That we kind of those are the guys that they're you know on the run from a little bit earlier in the film, and we leave them behind because we're introducing them to a whole new set of antagonists here, uh, or kind of keeping with the same as far as Jam's mom. She's the the antagonist of the film. But then having Trip, he his solution is violence because when he when they can't get the kiss tickets, he ends up set, like trying to beat up two little kids for their tickets or beat up another little kid for his kiss tickets and then that gets turned around that he now is going to get the shit beat out of him unless he can produce $150. So it 
I like his story and I like the way that it goes. Uh, and I like what's the 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 brother's name? Chongo. Chongo's little brother was such a little shit, though. I was almost like trip, beat him up. <laughs> it's like God, that kid was. The actor was perfect in playing such a smug, smug little Ace Frehley character you know it's uh, and those little those two little kids that one i have to say that one little kid that's all like kiss <laughs> they can't say the cricket like, like the intonation is so perfect and then lex has his little adventure which is kind of a, a two-parter because he's on the run backstage and there's actually a, a physical joke uh in there that makes me laugh when they end up these uh guys from i guess they're security guards uh are after him and then they stop another guy who looks exactly like him from the back at least <laughs> which which worked for me but he ends up saving christine from these two very nasty men and i was so happy when those guys showed up because i really like uh kevin corrigan it was so nice to see him in this i kind of know steve shrippa the other guy but kevin corrigan is always a favorite i mean i've been a fan of him since he was stirring that sauce mikey every time i see this guy he's always such a pleasure and he was kind of like indie darling for a little while he just kept showing up in independent films back when those were you know the way to go and then when he showed back up in fringe years later i was ecstatic i've always kind of seen him as like hey it's that that kind of young guy that sort of talks like christopher walken all the time but that's fine because i love christopher walken so anybody that reminds me of him is okay in my book and he had a, a recurring role in The Mentalist, too, which was another one that I used to watch, even though it was super frustrating because it was one of those crime procedurals where they would occasionally get into the what the mythology and this whole, like, who is Red John and are they going to catch him? And I was just like, after a while, like towards the end of the, the whole series, when they're finally really going after the bad guy who set up the whole series from the beginning... I just tuned out. I was like, yeah, fuck it. I, I hope they never catch the guy. Then we got Hawk, and you made a reference to Hawk at the beginning. And um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how, how I feel about Hawk's story. What do you feel about Hawk and the uh, and his his stellar performance in the strip club? As a young male uh, of that age, once I could see myself getting into that that kind of trouble if it came my way. See, I was kind of worried for him because I'm like, he. I mean, it doesn't help that Edward Furlong. Like, he looks like a teenager. Like, he's mm -hmm. basically a teenager. He looks like a little... If this was a gay strip club, they'd call him chicken. And I'm like, this... <laughs> these women are chicken hawks. He needs to get out of there. He's a danger zone. <laughs> he's in his ticket. If this young young boy, which, of course, I mean, granted, if, if, I, was, if I was a teenage dude and had Shannon Tweed being, like, giving me the eye and buying me drinks, I would have been all over it bedroom eyes like it wasn't that the film she did with the andrew stevens night, night, eyes. night, eyes. night eyes damn yes. what there should have there should have been one called bedroom eyes i'm just there saying there was that's a movie a called bedroom eyes uh, i know i damn. know that title because i can remember <laughs> the, the the vhs cover for it so that's why i thought that that was the right title holy shit that that tells you like how covert my cinemax fearing was as a young heather like it's all the time it's all a blur it's all a blur of boob jobs blonde hair and saxophone music but um uh, high waisted underwear and nightgowns <laughs> <laughs> there's sort of a great almost um 
almost like a carnival feeling in the way that the uh, nightclub or strip club scenes are shot. And uh, I mean, right down to like you have Ron Jeremy as the MC, the hedgehog himself. That's an Adam Rifkin thing all the way because he's always had like, I- I've never you know, heard anybody ask him specifically about it, but he's always had this thing with, you know, adult film stars in his movies. He's put Ron Jeremy in quite a few, a lot of female stars as well. I think he's even dated a few. So there's definitely a fascination he has with that whole world. And he always lets it bleed into his own movies. Oh, wow. So that's fascinating. Uh, Cause I, li- I listened to part of the director's commentary and when Ron Jeremy came up, he, he sounded almost just like, yeah, he's an adult film, but Wow, he just sounded like automatically defensive, and I'm just like, God, there's nothing. There, there should nothing to be defensive here, sir. I worked with Michael Bay, <laughs> or was in Rushmore. <laughs> like, yes, that is offensive. <laughs> but Ron Jeremy was in Scoundrels, which is amazing, amazing Cecil Howard movie. So I just love the vibe and just the. It's like to me the most surreal sequence of the four. So of course that's the one I love the most because I mean you have him vomit. Right before he gets on stage, and then he still does the act. And these women are lo- they're, and they're like, "Oh, they're and they're losing it for this little vomit stains, <laughs> stoner kid twink, <laughs> like, <laughs> shaking his little tiny butt." Like, <laughs> it's just like this is so, this is weird, but I love it for it because it's wow. I, that honestly, women in strip clubs are scary. That they did convey that because I've never been to like a male strip show, but I did see a male stripper at a bachelorette party, and um, it was it was scary. Let's just say that women are way worse than men. So, for the record, Bedroom Eyes, nineteen eighty four, directed by William Fruitt. So that's the one that I remember. Ah. Mm-hmm. Thank As you, opposed my. to Bedroom Eyes two, which stars Wings Hauser. So. Yes. Of oh course my it does. God. And Linda Blair. So. <laughs> what? Of course it does. Directed by one of our favorites. It was directed by Chuck Vincent. Ooh. Holy shit. Oh my God. That's a sign from God, Mike. You can't argue with divinity. So as we're talking about all the four, how did you guys feel about like how each four sort of separate little storylines came together for the end? Like I thought it was really cool, but what did you guys think about it? I always kind of liked the way that it did such a good job of kind of intertwining everybody's journey. Everybody was on their own, but it cut back and forth so rapidly between everyone that it still felt like all the characters were kind of together. Uh, and they all had like one specific objective. Like Lexi was trying to get the car back and, you know, sneak in backstage. Hawk needed to go shake his wee wee to get some kiss tickets from a scalper. Uh, Trip was just going to rob a place because that was what it came down to. Did Jam really have anything to do besides uh, go to the church and then run into Beth? He had to get laid. And well, he yeah. had to stand up to his mom. And that's the most important thing. That is the most important. But I was like, he didn't really have a plan to get tickets. He, the other three kind of, they, they were working on how to get in. But, but Jam got busted right out. But I, I feel like he gets the best payoff out of anyone. Oh, yeah. And he learns the biggest lesson. Which is to <laughs> yell at your mom in public, and she'll give you back your drumsticks. And he gets the double whammy, because I'm assuming he's a virgin. He yells into a megaphone that he just lost his virginity in the confession booth. That is correct. And so he gets to lose it in church, which is like, how metal. How much more metal. You know, you know, Jam, like, once Kiss, like, does Dynasty... He's probably like, I can't anymore. And he becomes like later on, like a merciful fate fan. Oh, man. And, and he's like, he joins like a King Diamond cover band. That would be amazing. <laughs> that's how it always starts. Cause he was clearly the nice one out of the group. And it's always the nicest one that ends up going down the, 
that heaviest path, I feel. I'm sure a lot of young men have lost their virginity in a confession booth, but usually not with a girl. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. Like, dude. Oh, boy. I thought the uh, Paul Stanley line about my my Uzi with the Uzi or whatever was bad, but now I, I officially need a soul bath. I, w- I kind of wonder if that's what his mom thought when he announced that to her. But... <laughs> And then yeah. she was like, oh. that, that might have needed a little more clarification. Right. She was probably jealous because, you know, I mean, yeah, at one point she's talking to the priest and she's clearly dealing with some intense sexual repression. The way she's kissing his hands and stuff. Wow. Oh, my God. I was like, oh, no, ma'am. Don't. <laughs> this is. <laughs> I love the twist of how they end up getting into the show. Like, that was such a great little LeRond. And, um, and then, of course, we got the, the hottest band in the world. We got Kiss, which uh, which I was honestly, I was hoping, like, I remember when I first saw it, I was hoping there would be more Kiss performance, because there's such a buildup to seeing the show. But, of course, if I had my druthers, this movie would probably be three and a half hours long, with two of it being, you know, or at least an hour and a half being Kiss. But, yeah, just, I mean, that's, that's your payoff, a whole Kiss concert. You went on yes. this journey with the boys, you get to see the show with them. That would have been... That would have been the best case scenario. And I felt like such a nerd rewatching that because I'm like, I'm like, Gene doesn't spit blood during Detroit Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that is not Yeah, correct. they kind of had to make a greatest hits out of that one song. I know. And we didn't even get like Peter Chris singing Beth, which I don't like. I'm not a fan of Beth, but when he does it live, when he tries to hit that high note, you can double check every. It's so great. He's like, ah, woo. Thank you. I love you guys. <laughs> Every single time. You can, oh, my. It's like, yes, I live for that moment. You know, Mike, you had mentioned I want to hold your hand, which is a great example because I'm trying to think, like, usually with, like, I mentioned uh, Rock and Roll High School, but that's when the Ramones were pretty much at their prime and being very, very culturally relevant, where you have this movie set in the 70s starring a band from the 70s with all the original members. And God, what a unique thing is that? You know, I, I don't think we've seen that too, too much. Or music and film are, of course, like, you know, bedmates, but you know, having this particular situation, it's, it's uh, what a treat. Yeah. I can only think of like cameos, weird cameos by like, you know, Ozzy or, or Alice Cooper when he shows up in Wayne's world, but he's not performing. It's just all backstage stuff with him and him explaining the origins of Millie walk a, but yeah, I can't think of another time where we've had a band that isn't necessarily in their prime, as part of a movie like this. And it is interesting that you mentioned rock and roll high school. You know, we did an episode on that and hearing about the original script where it was like insert band name here throughout it. And then once they knew who it was, they kind of had to rewrite a lot of stuff and tailor some things towards the Ramones. And it really set the tone for the rest of the film. And it made it even funnier that Riff Randall was so in love with these guys who were as Dick Smith in this film says they're ugly, ugly people. And it could have been any band at the end of Detroit Rock City, like they could have been going to see a cheap trick concert, but each band has its own fan base and and kind of colors the rest of the movie. Like if they went to see Cheap, Cheap Trick or if they went to see Devo or they went to see somebody else in 1978, it would have been a totally different movie 
or different characters leading up to it. It probably would have been as another set of stereotypes, but they would have been different stereotypes in some way, or they would have dressed differently. You know, I can only imagine the four kids if they were all going to see the Devo concert. That would have been one hell of a show. I feel like the movie does a really good job of doing a thing I love, usually in like action movies. But it works here where they do like this hype man where they spend so much of the movie telling you how awesome Kiss is. If you're a kid in 1999, you may have never seen Kiss before. You might not know what you're getting into. But, you know, like the beginning trip is, you know, going, you know, when he's getting pissed off about the tickets getting burned. You know, it's not Journey. It's not the Bay City Roller. It's fucking Kiss, man. And so I, I can only imagine having been a kid when that came out and seeing Kiss for the first time at the end of Detroit Rock City and, and just being like. That probably would have blown away my little brain. It lives up to the hype, you know, and like you said, it is kind of the their greatest hits, their, you know, stage antics greatest hits. I mean, we don't have Ace Frehley's guitar catching on fire and going up into the rafters or anything, but we do have a lot of their stage presence just for that one song. So it's a, it's a tease, but it gets the message across. Absolutely. Well, and I like the fact that each member got like their own thing because i think um I, I think especially of the reunion era i know there's a lot of bad which there wasn't the original era too but just uh sort of ill will maybe towards ace and peter from the paul and gene camp and you know gene Purdue was one of the producers but uh but uh, you know all four of them got like their own little like shot and special segment and you got peter throwing the drumstick to jam and that's beautiful and uh you got ace with the guitar so no it was cool i i, I still wish like we could have at least said black diamonds of course this would have been too dark but it is riff good but you know the movie detroit rock city has very little to do with the actual song if you're go- if you're going like with the plot wise, because of course in the song Detroit Rock City, it's about a kid that dies in a car wreck on his way to the show. But I, that would have been a very not funny movie, probably. Yeah. <laughs> this whole movie goes through. You you play you know eighty five minutes of these kids. They're finally about to get to the concert, and then boom, a car wreck. Well, they did make a movie of Dead Man's Curve, didn't they? The Jan and Dean song. Well, there was a TV. Wasn't there a TV movie based on Jan and Dean called Dead Man's Curve? Well, there was a Dead Man's – oh, well, there's Dead Man's Curve, the uh, the one about grading with Matthew Lillard. But, yeah, I'm pretty sure oh, there's – Oh, God. Uh, Dead Man's Curve, 1978, on Jan and Dean's rise to the top of the music industry, a horrible car accident leaves Jan Barry incapacitated and their dreams shattered. With the help of Dean and others, Jan slowly recovers. And that was uh, Richard Hatch and Bruce Davison. Wow. Whoa. Wow. Oh, Holy look at this. Cow. Dick Clark as himself, Wolfman <laughs> Jack as the Jackal, and yes. we got Denise DeBerry, Pamela Bellwood. Yeah, this this seems like a must-watch right now. Oh my god. Can Wings Hauser be in this? You know, usually that was the question Wings Hauser had to ask. <laughs> oh, I see this oh. as a real Wings Hauser vehicle. <laughs> So Shannon Tweed, who is now, they are now actually married, but basically uh, she's in it. And I know Paul Stanley's wife has a small kind of walk-on part as one of the mothers against Kiss at the rally. Speaking of Shannon Tweed, man, she, um, I actually thought she was really good here. I mean, not that her part, you know, she's basically playing this uh, gorgeous older woman that's picking up on Edward Furlong, even after he puked up, uh, got full of liquor. <laughs> that she bought him. Stage. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, was, that scene has one of my favorite 
bad jokes where it's a teenager drinking a beer and they spit it out and go, oh, it's gone bad. <laughs> oh, God. And, I mean, but, you know, points points to the, the crew here that they're they actually have a reference to premature ejaculation, mm-hmm. uh, which, you, you know, and, and she handles it so sweetly. I'm like, I'm so glad his, his, his experience with a lady is with somebody who's very understanding and yeah. not just like, oh, well, you have a good night. <laughs> <laughs> Opens up the car door and pushes them out. Yeah. But actually, I thought her interaction with Edward Furlong was very sweet. It, it, it should have been. It's almost like, it, to me, it's almost to the sweet to the point where there should be like a Charlie Rich song attached to it. Like, Kiss is a little little too, which which is a good thing, but a little too sleazy and hard rock of this era. Like, she, she should have like wrecked him. Like, you know, like he just, he like... <laughs> He stumbles out of the car, like his clothes are ripped off and he's, you know, he just passes out and she's like, oh, you know, she's like vanity or something, a nasty girl. And, she's, you know, <laughs> wake me when you're done. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that after he prematurely ejaculated that he turned to her and said, well, the ladies call me Mr. Speed. I'm never going to hear that song the same way again. Then she's like, so would you like some anal? And he's like, I got nothing to lose. (laughs) (laughs) Which apparently that song is actually about anal sex. I did not know this till last year. So (laughs) I just am finding that out right now. You're welcome. (laughs) Such a good song, too. I was kind of hoping that um, that when Melanie Liskey was talking to uh, Jam, she would have been like, you know, uh, when I saw you come out of school that day, I knew, I knew I've got to have you. I've got to have you. Well, better better coming from her than the priest. Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, how dare you make light of predatory priests? Speaking of offensiveness, or not, so of the spectrum of, like, sort of this genre, like, what do you guys think about, like, where where's Detroit Rock City's place? Uh, in films, you know, like Rock and Roll High School or I Want to Hold Your Hand or American Graffiti, Dazed and Confused. Well, it's funny that Dazed and Confused was 1993, and I was talking about how there's, like, little to no drug use in this movie, but Dazed and Confused is just wall-to-wall drugs, which I really appreciate. Say, man, you got a joint? Uh, no, not on me, man. <laughs> It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> um, especially at that time, it was so taboo to have drugs in your movies. And they're just, that is such a major part of it. I remember Wiley Wiggins and Pink kind of going on their adventures and crossing paths at times. But for the most part, I mean, those two guys were our protagonists, and we didn't have like the four protagonists like this movie has. So I, I can see some similarities, and especially in that whole like one crazy night. I mean, I think somebody once was proposing to me to write a, a story. Um, it might have been Mike Malloy, uh, where he was just going to cover movies that take place in one crazy night, you know, like After Hours or those kind of films, because there are so many and. They follow some similar beats as well, but they usually end up being pretty interesting. God, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, that would be absolutely fantastic because those, as as a rule, I feel like those Crazy Night movies tend to be pretty pretty good. I can't think of any truly ter- terrible ones off the top of my head, but I'm sure they're out there. 
I definitely saw comparisons between this and I want to hold your hand as far as like, you know, Beatle mania and kiss mania having a lot of similarities and especially like the Beatles were, Oh my God, they were just like emissaries from Satan uh, to a lot of people back in the, the early sixties. So, which is hilarious now when you think about it, but yeah, um, just how, how dare those boys uh, expose the the young girls of America to themselves and their their crazy long hair <laughs> 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 and their tight trousers or no wait no that was the ruddles never mind oh the god yes trousers yeah <laughs> I love the ruddles but for me I saw the most similarities between this and American Graffiti just as far as like the friends splitting up you know the the Ron Howard character, the Richard Dreyfus character. So all of those characters kind of doing their own thing and the way that they come back at the end, they don't necessarily have a goal. And that's kind of the thing I like about American graffiti is that it's so aimless and just kind of like trying to enjoy that last night. I mean, it's even to the point that toad ends up getting the car stolen and trying to get the car back um, is kind of similar to, you know, what Giuseppe is going through in this one. And then you've even got, I guess, Ron Howard's just desperately trying to get laid, but he's not going to get any of that from Cindy Williams in this film. So, but yeah, I saw the most similarities between Detroit Rock City and American Graffiti. I think in my mind, I connect American Graffiti a little more to something like uh, Dazed and Confused, though, uh, in that I feel like both of them don't have a specific goal in mind. They're they're more about just, you know, spending a night in this time period with these friends, whereas there's more of a forward momentum to Detroit Rock City to me, where there's such a, a strict goal in mind. And I feel like it, even though it takes place in the 70s, it kind of has a lot of that, the feel of something like weird science to me. Not not as bombastic, but it's still just kind of off kilter in, in a way that a lot of movies aren't. See, I find I find you guys talking about American Graffiti very interesting because I, um, I, and I apologize if I, if I scandalized uh, you gentlemen uh, via via Facebook, but I'm, I'm not a fan of American Graffiti, but, uh, but you know, I... I love hearing people talk about things that I'm not into that I respect. Like, obviously I respect you guys. So oh, that's your, your first mistake. Th- my first mistake was confusing night. night eyes with <laughs> <Metro> eyes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Shannon. <laughs> well, what is it about American graffiti that you don't like? I found it kind of boring <laughs> to be honest. Um, but also I just, it felt to me, I mean, even though there there were, and I respected it, there were little touches that were kind of like reality based, which I do like. Uh, it just felt very like um, nostalgia to me. It just felt like a like a, a version of the fifties. Um, I didn't care for. I didn't really like most of the characters. Uh, too much Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I mean, I like Richard Dreyfus and Jaws, and maybe two other things, but um, uh, it just didn't do it for me. It, it, it was not my, it was not my flavor. How, how's that? Like it wasn't. Uh, of course, I didn't really care for Days and Confused either. So I guess I'm like queen of the unpopular opinions of, uh, with these films. But um, yeah, I respect both. I don't hate either one. I see why other people like them, but it just, um, it didn't do it for me. Yeah, American Graffiti is so weird to me just in that it's, you know, it's the first movie from George Lucas, but it's a, an entire movie just about, like, human interaction, 
which I think he's pretty famously not great at in real life. And he didn't really pursue in any of his subsequent movies either. So it, it plays so differently compared to everything he did from that point on. I can see that. No, that's, I mean, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And I like, I think Mike loves it. I think it's like, it's a good movie, but it's not one I go back to regularly or anything, but I, I appreciate it for what it did, especially because one of the earliest entries in that kind of just, Hey, let's just fuck off for a day genre, as I like to call it, where it's just, you know, people chilling out, being cool movies like car wash and stuff where it's just, it's just a bunch of people you like hanging out, doing things. No, that's cool. I, I love, for the record, I love Car Wash. That's oh, hell yeah. <laughs> car Wash is awesome. Uh, Mike, Mike, do you still respect me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> At first, I was afraid that maybe you had only seen more American Graffiti and not American Graffiti. So I just wanted to clarify that, that that was the, the case. No, I can totally respect that. And yeah, I can see where the nostalgia thing, especially because there was that weird thing in the 70s where there was this huge nostalgia for the 50s. I mean, even Ron Howard going on to play Richie Cunningham and just this thing of like let's fetishize the 50s it was like the 60s left a bad taste in so many people's mouths or something that they really wanted to go back to the 50s and that idealism so i can see that being almost a little too much when it comes to uh american graffiti though the end of american graffiti is what always guts me when we find out what happened to the characters uh afterwards you know for whatever reason on there's a podcast that I listen to regularly they call God Awful Movies, and they do this thing at the end that they call the Breakfast Club Close. Now, if memory serves, in the Breakfast Club, they don't actually go through and say, here's what happened to Anthony Michael Hall, and here's what happened to Emilio Estevez. Do they? I don't, I don't think I don't... so, no. They leave that right up in the air, because I, like, I feel like I'd remember if I found out whether or not John Bender went to prison. Right, yeah, and they just end with him with his hand up in the air and kind of fade to black and roll credits, right? Mm -hmm. So I've always thought that they should change it to this is the American Graffiti clothes or this is the Animal House clothes instead because those, I mean, especially Animal House is is famous for, you know, killed by his own troops kind of thing, (laughs) and it's really a parody to me of – the uh, the clothes of American Graffiti, which when we find out that Richard Dreyfus died in Vietnam, it's just like, oh, shit, you know, so it really puts this heavy end to it. But yeah, so not, not a Breakfast Club club clothes Though we've talked a lot about the Breakfast Club on this episode. Weirdly enough. Yeah. And you're and you're and you're right, because actually I remember. Yeah, there there is none of the character update. For the record, my favorite part of American Graffiti was that. Because I was like, oh, that's unexpected. That's a nice yeah. little, little dark <laughs> twist. Okay, cool. I think that kind of is almost the thesis of that movie is like, you know, here's, you know, one day where everybody's, you know, just going crazy and you know having a lot of fun, a lot of crazy antics. And then that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's real not life, life for you. You can get that day, but you won't always have that day. On that cheerful note, we're going to take a break and play a series of interviews. The first is with James Campion, the author of Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kiss's Destroyer and the making of an American icon. The second is with producer Tim Sullivan. The third is with screenwriter Carl V. Dupre. The fourth is with actress Lynn Shea. 
And last, but definitely not least, is director Adam Rifkin. And we'll be back with all of those after these brief messages. You know, the girl from that. The, yes. The, yes. I know. The show exactly on that. God, I know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The, the hair was it, it was different. And she has the, 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 the lips. She has the lips with the. Okay, yeah, wait. The, she, no, she was just. Okay. You've seen her in a million movies. You know. But the, who, but the one that. We're talking about the exact same person. <laughs> always suck as bad as this but listen to me chris gore and anthony ray bench on the film threat podcast you got questions sometimes we have the answers do you like great music do you like in-depth podcasts do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope if you answered yes no or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Dot com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld. 
The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Welcome to the interview section of the show. First up, we're going to hear from James Campion, the author of Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kisses Destroyer and the making of an American icon. Before I ask you about Detroit Rock City, I want to know the James Campion story. Tell me a little bit more about how you decided to become a writer. And I'm curious, do you do this full time or is this like the side gig? Well, I'm, I'm a professional writer. Uh, I do a lot of corporate work as well as uh, advertising writing. Um, you know, I've worked... In many avenues of writing, I have no uh, issue taking on gigs of any style or type. I'm contributing editor to the Aquarian Weekly. I write a weekly column called Reality Check, which has been going on for 20 years now. I write features for them, some cover, some uh, music, film, um, you know, just general stuff, politics, uh, local social issue stuff. I'm currently working on a book with Adam Duritz from County Crows. Uh, we're going to do a portrait of an artist book, and I do a podcast with him called Underwater Sunshine that comes out every week. Um, so I've got a lot of different things. I was a freelancer for many, many years. The books don't really pay the bills per se. I mean, they're nice, uh, but if you if I had to live on on the um, the royalties of books, <laughs> I would starve, and so would my family. But especially, but not so much. The Kiss book did really well. Uh, shout it out loud. The, uh, did very very well and i've got a book coming on june 5th about warren zevon called accidentally like a martyr the tortured art of warren zevon and i'm really hoping that that book does well for two reasons one i want more people to know about warren zevon and unlike kiss he doesn't have that wide uh pop culture kind of connection to so many generations and secondly i'm donating uh 10 to uh the mesosimioma uh foundation for understanding um asbestos awareness and everything that's run by his son, Jordan. So I've got many reasons why I'm really plugging the hell out of that book. Well, how did you come to write about Kiss? Were you a big Kiss fan growing up? I was. And that's the funny thing. Someone was recently asking me about, how do you go from Kiss to Warren Zevon? Warren Zevon kind of stuck with me my whole life. Kiss was sort of this great memory, this wonderful nostalgia that I had for being a preteen into very early teen years. Like, 12, 13, 14, and that sort of waned for a while, and every once in a while I'd go back and grab a Kiss album, uh, like Dynasty when I was still in uh, high school, or, or The Elder when I was in college, you know, and just kind of dig on it, and then when they took the makeup off, I kind of lost all kinds of interest, then in 96 when they got back together, I went to go see them, which was really great, it was cool seeing it with my old buddies, and, and kind of living it again, um, but when I approached Shout Out Loud, the um, story of Kiss's Destroyer, specifically writing about that record in that summer, 1976, and the making of an American icon. The, the, the draw for me was to, be, to go back and try to remember what it was like to be a kid, and just everything was music. Everything was comic books and horror films and sports and all the things being a young boy is that you sort of – that fades a little bit. I mean I still enjoy sports, but it's not life and death like it was when I was a kid. Um, I still enjoy rock music, but you know it was everything to me. And growing up in the 70s, you had your record albums, you know, so you didn't really have a lot of portable ways. I didn't drive yet, obviously, at 12 or 13. So everything was being in my room with the record, putting it on and staring at that wonderful Ken Kelly painting cover and just – you know, imagining what it'd be like, you know, to be around those guys, what they must be like 
personally because, you know, they painted their faces. They had personas. So it sort of added to my whole love of horror films and comic books. So, yeah, I was a Kiss fan growing up. And, but it really is a period of my life that I, that I think of quite fondly. And it was really cool connecting with so many Kiss fans who really embraced and stayed with the band through the years. And um, that was the fun part of promoting the book. So why Destroyer? Of all the albums, why did you say, I'm going to write about Destroyer? It was the one I loved the most. Uh, I, I got Kiss Alive for my eighth grade graduation, and I picked up Destroyer, which had come out that March, a couple of months before I graduated uh, grammar school. The cover, as I said, immediately grabbed me. And uh, one of the great joys of doing the book is I got to meet everybody who had something to do with the, the album, including Ken, who told me these amazing stories that are in the book. And he drew me in 2012. He actually drew for me with his own hand, like a sketch of the cover and said, good luck with the book, which I have hanging in my living room, which was a real thrill um, to, to make that connection to being a kid. But Destroyer was one of those albums that inspired me to write, that inspired me to to look into other music that's theatrical, whether it be Broadway style music or other music like Pink Floyd, thematic music. And I always loved Bob Ezrin and Bob, who I interviewed for the book, the famous uh, producer who had done all those Alice Cooper albums, talk about horror and comic books, that I loved when I was 11 and 12 leading up to Kiss. And I started to notice a guy named Bob Ezrin on there. And, and I started to collect Bob's stuff. And then as I grew up in college, I picked up Peter Gabriel's first album, which Bob produced and of course the wall which i love speaking of pink floyd and then later on bob ended up producing their comeback albums after roger water left so i loved i followed bob's career and he had a lot to do with changing kiss and then i started reading up on it when i thought about doing a a book about destroyer and i realized how close kiss was at the time of completely disbanding of you know lawsuits between them and casablanca records their their um label and Bill O'Coin, the manager running out of money and then having no money. They weren't getting any royalties. They were spending all this money on the stage show they didn't have. And so when they went in to record that album, their entire career, what we know about Kiss was on the edge. And I think that album made them an American icon, as I argue in the book. That, that painting, that drawing of them as superheroes yeah, connected them to Halloween, connected them to comic books, connected them to all the things that Kiss ended up um, co-opting later on and using as something that has made them stand the test of time incredibly in 2018 we are still talking about kiss even though i write about it in that period when but but in the in the in the late fall of 1975 and in the winter of 1976 when they were recording destroyer they almost were not going to be kiss anymore so once i learned all that i connected my imagination and love for that record to an incredible story about a rock band that would go on to, you know, make history. I love the way that you put the book together, the way that you go from song to history, back to song, back to history. It's such a nice way of telling the story and also telling the story of the album at the same time. I have to ask you about Detroit Rock City. Tell me more about that song in particular. The one thing that I'm, I've always questioned, is he doing 95 or is he going down 95? He was supposed to be going down 95. Bob Ezrin and Paul Stanley realized that there is no 95 in Michigan. Uh, That's a New York thing. That's that stretch of road that runs from New York all the way down through Philly, down all the way down the uh, East Coast. So uh, Bob, with very clever technical 
2000s or at least the 2010 when he revisited it for resurrected the uh the album that he did when he went back to the original tapes he tweaked it electronically to make it doing but or going excuse me but it's going down 95 as, as opposed to doing 95 which is the speed so the original was there's a lot of things about detroit rock city that has myth and legend to it that's one of them so that's a great question it's my favorite kiss song which is another reason why i picked uh, Destroyer. Uh, I think it's one of the great rock songs of all time, not only musically, but I think there is nothing more Americana. There is nothing more rock and roll than a young person in a car going as fast as a banshee from hell with no thought about the future. Uh, this person who feels indestructible, who's smoking and drinking and driving as fast as he can to see the midnight show just everything you want in the the driving ostinato rhythm guitars the wonderful aria that bob ezrin actually figured out on the piano and hummed to ace freely to play the car crash sound effect at the end the, the the stuff at the beginning of the album that they recorded on binaural recordings uh, which was revolutionary at the time, where you put on these headphones and the headphones become speakers and it sounds like you're in your ears. I, I, I tell everybody, please, after you listen to this, go and get a version of that, even on Spotify, even though the, the record album is the most vivid or even a CD, and put the headphones on and listen to that opening two minutes where a guy gets in his car and he's listening to the radio and he 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 pumps on the, the, the stick shift and he's going and he revs up the engine. That whole thing was recorded in binaural. So that brings the listener into the whole milieu and then you're in the car and then here comes and that is just so fascinating to me. The whole aspect of its recording and how it affected the pimply faced boy in me uh, in 1976. Love that song. Love it. Well, why did they choose to do that? That whole idea of the news story at the beginning, all that. What is the story behind why this song opens in such a different way than anything else that they've done? Well, because Bob Ezrin, that's that Bob. You know, if you listen to all those early Al Super albums, School's Out or Killer or, um, or Love It to Death um, and uh, Welcome to My Nightmare, Alice's first solo album, which has a lot of sound effects and background of voices and weird sort of, um, again, sound effects. That was one reason. Ezrin is a, cinema, a cinematographer as a producer. He says, I think in the cinematic first, I think what the person must be thinking if they close their eyes, I've got to put them in there. Right. So that's a good way to introduce it. The kind of boring answer to that is that the album comes in at about 29 minutes. <laughs> Kiss goes off on tour because they were constantly touring them. Bob's sitting there with Jay Messina, the head engineer who, who was head engineer for many of those great Jack Douglas, Aerosmith albums of the 70s. He worked with John Lennon on Walls and Bridges, tons of records. And Corky Stasiak, the assistant engineer who worked on Born to Run and uh, Give Him Enough Rope by The Clash and um, tons and end with John Lennon. The, the three of them are sitting in a room, three brilliant minds, three amazing soundscape uh, engineers. And they go, well, we have to do something. This record has to be at least 32, 33 minutes long to be an LP. And they thought, why don't we just bring it in? Let's do a little vignette. Let's do a little sort of Orson Wellesian thing. And they and they had just got this binaural uh, headset, which was just invented that that um, couple of years before. And Corky had been reading about it in a sounds magazine. And sure enough, they did it. And uh, and the rec- the end of the record after the song "Do You Love Me" has that back that weird sort of soundscape that James Cena made where he just put one sound over another overlapped it then cut the tape overlapped because you remember these this is tape now there's no digital there's no sound tools he overlapped it overlapped so it's if you say something like 
Well, he, he did an experiment one time when he was younger. He, had a, he took a recording of a man saying, when if it rains, it will flood. And if it rains, it will flood. And then he kept overlapping it to the point where it doesn't even sound like that anymore. And then it just sounds like it's flooding. So he thought about that. So they, they bookended the record. So if you listen to that album, it, 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 as, it, as it's swishing out, and if you put it on a loop, the opening is the ending of the album. So it's really kind of neat how they did that but that's really the the kind of cool mystical beginning of it and then really they did it because they had to oh cool very much like uh, the wall with the way that it picks up from one end to the beginning it's exactly the same way yeah and bob bob even told me uh here's an insight for you and i've told this to a few people and bob got mad at me at first but uh sorry bob he told me that he listened to beth listen to the string arrangements in the middle eight of that song listen to comfortably numb listen to the steven years ago suite from Welcome to My Nightmare. It's the same lines. I'm making same string arrangements. And it's great, too, because I, I ended up in, interviewing, uh, I think, 83-year-old now, Alan McMillan, who is a mentor of Bob's. Bob said, you have to talk to Alan. He did all the string arrangements for all those records for Bob, including Berlin, which is, I believe, Lou Reed's finest work that Bob uh, produced. Um, Alan told me we really worked hard on all those kind of strings, but he goes, I knew Bob's style. So by the time uh, all that stuff was done, by the time Bob had gotten to Pink Floyd, he already had his shtick down. <laughs> Speaking of soundscapes, I'm curious then, was it always planned to have the kid's voice on God of Thunder? It was not, but Bob being Bob, again, go back. Listen to the little kid's voice in uh, Dead Babies on Killers. Listen to the kid's voices singing Schools Out in the final two choruses. Listen to the little, the little girl's voice at the beginning of the wonderful Ballad of Dwight Fry off of Love It to Death. Listen to the kids singing the chorus of We Don't Need No Education. Listen to the kids singing in that wonderful song on, uh, on Welcome to My Na- Nightmare, uh, Department of Youth. Bob always thought, and the kids crying in a song called The Kids uh, on Berlin. Bob always felt that children were both endearing, arresting to the listener, because we care so much about children, like when you see a kitten in a, in a movie and a, and a truck barreling down towards the kitten. You know, every human being, I don't care who you are, the most cold-hearted despot is going to be like, get the kitten out of the road. So Bob always felt that children give that eerie sort of weird feeling. So he got his two sons who at the time were 11 and eight, and he gave them these little toys that he picked up when he was on vacation in Paris that made all these different noises. And he said, just run around the studio, we'll tape you. And they did. They shut the lights off and they let the kids go crazy. And then he put echo on them and he decided to make them like, you know, evil cherubs. It's fantastic. I mean, these are the things that Ezra was constantly thinking of. And to Gene Simmons credit and Paul Stanley, they embraced it. Ace and Peter, not so much. In fact, I write about in the book, Destroyer was sort of the beginning of those rifts that ended up splitting up that faction. Peter and Ace, Paul and Gene. And Bob is very, 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 very strong in saying, I always connected very strongly with, with Peter and, and, uh, and Gene, or excuse me, Paul and Gene, because you know we grew up in these very creative Jewish families that had put a high mark on putting a, a lot of effort in keeping your mind open. Uh, not to say that religion... Or, or culture separates it. But Bob felt much more comfortable when those guys embraced it. Ace, of course, had a, had a, had a, um, um, a, drug, a drug and drinking problem at the time. And Peter had also, uh, you know, had the same issues and also was very abrasive as a personality. So it's interesting, as they made that record, you could see them forming these camps. And, uh, but, but Paul and Gene really embraced the, the thematic and cinematic aspects of that record. And it's to their credit that... Um, 
that uh, that Bob was be able to, was in my estimation able to go that far in making what I feel is the quintessential Kiss album. And if I may, it's not just the quintessential Kiss album because Ezrin did this amazing production work, and it sounds so big and strong if you compare it to the first three records or even the record that followed it, Rock and Roll um, Over. But let me list the songs. Shout it out loud. Kiss still plays that today. You hear it in commercials and promotions all over the place. Beth, it's been used for commercials. It's, it's still played on the radio. Detroit Rock City, we just wax poetic about that. God of Thunder, anybody, anytime anybody refers to Gene Simmons, hey, it's the God of Thunder. All these songs are still in the zeitgeist. It's in the air for Kiss. So that's why I think that album also holds up. Well, James, it's one thing to be a fan of Kiss and a fan of that album, but to say, I'm going to write a whole book about this, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to speak to all these guys, and dig up all these interviews, and you know, do all this research, you know, it's, wh- where does that come from? Where do you say, this is going to be my next project, this is what I want to do? My wife had, had started to study yoga and to be a teacher, and that was her big project after my daughter was born, and I told her, and she says she remembers this, I said, I'm going to do... I needed to get back into a deep project again. I had my last book I had finished was a novel and it didn't do well. I was happy and proud of it. Everybody worked on it was great, but it didn't do the numbers that my nonfiction work had done. So I, I, I'm much more comfortable in researching and telling stories about real people, about real events. Like I'm, I'm sort of a, uh, I'm not an amateur historian. I guess this book is a history book, but I, I, that's not what I studied. I mean, I'm a journalist at heart. So that was the first motivation. Second, I was always fascinated by those books. And inspired by those books by uh, by Continuum Publishing in London called 33 and a Third. I had quite a few of those, and I noticed that they were doing all kinds. They weren't just doing Pet Sounds and Exile on Main Street, the usual fare. They were doing Highway to Hell by ACDC uh, or uh, Armed Forces by Elvis Costello, uh, albums I grew up with. So I, they didn't have a Kiss one. They had 68 of them out at the time. So I contacted them and sent them a, a treatment, and they said, okay, uh, pick an album. And I said, I'm going to do Destroyer for all the reasons I mapped out earlier. And I started working on it. But those books are glorified essays. They're about ten to 12,000 words. Once I started to research the book, and I realized I went down to the New York courthouses uh, here in Manhattan, and I, I started to find all the lawsuits and found how close KISS was com- to completely imploding. And then I, I got a hold of Corky Stasiak, and I got a hold of Jay Messina, and I tracked down Bob Ezrin, and I talked to Ken Kelly. Now, all of a sudden, this is a 50,000-word, 70,000-word book. And then I started to write the vignettes, and I thank you so much for complimenting me on that. That was sort of a controversial thing among my editors from Backbeat Books, although eventually they embraced it. And and it has been a love-hate thing with a lot of KISS fans. Some love the fact that I did dramatic renderings of each song. Some thought it was distracting. But I felt the need to show how that those songs sort of washed over me as a kid and then how I would reflect that as a man in his early 50s. So – all those things added together turned it into a 300-some-odd-plus-page book. But I think once you dive into something, if you have the right publisher, which I do, uh, when you have the great editor, which I just worked on my second book with, Bernadette Malaraca, if you have the, the right people around you, they will not let you let go of your original theme, your original inspiration. So I thank them for that because this book could definitely have been trimmed down, but I'm glad – I don't know if you were reading it. A lot of people said, maybe there's too much information here. There's too much technical information. Maybe we shouldn't have had as much history. I write all, getting back to my wife again. I read all my books for my wife. She could not give two shits about Kiss or other things, although she is a big Warren Zevon fan. Uh, so I, when I write it, I write it with the idea that she knows nothing about Kiss. So I had to set the scene, talk about Kiss's up, you know, them coming up from the ashes, 
talking about how they were building a career, that they were seemingly going nowhere. They were the mockery of rock. They couldn't get out of that weird oddity box that they had built for themselves. And how here we are at the precipice, at the crossroads. What are they going to do? Well, in my estimation, they made their greatest album. It's not easy writing a book. It's not easy doing research. But I am curious, what was the most difficult thing for you putting this book together? Well, I had to wait about 14 months. Well, the timing. Because when I first started the book, I had no publisher. So I was about three quarters to almost 80% done by the time I got somebody to actually pay me for it. And so it was really a labor of love, truly. I mean, it was a labor of something, and it wasn't cash. Um, and, I, and I wasn't sure I was going to see the light of day. And I, I, I didn't even think about self-publishing because of the legal ramifications. Um, Kiss is a huge conglomerate. They don't screw around. You have to make sure you get the rights to everything and you're fully protected and you're, you're backed by a great publisher, like I said. So it really was the time, waiting 14 months to finally get Bob on the phone. And then, you know, because I knew I needed Bob. He was my Wizard of Oz. The other one was, and if you read the whole book, at the very end, I tried to figure out getting back to Detroit Rock City since you're, you're basing your, your podcast on that film and then, you know, uh, that song. Uh, I couldn't find, and it's all in there. I did everything I could. I spent probably about six months at the very end to the very moment when I had to hand it in to, to editors to send to press. The, the searching what that song was supposedly about Paul Stanley writing this song about a young Kiss fan who died on the way to a Kiss concert. Or as he tells it in Ken Starr, my good friend's uh, great book, the authorized Kiss book, uh, Behind the Mask, Paul says, and Paul had told me this in an interview I'd done with him years before I started the book, that the, that the, that the song is written about some young fan that I read in the newspaper, or I heard, he didn't say reading the newspaper, died in the parking lot of a Kiss concert. So, of course, I searched around, and then, and then he said it was somewhere in the South. So I started finding out where in the South Kiss played in what tour. Well, another good friend of mine, Jeff Suz, who uh, wrote the quintessential book called Kiss Alive Forever, which I used as a great uh, timeline for finding out where Kiss was leading up to everything. Uh, he told me, no, no, no. One of the, the guys that worked for Kiss at the time, one of the roadies said, no, no, it was, in the, it was in the 74 tour. So I was like, okay, now I'm looking at 75. I even went down to North Carolina and went to their main halls and went through their microfiche of every North Carolina newspaper. I contacted North Carolina TV stations to see if there was any report anywhere of a kid dying at a Kiss concert or on the way to a Kiss concert. That was the hardest thing because I thought, I'm going to be the guy who reveals the name. It was kind of almost morbid after a while, you know? Uh, a lot of people for years thought it was in Detroit, but it was in, according to Paul Stanley, in the South, probably in North Carolina, maybe in Charlotte or Greensboro or one of those places. But he also wrote the song as a tribute to Detroit, and well, he should, because Detroit is the hotbed of hard rock. It was where the aforementioned Alice Cooper became famous, where Iggy and the Stooges came out, the MC5, Ted Nugent, Bob Seger. And then, of course, the amazing birth of punk through a lot of those bands that translated to the New York scene, to the Lou Reeds, and eventually to England with David Bowie. So Detroit deserves a lot of credit, as Len, Len, um, Lester Bangs, the great Detroit writer for Cream Magazine, said it was the rattling crankings. The loud young boys working in these these uh, these you know lines working for for Ford and 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 Chrysler and the loud loud noises and then they go to these clubs turn it up turn it up and that's where you get heavy metal that's where you get heavy rock that's where you get punk rock so I think that Paul was combining this sort of 
pathos, which Bob Ezrin did a fantastic job of connecting to, but also the, also the ethos, if I may, of rock and roll, which was born and bred in Detroit. And quite frankly, when Kiss couldn't piss in a pot, when they had nobody seeing them in all these other big cities, Detroit filled, filled arenas for them. And when they went to record their famous Kiss Alive, many of those songs were taken from Cobo Hall. So this was Paul's way of thanking Detroit, but also his way of paying tribute to this lost Kiss fan. So this massively long answer, Mike, <laughs> is to tell you the story of the toughest thing for me was never getting the name of that young kid who um, who inspired Paul Stanley to write this song. And then I finally came to the conclusion, I think, that it was one of those those myths that Paul and Gene loved to keep going, you know, just for the story. So it wasn't one of those where you turn in the book and then a week later you just happen to run across it. You know, and it's funny too because I was I was contacted by the Detroit Free Press and the piece is probably still online. And the gentleman that interviewed me and his name escapes me now did a fantastic job of doing research before he called me and the two of us went through it. Line by line, I gave him the names of the, the newspapers I contacted, the police departments I contacted. We got, we got blotters out. We went online to find out, you know, what kids, what, what deaths by auto were in and motorcycle or anything like that in the, in the, in the fall of 1974 when Kiss was in that town. I mean, no stone was left unturned. That's where my real sense of research and journalism sort of exploded. But no, even though we put the word out, even though it was bouncing around Facebook and a lot of these KISS uh, blogs and fan sites, we still have not come, come up with the name. So I'm going to assume, and it's stupid to do that, but I'll assume at this point, after the book's been out for, geez, how many years now? Three years almost? That it was probably made up. <laughs> But I'm glad they did, you know. They drove me crazy, but it was it was well worth it. It was fun. What was the reception when the book came out? I was lucky. I'll tell you why. I equate KISS fans to Star Trek fans, to Star Wars fans, to baseball fans. They don't miss anything. I didn't sleep for the first two weeks that book was out. I thought for sure. Now, first of all, it got great reviews, I must say. And my, my Mount Rushmore was guys like uh, uh, Mr. Starr, Mr. Suzz, as I mentioned before. Also, Eddie Trunk gave it a rousing review, had me on his show. Eddie's a big KISS fan, worked with Ace Freely. He's written several books about hard rock. And many of the guys from the KISS FAQ uh, were, were on board. Um, Julian Gill had me on his podcast. I told all those guys, thank you so much. I thought for sure somebody would be like, uh-oh, can't be and miss this. He shouldn't have said that. Some people were upset that I, I, I was kind of hard on the first three albums because I was trying to show the juxtaposition between the, the lo-fi aspect and really the least imagination that you find in the first three Kiss albums, you know, that are just songs about sex or living on the street or gin or whatever. And then you've got, you know, Kiss Destroyer, you got song, you got a ballad on there, you got songs with Norse gods in it, and you've got songs about dying, and you got songs about dreaming and, 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 and youthful rebellion and flaming youth and, and S&M with sweet pain. So, I mean, they, they really mined many different layers of just song themes for Destroyer. Uh, but I was very lucky. I got, uh, uh, you know, I, I got something like 68 or 69 reviews on Amazon, and I would say 66 or 65 of them were very good. Uh, you know, probably about half of them are excellent. So, I, I mean... Not that that matters. You, you, you put a book together and you, you figure, I'll just let it go. But of course, in the end, it, it does matter in the sense where you want people whom you are serving, which is not only the readers, but KISS fans. You want them to say, hey, nice job, Mr. Campion. You put forth the effort, and we're glad we have it, and we're glad it's part of the canon. I realized, and my publisher sh- certainly did, 
when we made the deal that the, the book would sell because Kiss fans need to own everything. They need to be they need to have their collection be full. And as long as that was going to be out there, hell or high water, shitty or not, they were going to buy it. So from that standpoint, but I was glad that they they dug it. And I, th- I was glad they dug it for different reasons. Some people liked it for the technical aspects. I go through all the different uh, materials. I interviewed everybody from the record plant to show how a record like that is recorded. I go into, again, the history of KISS on the road and what they did. Uh, I interviewed um, the people who ran their their tour, the Spirit of 76 tour. Ken Kelly's chapter is fantastic. Dennis Wallach, who did all of their album covers from Alive to the mid-'80s. So I, I left no stone unturned. I interviewed all the I, I tried to interview all the guys from Kiss. I didn't get them because two of them were working on memoirs. Gene Simmons wanted to, you know, they always want more control over it. This was a history book. I didn't want to give them control. I thought if I only get one guy or two guys, I should get all four guys. I also thought it was a good idea to take the interviews from Circus Magazine, from Cream, from Rolling Stone, from the 24, 25-year-old Kiss members, not the guys who were 60-something, and then asking them these questions. You know, because as I always say, the fisherman tells a tale. The fish is two feet long, and by the time it's thirty years later, the fish was, you know, jaws. So, Kiss has a way, as I said, of expounding, of of working in hyperbole. But in nineteen seventy five, nineteen seventy six, they couldn't have been more honest. I mean, there was bravado there. Don't get me wrong, but they were honest about how they had holes in their socks and they were in the red, and their record company was running around with you know American Express cards trying to keep them alive. So. Uh, I thought that that would that would be better, but I, again, getting back to your original question, I, I think that um, that that I was very very fortunate that Kiss fans embraced it because in the end, that's what you aim for, you know. Yeah, it's interesting that you know so much of Casablanca's record label story is tied up in Kiss, and that would almost make an interesting history unto itself, you know, and especially to think about Casablanca kind of eventually being, in my opinion anyway, saved by KISS and then also by the village people. Pretty unlikely marriage. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and both, you know, dramatic, uh, thematic, uh, costumed people. So uh, that's, that makes sense. So how do you go from KISS to Warren Zevon? <laughs> it was an ellipses. Dot, dot, dot. Okay, here's Warren. He's, uh, uh, I've always loved, I don't like to do, everybody said, can you do another KISS album that was the other nice thing that Kiss fans said. Can you do rock and roll over now? Well, I don't really love rock and roll over, so no. I always felt in all my discussions, and it's funny, when I interviewed everybody from my Zivon book, they all said the same thing, whether they work with Zivon or they just knew him or they were family members. Why don't more people like Warren Zivon? What is it? Well, he, he wrote some beautiful songs that were hits for Linda Ronstadt and a couple of other people. And you know, I know Werewolves of London was his big hit, but you know, his songs are so deep and they're so so much filled with fantastic characters that are vivid in and uh his expressions and his songwriting the depth of it very much like randy newman another uh, artist that i love greatly uh, who was ironically famous for short people another kichi song but i i always loved warren and i wanted to write a book because there really isn't one out there there's one biography well there's two crystal's yvonne his his um his widow who i interview for the book did an oral biography a couple of years after he passed, and I think 2005, 2006, uh, called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. And uh, George Plaskides, professor from a university in Arkansas, uh, he, he wrote a, a straight biography, sort of a intellectual treatise for academics called The Desperado of L.A. But there hasn't really been a book sort of 
uh, like a fast food book. Now, I'm not saying mine isn't. I tried to make the Kiss book thicker and deeper and give it more uh, uh, density as far as its intellectual pursuits because Kiss has always been seen as sort of a fluff man. Warren has always been seen as the thinking man's songwriter. So I didn't have to slather that on. I kind of wrote it. Well, I didn't kind of. I definitely wrote it in essay form. So the book is just nine of Warren's songs in chronological order and three of his more seminal albums. And I write an essay about each. And I try to connect it to my life, to the times, to his life, how he was very autobiographical, very honest, painfully so. He battled with alcoholism and drug abuse. He battled OCD. He battled his very strange upbringing. He was raised by a gangster and a Mormon. (laughs) He started drinking at a very young age with Igor Stravinsky, the great Russian composer, when he was in his 80s and Warren was like 13. Um, He wrote Jingles for Boone's Farm. He got a a single, a B-side of Happy Together by the Turtles, who loved him so much they they wanted to help him keep him alive, so they put his song on the B-side. It's a song called Like a Seasons of Their Biggest Hit which helped him survive. He got a song on the Midnight Cowboy soundtrack. This was this was a, a man who was already a, a celebrated and serious and understood songwriter and also a performer. He was the band leader and musical director for the Everly Brothers' last couple of tours. He played on their records. He was a musical producer for Phil Everly's TV show. So by the time he does the Warren Zevon album that Jackson Brown brilliantly produced in 1976, he's ready to go. He's fully packaged. So I wanted Warren. I wanted the people like yourself, and when I do this book tour that's coming up, I wanted people to know about Warren. I, you know, listen to his first couple of records. Listen to his great acoustic stuff. You know, the later stuff like Mutineer and My Rides Here, and th- those are beautifully put, put together records. And um, I just thought more people should know about it. I thought more people should listen to Destroyer and, and, and understand its its import in rock and stop laughing at kiss. And and I wrote a piece called why the fuck isn't kiss in the rock and roll Hall of fame in 2011. And it got more, I wrote it for um, the Huffington post and the Aquarian. And I got more feedback from that. And I, that's what inspired me as well to write the kiss book. Cause I thought, okay, that's enough. Stop mocking kiss. They deserve street cred. And Warren deserves to be known. I, I know that he's an acquired taste. He's got that baritone voice. He writes about strange characters and strange subjects, and some of the songs are a little close to the bone. They could be eerie and kind of icky, but people should at least know it's there. They should know that he influenced Bruce Springsteen. They should know that he influenced Dawes and my friend Adam Duritz, that he was inspired by, or and he also was 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 um, reflected to the Eagles. I mean, the Eagles sing on Desperados Under the Eaves on his first record, which is a song about being trapped in a hotel as a metaphor. And no, no more than two months later, they record their finest record, Hotel California. There's something about that. People should know about that. And that's why I decided to write the book. And I wanted to write about it in an essay, personal form. And thank you so much, by the way, Mike, for asking me about it, because I'm just kind of ramping that up. It was, it's fun to talk about the Kiss book again, because it's been a, probably a year since I've done an interview on it. But thank you for asking, because that is a strange trip. From one to the other. But they're both kind of 70s guys, you know. And I guess from my next book, Working with Adam, I'll go into the 90s. But I've kind of been stuck in the 70s the last six, seven years. So where's the best place for people to keep up on you and to buy your books? They can find my books anywhere, wherever good books are sold, and all those bookstores that are still standing. Uh, or on barnesandnoble.com or uh, Amazon, certainly. Uh, you can get it in ebook in both Kindle and, uh, and Nook and um, also um, Apple and all that stuff. I like to send people to jamescampion.com. That's my website. I sell all my books directly. 
if you do buy a book from me, um, it's retail price, but I mail it to you for free. And I sign it, and I can inscribe it in anything you like. I can tell you to go fuck yourself, or you're the greatest thing on the planet. I can write it to your mom. I can write it to uh, to your best friend, to your enemy. It doesn't matter. So uh, I always encourage people to go to jamescampion.com. My seven books are there. I believe the Zevon book is my seventh. And uh, I hope you dig it. All right, up next, we have an interview with producer Tim Sullivan. Looking at your CV, you have had a crazy career, and I am so curious how you got into show business and what was that avenue for you? Yeah, it has been very crazy, and sometimes I can't believe it myself. (laughs) I guess it all started when I was five years old, and I'm enough of a kook that I know the exact date. It was December 5th, 1969. I'm dating myself, but I was five years old. And once upon a time, there was only nine channels on television and it was not streaming. And, you know, I was a precocious little uh, kid. So I knew exactly how many channels there were. So when I would ask my mother what was on TV, I would mentally count. So if she, if, if I knew there was nine. So if she only said seven, I knew there was two she didn't want me to see. <laughs> so, of course, it's the Pandora's box, whatever your parents, whatever somebody doesn't want you to, uh, whatever door they don't want you to open. That's the one, of course you want to. So I, you know, kept asking, okay, what's on channel two, what's on channel seven. And finally I was like, well, what's on channel five. And there was no answer. Oh, come on, come on, come on, mommy. Finally, she was like, Dracula. I was like, what? Dracula, what's that? You don't want to see it. You'll be scared. No, I won't. I want to see it. And I started crying and you know, doing the whole thing. That's also how I get every movie made, by the way. I just cry until they say, okay, here's, here's the money. Make the movie. But, um, which isn't really far from the truth. But, um, so she, she, she basically said to me, I will let you watch this movie under one condition. If you are scared, I'm never letting you watch one again. And you better not tell anybody I let you watch this if you're scared. So I was like, okay. So it was Creature Features. This was New Jersey. And Dracula came on. And I was like, oh, my God. I was both frightened and seduced at the same time. (laughs) And I just had to... I just then and there decided I need to be a part of this. I don't know what quote this was at that moment, but then it was like the universe just opened up every door for me. Like the next week I discovered famous monsters of Filmland magazine. And then I discovered dark shadows on television and then the Aurora movie monster models. And I just became obsessed. And in that little mind of mine, everything I did from that moment on 
was to reach the goal of being a monster maker, a movie monster maker. And so then the next sort of big event happened on December 17th, 1977, when I was 13, when my aunt took my younger cousin and I to see Kiss at Madison Square Garden on the, uh, I guess it was the Kiss Alive tour, actually. And um, it, it's the tour that we did in Detroit Rock City. So I was a little scared. I had only like been into the Beatles and the Monkees and, you know, the cartoons, really, and the Monkees TV show. But, you know, I loved monsters, and I had seen pictures of Gene Simmons with the blood and all that. And I was like, wow, this is sort of like if monsters had a band. So I went. And I was like in the rafters and it, I always say, I kind of, I, I can't, I, I came at age in that moment because when they came on stage, I had never experienced anything like it. And I just was so empowered. And again, I was just like, I want to be a part of this and how, I mean, this was in the days way before, you know, like, like, like internet, but also like Blu-rays and DVDs. I mean, you never even, would ever see a movie again unless it was on TV and it cut up and there wasn't like film schools, you know, in a box, like I call it, like when you get a DVD and there's all these extras and behind the scenes, none of that. And, um, no internet to get in touch with a filmmaker like there is now. So how the hell does like a little 13 year old kid from New Jersey, uh, my father had split when I was a little boy. So it was just me and my mom and my sister against the world. And we didn't exactly have, you know, trust fund or, you know, that kind of money. And then when I was 16, my art teacher said, you know, I was, everyone knew I was into horror movies. I was always coming to school wearing kiss t-shirts or monsters t-shirts or doing special effects, like making fake cuts and show, you know, lying down on the, you know, the football field and pretending I just had a compound fracture, you know, seeing how far I could take it until they found out it was fake. <laughs> I actually went to my local funeral home and like ask the mortician if I could have buy this thing. It's called mortician's wax. And you know, it's kind of morbid, but say somebody like <laughs> has a hole in their head when they die, they put this like flesh clay and they kind of put it in there and smooth it over <laughs> on the other end. You could take it and you could put it on your your arm and build it up and you can't see it. Then you could take like, you know, a dulled, a, a sanded down knife and just kind of slice yourself and you hold a little tube, like a baby ear syringe with fake blood in your, your two fingers behind the, the knife and you squeeze it. So it's the most effective thing. Like it looks your little, <laughs> so I was that guy, dude, I was that guy. So my art teacher said, you know, I have a friend, I'm sorry, she's, it was her brother. It was a, her older brother who had gone to New York's School of Visual Arts. And he had made a couple of short films with some animated monsters in it. And he was friends with a guy named John Dodds. And she said, I think you'd like them and they'd like you. So I was 13 and they are like in their twenties, you know, they were older dudes and they had gone to film school and they had made 16 millimeter short films. And, and John Dodds was an animator and he was making little animated creatures like Ray Harryhausen and he was making monster masks. I mean, to me, they might as well have been Spielberg and Lucas. You know, these are the first people I ever met who were making movies and they took me under their wing. I guess I became their little mascot and John Dodds started working on this low budget Jersey horror movie that was made on the weekends over the course of a year 
called The Deadly Spawn, which it's amazing to me because that film is now celebrating its 35th anniversary. It's a cult classic. They just showed it at, a, at an all-night drive-in thing in, uh, couple weeks ago but at the time this was just a bunch of fans getting together on the weekend with short ends of 16 millimeter which is the leftover film that you can get for free but john dodds created the most kick-ass giant fucking rubber monster that you've ever seen like seven eight feet tall and it was operated with all these puppetries so i got to be you know at 13 14 as it was being made one of the puppeteers of the deadly spawn and it was i mean i was like uh, uh, in heaven i mean here i am a monster fan and you know and, and making this monster movie and then you know so now i had that under my belt and then it was insane we made this movie and then after it was done John Dodds and the producer Ted Boas went to New York and they cut a deal and it actually was getting a theatrical distribution. I mean, this, this was like, what you make the, I mean, and I just thought it was always going to be like that. So at, at that mo at that time, you know, Fangoria magazine was the big thing. And John Dodds used to take me into New York and we would go to the offices and I met the editors at the time, Carrie O'Quinn and, uh, uh, Bob Martin. And you know, they kind of got a kick out of me because I was sort of this really precocious, you know, 16-year-old who knew everything about horror movies. You know? <laughs> and they actually let me write articles about making the film. And then I actually wrote a couple of scenes of dialogue. So the movie came out, we made it like over a couple of years. It finally came out in 1983. I was 18. It played in New York on 42nd Street. It was awesome before it was Disneyland. <laughs> real great, real grindhouse. And I got my first movie credit, uh, additional dialogue, and I got my first byline in Fangoria. So, I mean, I was just, I couldn't believe this. I mean, I, you know, so a year I'm graduating high school. So then with this, I heard about NYU Film School. So I got into NYU Film School. I already have a movie under my belt. And, you know, and, and, and I'm, a, you know, all this stuff is happening. And then at that very same time, it was like one of the worst things in the world. Kiss took off their makeup. <laughs> and it, I can't tell you. I mean, it was, uh, to, to, you know, we've gotten over it. But I could say for a fan, I mean, you know, if, in 19, when Kiss took off their makeup, it was like Santa Claus taking off his beard and it was just your dad <laughs> or Superman taking off his a you know, Batman taking off his cow. And it was like the out of shape gym teacher. <laughs> I was like, no, I was like, no, <laughs> you know, my superheroes. But the flip side of that was that they were reintroducing themselves to the uh, fans and they started doing record store appearances, which they never did anything like that. So here's my big moment. Kiss is coming to Sam Goody's record store in New York. And I, I just knew this was momentous. I knew like somehow I got to turn this two second encounter with Kiss into my dreams, the culmination of my dreams. Someone had told me, or I'd read somewhere in a magazine, that if you ever meet a celebrity, a rock star, a movie star, or somebody that you idolize, if you want to sort of stand out, do not talk to them about what they do. Don't go up to, you know, Gene Simmons and say, I love you. I, you know, is that a real tongue? I love you. Know, is it a cow's tongue? Or I love Kiss. He's heard it from every single person. 
find a personal interest. I had heard that he was really into horror movies. So I had a severed head, a prop, a severed head prop from the deadly spawn, put it in a box, wrapped it, this big box, wrapped it up with a bow. And, you know, I go to Sam Goody's and all these, you know, guys in the long hair and the leather jackets and the tats, and they're all in line to see kiss. And I'm there and like, you know, it was, it was 1983. So I kind of had the Duran Duran suit and, you know, the mullet and the bow tie, the necktie. And I got this big box. Now they probably would have thought I was a terrorist. They would have like, you know, <laughs> So I remember, like, I felt so bad because I knew I only had a few minutes and I, I walked right past Eric Carr and Paul Stanley and I'm like shaking because I'm like, look at Paul Stanley, Eric Carr. And then there's Gene and Vinnie Vincent's on the very tail end, you know, <laughs> feel bad. nobody wanted to talk to him or get his autograph. And I put this box down in front of Gene and the security cards come near me and, and Gene just waves him off. And he's like, wow, a present. And he makes this and the cameras start click in and all the you know photographers and he very you know undoes the bow makes a big show of unwrapping the paper and then he goes oh and he pulled out this severed head and he goes the kid gave me head and everyone oh, ha, ha, laughs and paul's pouting paul's like pouting because it's not about him Vinnie vincent's like you know <laughs> eric's just i'm so happy to be a kiss and i don't care what's happening you know god bless him and gene is like so gene like pulls me in, you know, puts his arm around me, starts licking it and starts licking me and everyone's taking pictures. And anyone listening to this, if you were there that day and got a picture of that, please, I would kill to get those pictures because I, you know, I, I, so caught in the moment. Anyway, dude, I don't know where this came from. I call it like just Tourette's or God speaking through me, but like, I was like, ear to ear with Gene. And so I just said, I am a journalist for Fangoria magazine, and we would like to do the first non rock and roll interview with you about your love of horror films. I don't know where that came from. I just said it. And he looks at me and he's like, wow, wow. And like, thank God this was like before cell phones and all that kind of stuff. He, he like took out a little piece of paper. He wrote a number. He goes, this is my uh, manager, uh, you know, uh, at, at Howard Marks, and I want you to have them call the editor of Fangoria, and we'll arrange something. And I'm like, okay. And I like, I run out of there, and I'm just like shaking. And I was such a geek that I knew the phone number of Fangoria because I. <laughs> so I ran to the nearest payphone, which you couldn't do today, and I call them. And I'm like, hello, this is Tim Sullivan. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they, they like me, but they kind of tolerated me. And like, I'm a very good friend of Gene Simmons. And he just agreed to be the first interview subject of, for, for Fangoria about his love of horror movie mag movies. He's never done this before. And they're like, wow, that's great. We'll get our top journalist on it. I think we can get Mick Garris at the time. Mick Garris was a journalist for Fangoria. And, um, I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Um, he's my friend, and he'll only do it if it's with me because he only trusts me. I, don't, I mean, where did the balls I had? You know, I was like, I was 18 years old saying all this. So there's silence, and then you can hear them mumbling in conversation. And, and they get back, and they're like, well, all right, we'll give you 175 bucks. 
I'm like, oh my God. I was like ready. I, I just had to contain myself. I would have given them a thousand bucks to interview Gene Simmons. And I'm like, okay. So next thing I know, I am at the office of Howard Marks. And I remember I'm, I'm shaking. I, I have my tape recorder. I, 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 I decided I got a whole bunch of, of photos of horror movies because I figure I'll play like a trivia thing if Gene knows which one they are. And, um, oh, my God, I, I go up there, and I'm at the front office, and, th- and then Paul Stanley just comes walking by. And he's like, hey, you know, and, you know, and they're listening to some, uh, some demo that they're doing for their next album. And I go, and they, and I, they, I, I try, it was so hard to contain myself. I, and, I, and I go, and they send me in a room, and I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden the door opens. And believe me, Gene is very much aware of the effect he has on people. And it's like the door opens and he's standing there just so tall. And, you know, and he's just like, Uncle Tim, (laughs) Mr. Sims goes, no, I'm Uncle Gene. You're Uncle Tim and I'm Uncle Gene. I was like, okay. And we sit down and I just, we, within a moment, we bonded because I asked him a horror movie trivia question and he didn't have the answer. And I know it pissed him off. And for those out there, I asked him, what is the Wolfman's name? The alter ego of the Wolfman is Lawrence Talbert. And I said, what's his middle name? He was, <laughs> I said, it's Stuart, because at the beginning of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the opening shot is his tomb, tombstone says Lawrence Stuart Talbert. So he, from that moment, I was legit. We, I still have the audio cassette. It is it is amazing to have the audio cassette of my first encounter with Gene Simmons. And when it was over, it got published. So I became, it's like the two lies canceled each other out, you know, and, and, and that's how I, you know, between stamping my feet with my mom crying. And then, the, you know, I don't call them lies. I call them future truths. It's like you go to a uh, lion's gate and say, I've got Robert England if you'll make the movie, you go, Oh, if you got Robert, England, yeah, sure. We'll make 2000 maniacs. And then you go to Robert England. Well, if two, new, Lionsgate says that if you'll do the part, they'll make the movie and the two lies cancel each other out. I, I call them future truths. They're not lies. They're future truths. <laughs> so Gene and I bonded. And then all through the eighties, anytime kiss played in the, you know, New York, New Jersey area, there were tickets and passes and we kept in touch and I even wrote a script about the Jersey Devil in the, the late 80s. The first script I wrote, I sent it to him, and he like said he was interested. And then, you know, ended up going to NYU, and I uh, graduating, and I end up in L.A. And now I'm working at New Line Cinema, and all these years later, and, you know, at Kiss 1996, the un- un- unthought, the unspeakable happens. Not, not unspeakable, but the, the you know, uh, un- you know, just couldn't believe that Kiss would ever reunite with Hayes and Peter and then put their makeup back on. And it happens, and it's the biggest thing in the world. And Gene calls me up one day at New Line and goes, Uncle Tim, I just got a script. Uh, some fan named Carl Dupre wrote a script called Detroit Rock City. It's quite good. And I was wondering if I could send it to you and see what you can do with it. So he sends me the script. And I'm like, oh, my God, please let this be good. Please let this be good. And I read it, and I was blown away. Um, I was reading up to eight to 10 scripts a week, sometimes 12. My job was to read these scripts, write coverage, which is basically you, you do a synopsis of it, a couple of page synopsis and a critique as to whether or not 
New Line Cinema should buy it and turn it into a movie. And some that I read that got made was Boogie Nights, Seven, Blade, Spawn. Some that I said they should make that they didn't was Clueless, Scream. (laughs) But I was like, okay, I read it. I loved it. And I actually like marched right into the office of Mike DeLuca, the legendary wonder kid of New Line, who I had happened to go to NYU with. He happened to be a Kiss fan. We both were at the Intrepid when Kiss announced they were coming back, you know, with, with you know, Paul and Ace and Peter and Gene. So I pitched it to him, and he just says, that sounds fucking great. Let's do it. Just like that. So then, you know, we're all doing it, and it suddenly hit me. Well, wait a minute. What's my role in this? And, and I was like, oh, my God. It, it, the thought of it all happening without me. So I go, I just march into Mike's office. I mean, everybody was like trying to meet with Mike and they had to get like a three week, you know, appointment. And I just marched around. I said, Mike, this movie is a culmination of everything. It's, it's from the moment I saw Kiss in, in 77, the moment I saw Dracula, the, my, my writing for Fangoria, the deadly spawn head, working with you, NYU. And I was like, I, I said, I, I, this is everything. I have to fucking be a part of this. And he's like, well, Tim, there's a writer already. There's a director. I mean, what are you going to do? And I hadn't, hadn't worked that part out <laughs> But, like, he was sitting in front of a seven poster, uh, and, I, and be, right over his shoulder it said, a credit, it said, associate producer so-and-so. And I just said, I want to be an associate producer. <laughs> Again, I don't know where this stuff comes from. And he just pondered it and said, okay, but we got to clear that with Gene. This is the part where I got scared because I love Gene, but I know he's a little notorious for trying to hold as many pieces of the pie as he can, (laughs) cutting it up as little as he has to. So I'm thinking, ah, shit, this is the part where I just get, you know, a thank you and a a, a ticket to the premiere. (laughs) But no, to my eternal delight and gratitude, he told New Line, you know, I was there from the beginning, that I was the one who really championed this and that he insisted that I be a producer on it. So after everything from seeing Dracula to Kiss and then the Deadly Spawn going to NYU, every one of those moments are directly what led to Detroit Rock City happening. And then once that, once I did that, that, it just, it just kept rolling, you know, it just kept going along. I mean, I had interviewed Robert England for Fangoria. So when I decided to start directing, I just contacted Robert and said, would you be in the movie? He said, yes. That's how I got 2001 Maniacs made. You know, I, I had, I knew DDP, Donovan Dallas Page. That's how I got Driftwood make, made. And it's just through the years, particularly being a journalist, I got to pretty much anyone I wanted to meet. I would just interview. Oh, I want to meet. You know, I want to meet uh, Billy Idol. I interview him. I want to meet John Landon. You know, so that's how it happened, man. When you're first reading Detroit Rock City, what's the script like? What is it? Is it close to what we see in the finished film? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's interesting to be talking about this right now because it was literally 20 years ago this month that, that I was given the script. So this is the 20th anniversary of when we made the movie. It came out August 13th, 99. But this is when, you know, all those relationships were forged for me. My friendship with the director, Adam Rifkin, Carl Dupre, the writer, Peter Schink, the editor. I mean, this is, you know, this was the 
the most important relationships of my life, even to this day, Peter, Chris, and I'm friends with Ace and Paul, I cherish all these relationships. And even at the time, Tommy Thayer was working with Kiss as their sort of all, you know, the, the all the guy who could do everything. And he was editing their films. And I, I loved them, his work so much that I, we, I hired him to do the opening credits of Detroit Rock City. Uh, got Bruce involved by naming uh, the Lynn Shea character, Mrs. Bruce. Eric and Bruce were at the premiere. So it was just like, it was just a dream come true. But getting back to your question, again, I was really hoping that this script would be good. Because we had tried at New Line with Gene to do uh, several Kiss projects. We were trying to do a a biopic about Kiss, and that really didn't work out. And then we actually wrote a treatment uh, with Gene called Creatures of the Night that was going to be more of like um, a superhero movie. I'm glad it was a good idea, but I'm glad it didn't get made. So this comes along. And again, this was before that 70s show and before that whole 70s nostalgia of rage. But the thing that really struck me about it was it was such like, it was so obviously written by somebody who was there and Carl, Adam and Peter and I are, exactly the same age. You know, I'm going to be 54. So we were right there, age 13, 14 at the, at exactly where these characters were. And it was so accurate. And, you know, so many kids were in garage bands and most of them weren't very good, but that feeling of the camaraderie of being in a band and thinking you were so much better than you were, but that, that love of kiss and things now it's like, the magic of something doesn't really happen that much anymore because it's like, Oh wow. Avengers, you know, black Panther's coming out. It's so amazing. And then like next week, Oh wow. It's Avengers. And now it's Deadpool. It's like things like, you know, there there was, it wasn't like you saw kiss and then you're going to go do something else. It was like, Holy crap kiss. And you you know, you're, you're, you you and your buddies are going to go and you're counting the days and you're, listening to the record and reading circus magazine and learning about them. And you're getting together and, you know, having some brews and then you're in the, you know, the garage or the basement looking at kiss magazines and posters, and just wondering, and people forget, you know, these guys, no one knew who they were. They, they there was the mystique couldn't get away with that today in an era of, you know, tweets and cell phones and Instagram. But back then they, you never saw what they looked like. So it was just like such a mysterious thing. And then, Oh my God. So it was that movie, it captured it. And then it totally captured the flip side of that, which is the parents, the, the teachers, the preachers, you know, the establishment that just hated kiss. It's so hilarious, but to think that they were so, the you know, society was so afraid of them as if they were these demons who were going to seduce the children of America and turn them all into monsters. And it's just like, you know, I, I look at some of the stuff that's out there now, you know, some of the, the, the music and the imagery and the lyrics. And I'm just like, kiss is like so silly and innocent compared to that. But it is true. You know, the, a lot of the, a lot of fundamentalist people said that Kiss stood for Knights and Satan's service, and they would have protests when Kiss was performing, and and Kiss was considered just you know that Kiss was going to destroy the the minds of the youth of America. So when we got to the part in the film where the day of this amazing event, the mother burns the tickets, 
And ironically, you know, she's like this fundamentalist who's like a chain smoker and a repressed, you know, sexually repressed woman. And it's it so nailed the hypocrisy, you know, these preachers who are out there, you know, condemning Kiss and parents burn the records. And then you find out he's like screwing, you know, underage girls, you know, <laughs> hypocrisy. And it, it nailed that. And, you know, here's the mother and she's a chain smoker and she's like, you know, flirting with the priest, but, but she's self-righteous. And it's just like, man, I can't tell you growing up. It's, it's like to think that like the top movies would be superhero movies and that, you know, shows like stranger things and it being a horror fan, a superhero fan, a kiss fan, a rock and roll fan in the seventies was you were scum you were you were i mean literally like my my own damn dad treated me like that when i was a kid i mean he literally did my he, he didn't burn them but like he he all my comic books and monster magazines one night every sunday night was the night before the newspaper collection and i happened to notice this was a very thick stack and i'm looking in it and all my goddamn comic books and monster magazines were tied up with the newspapers. And he was throwing them out. And, like, you know, he was an English teacher, and the idea was he didn't want anyone to think that the English teacher's son was into comic books, like I, like I should be reading Crime and Punishment. And the irony of it is I did, like, I did read the classic novels. I listened to, you know, all kinds of music. I listened to opera and, and classical music. But I listened to that in addition to Monsters and Kiss. You know, and, I, and most of my friends, we were all very well-rounded, but we were constantly, I mean, we were constantly being made to feel like outcasts and evil or nerds or less than. So the, the, the reason why, you know, there's such a, a, a you know, horror fans and, and, you know, between Comic-Con and horror conventions and KISS conventions and still to this day, people going to see KISS. It's because we are just defiant and we are, it's like, damn you. If you're going to tell us who we need to be, we are not going to conform. We are not going to just, you know, be polite and blend into the, you know, into the wall. And that was what kiss was about. That's what, what rock and roll and monster movies were about. And ha 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 revenge of the nerds. All these people who were teenage kids told that they were nothing are now running Hollywood. They're now running the music industry. And here we are, you know, having Avengers be the biggest movie of all time and it's and stranger things and quiet place. And, you know, this year, my God, the fact that a horror movie won the Oscar and, and another one was nominated, you know, get out shape of water it's 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 the ultimate fuck you <laughs> and when i read the script for detroit rock city it captured that and it didn't matter if it was kiss it could have been the freaking led zeppelin or <laughs> abba it was about being young being passionate about something that you were told was shit and doing everything you can to reach that goal it, and it was on a very classic level it was like wizard of oz you know the the the, you know lions going to get his courage and the tin man his heart and the scarecrow his brains and and darth and each one of these kids they break up because it also encapsulated what it's like to be a teenager and growing up you and your friends are you know friends to the end you're gonna you know you know always be together and then, you know, life gets in the way and, and college and, you know, you each go off and you drift and you have to, it, you know, in the end, you have to discover who you are by yourself. 
because that's the only way. You have guides, you have mentors, you have sidekicks, but in the end, it is you confronting yourself, who am I? And so when all these characters, Jam, Trip, Lex, Hawk, they go off and they each have their own adventure, they come of age. And when they come back together at the end, you know, Jam has finally, he's lost his virginity, ironically, in a, a church confessional, which is, and then he, he, you know, he goes up to his mother and he just stands up for himself, you know, and, and in that moment, Lin Shay, the character, she knows she lost her son and, you know, each one got what they needed to get. So when they come back together, they're, they're still quote together. And then they're going to go have the experience to see kiss, but it's almost like, you know, that that's sort of the beginning of the slow dissolve of teenage friends into manhood. And so the kiss concert sort of represents the culmination of their friendship and then you know it's it's time to go off into the world and i just was like oh my god this you know on the one hand you could just look at it it's you know kids vomiting in strip clubs and you know and all these gross stuff but it was there was such a smart reality under it and all that passion that i have right now just talking about it was the passion that I put into the coverage that I wrote. And I usually would write like a two-page synopsis. I wrote a 15-page synopsis. It was as if I was writing a dissertation. And I just, my excitement and passion got New Line excited. And then when we all met, me and I finally met the director, Adam, and the writer, Carl, and Pete Schink, the editor. It was like we were those four guys. We were Jam, Hawk, Trip, and Lex. And it was like we got to make this movie. We got a chance to make the Kiss fucking movie. It's actually, I consider it more the Kiss fan movie. And we were given free reign. And we are given $13 million, which was actually considered very low at the time. And we literally, Mike, made that movie for ourselves. And it, it literally was, we made that movie for ourselves, knowing that if we made it true to ourselves, we would be hitting upon stuff that would hit the target and other audience members. And, you know, if you try to, Oh, you, you could overthink too much the audience. And I think that's why so many movies, especially when they're being made for hundreds of million dollars, often feel so corporate so like you know film by committee it's it's like there's this committee and everybody's oh let's make sure we throw something in there so china will you know we can get china chinese money and then we can make sure that there's a chinese character or some kind of chinese content for those oh let's make sure we got something for liberals something for conservatives something for straight something for gay black white because we we're, we're putting so much money into this we got to make sure we get as many people as possible buying tickets and it's understandable but as a result you know i always say a whole committee can be wrong so if a whole committee can be wrong i'd rather just have one vision you know one one singular vision and that's what detroit it was a singular vision of 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 of, of everybody who you know adam and i really were like the captains of the ship and we we made everybody, by the time the movie was over, everybody was a Kiss fan. <laughs> we even all, I arranged for all the whole cast and crew to go see Kiss in Buffalo. It was magnificent. And, and I think that that love 
came through in the movie and, and everyone who worked on it. And it is amazing to me, you know, it got the best audience. You know, they do pre, they do uh, test audiences, test screenings, and it got the best test screening scores of every, any film New Line had ever done. And New Line was the king of, of the summer, August. In August is usually sort of like when studios dump their movies that they don't think are going to do well. So we had, so New Line knew that if they put out a good movie in mid-August, they're going to have a huge hit. So we got an August 13th release date. We're like, oh my God, this is going to be the biggest movie. We are going to be the next Animal House. We, are, you know, we were just so confident and Kiss was on tour and they were doing so well. And then, you know, and we were like looking at what movies were coming out in August. And we're like, oh, what the hell is this? Some handmade movie shot on digital, uh, shot on video that takes place in the woods with a witch. Oh, that's going to be so, oh God, Bruce, a Bruce Willis supernatural movie. Bruce Willis hasn't made a good movie in 10 years. Well, it turned out to be the Blair Witch Project and the Sixth Sense. And they both came out the week before Detroit Rock City. So what happened was they were not, no one thought they were going to do well. They became such smashes that half of the theaters that we were supposed to play in booked those movies and, 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 and unbooked ours. And it was so much about Blair Witch and so much about Sixth Sense that it, it just overshadowed Detroit Rock City. And here we all thought we were sitting on this, this great thing, which we were, <laughs> and it bombed. It bombed, man. It didn't even make the top 10. It was number 13 and it made $3 million. And it was, and then also the reviewers, they for the most part, were the very same people who had said that Kiss was shit and rock and roll shit and horror shit. And, you know, and so the very same people we were, you know, mocking or holding a, a mirror to in the movie were the same people writing the reviews. So it got trashed. So this amazing, I'll never forget, we had the biggest premiere in New Line's history in, in Westwood. We, you know, I arranged to have Kiss play. No band has ever played at a premiere, but here it is. We got, we turned Westwood into this like kiss land and we had these giant, you know, inflatable figures of each kiss member. They were like, like from a Macy's day parade. We, we put the UCLA parking lot. We turned it into a concert arena with a stage and a, we recreated the backstage area like we had in the movie. We, the, the day before I arranged to get Kiss their, be presented with their star on Hollywood Boulevard, everybody in the world wanted to go to this premiere and it was broadcast live on VH1. And man, I remember that night driving home so high from the moment because I don't do drugs and thinking to myself, man, if I were to just never wake up in the morning, I'm satisfied. I, I have everything I am has culminated in tonight. And sometimes I wish I hadn't woken up because the next day that, 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 that giant balloon was just popped for all of us. When the reviews came out and the box office returns, Oh man, you know, you know, the, the low is, I think the, the greater low based on the high beforehand. You know what I mean? And 
it was it was just so fucking horrible. And uh, you know, but you you, you know, you, you still you knew you made something good, and you stick to your guns. And as time has gone on, this movie hasn't died. And I can't, you know, we we cannot believe the love for this movie, the, like the fans like can quote it. People have seen it hundreds of times and it has become like a bonafide cult classic. I mean, uh, it, it plays all the time. We're constantly showing at places, doing screenings constantly, you know, people coming up to us. I mean, I've directed so many films since, and I'm proud of all of them. But the one thing that, you know, is just Detroit rock city. And, you know, I don't, I don't see them having, you know, Blair Witch Project conventions or Sixth Sense, you know, anniversary screenings. And, you know, I mean, those films were really, you know, I, I like them both, but they, they kind of were of the moment and they're regarded. But it's not like, I mean, but Detroit Rock City is, is like, man, it's a, it's a rite of passage for so many kids. And I am so happy to say that I go to, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm still friends with all the KISS guys. I go to events and concerts and, you know, these like 19, 16, 17 year old kids come up and say that they became KISS fans because of the movie. And that just, it's, it's just so great. So sometimes, you know, you, you, you don't, you, you don't get what you want, but you get what you need. <laughs> to quote the Rolling Stones, what was that like working with Kiss on a film that must have been dream come true. Working with Kiss on Detroit Rock City was a dream come true, and it was also very difficult. And this has been documented, so I'm not telling tales out of school. But when this, and again, I preface this all by saying I love Gene, and I uh, am so grateful to him. But sometimes I really have to shake my head at some of the things he does. I didn't realize till after the fact that the script was submitted to Kiss, um, to Doc McGee, and it was supposed to be a, a, a project that Kiss was doing. And Gene um, got intercepted it and, you know, sent it to me and did the deal and got a producer credit and never mentioned it to the other guys. You know, we all, we set up the deal and uh, Barry Levine, who was Gene's friend and Barry had done a couple of things in the film business. And he was primarily known as a, uh, the photographer of, of some of Kiss's most iconic images like that, them on the Emperor Empire State Building, the spirit of 76. He had never produced a film before. So it was like, and then uh, a woman named Kathleen Haas, you know, at the time she was dating Adam Rifkin and with all due respect was not a Kiss fan, actually kind of hated them and kind of always mocked, me and Adam for loving kiss. And so, you know, she was not really passionate about it. Gene was on the road and Barry Levine had never done it before. So I kind of, you know, stepped up, but we were all getting together for the first time, the team uh, for the photo shoot for the psycho circus tour program. And Barry was shooting it and we all get together. And I'm so excited because there's Peter and ACE and Paul, and I had known Paul, and I had run into the other guys. My relationship was primarily with Gene. And, you know, so I come in there, and I'm all excited, and, you know, and um, I'm, I'm getting a cold kind of response from Ace and Peter and Gene, and I'm Paul, and I'm all excited. And, you know, they're sort of, you know, kind of blowing me off, and I'm like, hmm. And, and Peter, who 
I just adore. And, you know, he and I and his wife, Gigi, are, uh, remain very, very close. You know, he, fought, he, he, he tells it like it is. And he goes, let me tell you something, Timmy. You know how I found out about this fucking movie? By reading about it in the Hollywood Reporter. I was like, really? He goes, I've never, I've never even fucking seen a script. And I was like, oh. And then, you know, I go up to Paul. And Paul and I had spent a lot of time together. I interviewed him quite a bit. And I knew him very well and he was just like you know tim uh i know this isn't your fault but uh i don't think uh that you know ace and peter are really too into this because you know and he's just quite frankly you know I, i'm just being like a hired hand on this film <sighs> i was just like oh man and then i realized that they hadn't read the script and you know and i'm still trying to like kind of like warm up to them and i you know and, and we're still we're there shooting the photos and I go to Peter and I was like, Oh, Peter, you know, I, I, so cool that your, your, your solo albums, you know, the two post kiss solo albums about makeup he did, it just come out on CD. And I was like, oh, I just picked them up. They sound so great. He goes, what do you mean? And I says, yeah. Uh, um, you know, Polydor put them out. And he's like, I didn't know that. And Gene walks up. Oh, oh yeah, Peter, uh, we put them out. And I was like, what the fuck? So, you know, on the lunch break, me and Peter Schink, you know, he ran to Tower Records and picked up copies of Peter's CDs. I ran to, Fed, uh, to you know, Federal Express uh, office and I printed out copies of the script. And I was such a geek. I printed out Peter's on green paper and Pace's on blue and Paul's on purple. And I bring the script to them and, you know, and thus began a very delicate balancing act on my behalf by doing everything I could to have Peter, Ace, and Paul feel included, important, um, you know, a part of, equal part of everything, while at the same time, you know, kind of trying to dodge Gene with that. And, you know, and, and, and I mean, there were moments where I got kind of reamed out for filling the other guys in on stuff. You know, you asked about the script and how close it was, and it was very close except for one major thing. You know how in The Wizard of Oz, uh, in the beginning, the, the, the three actors, you know, uh, who play uh, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the uh, Scarecrow, they're in it and without the makeup, and they're like, they're like farmhands. In the script, there were characters that were going to be, you know, like, for instance, if you've seen the film, the uh, the ticket scalper was supposed to be Ace. The the priest in the confessional was supposed to be Peter. The uh, strip club announcer, was Ron Jeremy played, was going to be Paul. I forget who Gene was, but there was a, a, a good part for Gene. And, you know, Gene Nick's that. You know, I hate to say it, but that was Nick's. And that was, you know, and, and, and I wasn't in a position to fight for that. It was tough. It was the Gene Simmons show. And I mean, it's been written about in Paul's book and Peter's book, but I didn't realize that, you know, he had basically told new line, the kiss would do it for free. And, you know, they had, they showed up and they did the scenes and they did the photo shoots and they uh, weren't paid for that. And it's a kind of a bone of contention. So it's sort of a bittersweet thing. I mean, like I know Peter loves the film, but at the same time, it's bittersweet because <laughs> he, uh, you know, it was just something he was told he had to do. But that being said, we, I made, went out of my way to make it a really great experience for them. You know, Paul's wife is in it. Uh, Ace's daughter has a cameo. Really made Peter's character like 
the, the idea that the main character jam is obsessed with Peter and on the set, you know, while we were filming that concert sequence, it hit me. Oh, wow. You know, this is like the, the, the quest for Excalibur, like King Arthur, you know, I said, this would be perfect if at the end, Peter Chris, you know, since uh, Jam's character is so into Peter, that Peter throws his drumstick and Jam catches it. And there's like this moment between Peter Chris and, and Jam, like the moment between, the, you know, the hero and, 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 and the, uh, the mentor and the drumstick becomes like the sword of Excalibur. So that was really cool. We really gave Peter that moment. Me and Adam Rifkin took Peter and Ace out to Yamashiro's one night, which is a big Japanese restaurant. And we took them out and filled them in and really did our best to make them feel part of it. And then Paul, we, we went, you know, spent time with him. They, you know, he, he did the end credit song, you know, uh, nothing to keep me from you. So we tried to give, we really went and gave him that. And then, um, you know, I was so happy for Paul because we were shooting in Toronto and when they were up doing the stuff for their scene, they had um, right around the corner from our hotel was the Phantom of the Opera and they had announced that um, every month there, you know, it was the last year of the run and every month they were going to have a different celebrity. So like one month it's David Hasselhoff as the Phantom, the next is David Cassidy. And, and so I had mentioned that to him and, you know, he went, you know, and, and, and he got that part. And, and he, he sold out and was so good that they got rid of all the other guys and he did it for like a year. And I, 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 I know it's one of his things he's most proud of and he just was so brilliant in it. I just, I know how happy he was doing that. So I think when all was said and done, everybody was, oh, and then the big thing was got him their star in Hollywood Boulevard. I mean, that was huge. You know, uh, in conjunction with the release of the film, you know, me and a, a, a publicist from New Line worked with the, 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 the Hollywood, um, the Chamber of Commerce, you know, worked out that we would have Kiss Day and got New Line to pay for the star, which was $10,000 because, you know, that's kind of the prerequisite and, um, you know, as part of the publicity for that. So I know that was a big moment for those guys that have a star on Hollywood Boulevard. And, you know, as most people know that, when it comes to kiss, there's always the sort of up and downs and, you know, you have four different distinct personalities. I love them all. Um, I, I have to say, I, you know, Gene, I know he thought he was doing the best thing. He didn't want to complicate things. So he took charge, you know, and it's just, I can only state the facts, you know, um, and they've been put out there before. So <laughs> I'll probably get a phone call and, you know, God knows what that'll be like. But bottom line is, that's the truth. Well, you mentioned uh, Monique Freely getting a, a role in the film. And in Ace's book, he talks about that and says that she was cut at the last minute. And I'm curious what role she would have played. I can set the record straight because that, you know, on the other side of things, with the exception of the um, the cameos being mixed, there wasn't an effort on anybody's part to, you know, sabotage Ace or Peter or Paul, you know. Um, I love Ace, but his memory sometimes isn't the best. Monique was a big fan of Eddie Furlong, and she really wanted to meet him. What happened was, when we were shooting the concert sequence... I put her right next to Eddie. So she got to stand next to him. And there was a couple of shots, close-ups of her right next to Eddie. And that was that. Now, anybody who saw Detroit Rock City will know that the song Detroit Rock City has been truncated 
for the film. It's not, you have the first uh, refrain, then the chorus, and then it goes right into the guitar solo and then the final chorus. When we screen, now on the DVD or the Blu-ray, that entire sequence is there as an extra. But when we screen the film, you know, the story was kind of over. The fact that they got, you know, into the Kiss concert, the concert was just sort of like a cherry on top of the Sunday. And we could tell that the, especially the audiences that weren't particularly huge Kiss fans, that we needed to get to the end credits a little quicker. So the decision was made by New Line, nobody else, to condense the Detroit Rock City thing. By cutting out that refrain, unfortunately, Monique's close-ups were in that. So her close-ups got cut out. Now, quite honestly, had I personally realized that, I would have made sure that we put them in the stuff that was in there. But it did get, you know, it, it did get kind of overlooked. But in Ace's book, he, he says that, you know, she was rehearsing with Eddie. First of all, we did not shoot that concert sequence in um, California, like Ace States. We shot it in Hamilton, you know, Ontario in Canada. Second of all, Monique and Eddie were never together in California. She never did any rehearsing. There was no scene. And it wasn't Jean that, you know, told us to cut Monique out. It was exactly what I just said. So in that instance, I have to kind of say that, you know, that wasn't something that Gene did to piss off Ace. It was not anything at all. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, what I just said. And, um, you know, again, I love Ace, but his memory sometimes isn't the best. Yeah, no, it didn't sound like he was doing too well. If I'm if I'm to believe Peter Chris's book, it's it's this weird round robin thing, reading their biographies and autobiographies and trying to piece together like this. It's like a Rashomon kind of thing. There's four sides of it, and then there's the truth. And even that sometimes, it's like, also, Mike, there's the truth and there's the facts. You know, just ask our current presidents, you know, alternate truths and fake news and all that. But there, you know, a fact might be an actual thing, but a truth is the sort of the emotion or motivation behind what happens. So a fact might be that this happened, but the truth of the matter is that this didn't happen because of why people think it did. Getting to positive stuff because, you know, I, I don't want anybody to think this wasn't. I mean, you know, this stuff was going on, but it's like family. You know, you could have some sort of internal stuff going on with your family, but you get together for Christmas and hopefully you have a really good time. And you put things behind. So, you know, we, we all got together. Oh, God, here I go. We all got together for Christmas, <laughs> And, you know, there was a lot of wonderful moments. I mean, once we really, you know, made ourselves you know, of accessible and expressed our gratitude and our love of the other guys. They warmed up and, um, you know, uh, originally, Oh gosh, you know, uh, certain people are always trying to cut corners. So the idea always, you know, the, the idea that was sold to new line was that kisses on tour. So it'll be so cheap. We'll just shoot the concert, you know, sequence at one of the tours. And I was like, no fucking way. I was like, dude, first of all, you know, 
this movie takes place in 78. I was like, the, I was the guy, and I got made fun of it, but I'm happy to be made fun of for this, who was always like, but no, they, they, you know, Peter Ace wasn't wearing blue grease paint on his eye in 1970. No, Peter Chris had longer hair that had great, cool gray pepper gray streaks in it, and he had a bone earring. And, and, so, and Gene was like, Tim. You and five other people give a shit. I says, yes, but I give a shit, and I'm the producer on this, and I fucking want, you know, this is my fucking movie, and you're, and we're not shooting it at a Psycho Circus concert. I said, first of all, the people at the concert hall are going to look like two, 1998, not 1978. Second of all, the stage isn't the same. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, okay, okay, all right. So, Jesus Christ, okay. You know, <laughs> so, so it was awesome because worked very closely with, you know, Doc McGee and his great team, you know, um, and uh, Ragman, who was Gene, you know, great guy, of course, Tommy Thayer. So we, we got the costumes that they had worn when they first, you know, their first reunion tour, which happened to be the Love Gun con- costumes. And then one of the greatest fucking things was we had this amazing, amazing production designer named Steve Hardy and, you know, showing him film and video and and photos of the love gun stage he recreated that stage to a freaking key and we had i mean it was insane i never thought i would see that again and to this day i still think the love gun stage is the best and you know the the, the elevator lifts that come down and the snake and it's just God, it was just, it's so epic and kiss and gothic and monster. So we built that in a state, in, in, you know, in, um, on, uh, Hamilton and we went on, I went on TV and we, 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 man, we got 10,000 people to come and be the audience. And we did stuff like, you know, everybody who, who comes to be an extra and stays for the whole time you get a little like a little ticket and a lot like a lottery ticket and then we gave away autographed guitars and and you know all kinds of swag and the kiss guys were so great with that so great and we got such a crowd and they all everybody had to come in period costume and you know people came dressed up and i remember one time i'm i'm there and i'm like i'm so sorry dude but you know unless you you know some guy was dressed as Gene in the dynasty costume. I'm like, dude, you know, you you can't, you can't, you got to go just, you got the makeup, just put on a t-shirt and, but you can't, but I made this costume. I said, yeah, I know, but it's fucking 1979, dude. Didn't you know, the, you know, didn't you read the memo? <laughs> Stuff like that. You know, I was, I mean, I couldn't believe it. One time when I came on the set of the mystery, uh, you know, where they play uh, the music in their garage, which was a set, you know, in, in their uh, basement. I mean, and I walk in and there's like a poster of Eric Carr. And I'm like, God damn it. Eric Carr wasn't in Kiss at this time. I'm like, who, who put this? <laughs> you know, everyone's laughing at me, but I took it so freaking serious. I really did. So anyway, you know, these guys worked so hard. I mean, they played at Buffalo the night before we, we had them for one day. And in that day we had to shoot the concert sequence, all the, you know, the EPK, the electronic press kit materials, the interviews, and we had to do the photo shoots for the posters. It was a packed day that started at like 6 a.m. and went to like midnight for Kiss, and they had just played in Buffalo the night before. So, like on a really cold, you know, um, uh, uh, morning in Canada, 
the guys walk in and they're, you know, and they got their long overcoats and they're just, you know, they just look so fatigued and they walk in and I go, and I go and, 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 and like I show up and I'm always so full of energy and they're just not now Tim. And you know, Gina goes, Sullivan, take it down a notch. <laughs> so I'm just, okay, but just, just give me this moment. And I promise you, you're going to love this. And I go, okay. I go, just follow me. So imagine an entire concert hall, like, you know, the garden, and there's no one there. It's like 6 a.m. and it's pitch dark. And me and Adam Rifkin walk Paul, Gene, Ace, and Peter into this darkness. And, okay, just wait. And then we go hit it, and they turn on the lights, and there was their stage from 1978. Well, Peter, who is such an emotional guy, he got so choked up. And it was, and, and they were just like, I, it was such a happy moment because they were so, they, they were like buddies and they're, Oh my God. And they were like, look at that. And they were, it was just so wonderful to see them so into it. And it set the tone for the day. And then, you know, they were getting into the costume and I, I remember I had, you know, I had worked out with Peter cause he had, his hair was a little shorter for the psycho circus tour. And, you know, I, I, I worked out he, that we would do extensions on him and, and get his hair gray and he, you know, the bone earring and it was uncanny because I swear to God, dude, they looked as if it was 1978. They did not look a day older than they did in 1978. It was insane. And so Peter goes to me, Timmy, I'll do whatever you want, but there's no fucking way I'm covering over my Gigi tattoo. <laughs> Cause he had just gotten married like a couple of months earlier to his, his wife, Gigi. In fact, they just celebrated her 20th anniversary. And, you know, he didn't have that tat in 1978. And I, I like was coming there with like the, 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 the tan makeup and he just like, Nope. And I was like, okay. So that's like one, not, the one thing that's not accurate, you know? And then I was on, um, uh, uh, three sides of the coin, you know, the Mike Brandwold podcast. And I was going on all so proud about how authentic this was. And some guy calls and he goes, yeah, but you use the kiss sign from he- the, the, the animalized tour. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, the kiss light. If you look at it, it's the animalized tour. That's not from 78. I, I, oh my God. And, 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 and he was right. And, and I didn't realize it. And what happened was, um, you know, the kiss sign came from the kiss warehouse and Gene, I, I just assumed that it was the right. <laughs> so I just felt so stupid that I didn't recognize that. And, 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 you know, it took some fan, you know, 19 years later to point it out. <laughs> but, um, it was a great day. And think about it. I mean, we had to, they had to do that song, Detroit Rock City, like 20 times. And in between takes, it was like a half an hour. And how do you keep, even though people are excited, it's Kiss. I mean, still, like after the first or second time, it's like to get these people to continue to stay for eight hours and still have the same enthusiasm. And God bless those guys because in between takes, they would talk to the audience and me and Adam Rifkin, we would like, we were on the stage and we would reach into the audience and like people would give us stuff for kiss to sign. And then we would like walk to Peter or walk to Paul or Ace or Gene and they would sign it. No problem. We'd give it back to the fans. They would re- lean over and, and shake hands and 
it was just, it was so wonderful. But then like towards the end, it started to thin out. So what we would have to do is we would have like all the people go to one side of the concert hall and sit and shoot to the right. And then we would have them all go to the left and shoot to the left. And, you know, but we made sure that in the very beginning, we got the whole big scene with the, the dolly, the, the cameras on the dollies and all that. And it was, it was pretty fucking epic. Most of the props, you know, all the stuff in the film came from Gene's personal collection. But one thing that he didn't have that was a real kind of thing we wanted was the, the Kiss beach towel. And because there's a funny bit in the scene where, you know, uh, one of the you know, trips uh, 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 dro- you know, gets the bed messy with a bong, water bong, and they, you know, it covered up with a kiss towel. Like, man, you ruined my kiss towel. So, you know, Mike Bradvold at the time uh, was the, the webmaster of Kiss Online. So I called up Mike and he was there throughout the whole thing. Like anything we needed, I'm like, Mike, can you just reach out to the fans and ask them if anybody has the kiss towel that we could use for the movie? So this young, this you know, woman who was a kiss fan had the towel. And so I was negotiating with her. I says, well, what do you want for this? And she's like, I don't, all I want is a picture of Ace wrapped in the, with, with, with the, wrapped in the towel with his sweat. I was like, hmm, okay. So, so when we were filming, doing the photo shoots with Kiss, you know, every way, come in, we do the pose, and then right at the very end, I was like, Ace, can you just wrap this towel around you like a like a, a skirt? And he was like, sure, sure. And he and he did it, and I sent the picture back to that woman, and oh my god, you would think that uh, you know, I just gave her a, a, a bag of gold. It was, but it was just, it was, it was a really good time for everybody, despite all the other stuff. What is your favorite Kiss album? Am I allowed to say what my favorite makeup Kiss album is and my favorite non-makeup Kiss album? Sure, sure. This is going to be surprising, and maybe it doesn't count as a Kiss album, but my favorite Kiss album is Paul Stanley's solo album. I fucking love that album. I think it is it is just a masterpiece of songwriting and vocal. It's just... I just adore it. Now, my favorite group Kiss album, you know, it's funny because it was really Destroyer, but over the years I've heard Destroy I've heard those songs so many times. I mean, I think they that they just pretty much is at the point now where they play that entire album in concerts. So even the song Detroit Rock City by repetition, I realize I think it's the best Kiss album, but I also feel that it's been overplayed. So for me, the one that I like to go to more often than others is rock and roll over because that, you know, coming off of the highly produced epic sound of destroyer, they kind of part it down for uh, rock and roll over. And I think there's so many gems on that album that don't get a lot of airplay, like Mr. Speed and take me and, you know, ladies room and, and, and then, like one of my top five kiss songs is hard luck woman. And I could never get enough of that song and Dr. Love, of course. So I think that my favorite kiss album as of today that I'd listen to more is rock and roll over. My favorite kiss album is the Paul Stanley solo album. My favorite non makeup album, which is also one of my top five kiss albums is revenge. That lineup with all love and respect to the amazing Eric Carr, who I just think was one of the sweetest guys. 
I feel that the revenge lineup of Gene Paul, Eric Singer, and Bruce Kulick, at that point, they really, really were the finest incarnation of Kiss without makeup. They got the dark, the leathers back. Gene with the, the goatee, he was finally dangerous again. And, and Bruce just finally felt so comfortable in his role in the group. And Eric just came in and with his blonde hair, he just like owned it. And the album was finally uh, an edgy, hard, and coming in the time of you know grunge with Nirvana and and all that. It, it just it, it, Metallica and Soundgarden. It 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 had nothing to apologize for. It was a hard edged album with production by Bob Ezrin and whatever you you know whatever's been said. Vinnie Vincent's songwriting is amazing, and and he brought out such great stuff. Every song is great. It's edgy. It's hard. Their look, if you saw them in concert on that tour, they just seem so comfortable. So I have to say, it is a little bitter. It was a little bittersweet, a mixed emotions when, you know, and Carnival of Souls I love. So, but it was, it was mixed emotions when they put the makeup back on because although I was just like beyond ecstatic that here was the original guys in the makeup and all that. It was also sad because just when Kiss finally, really, I believe, and I know a lot of people I've talked to believe, just when Kiss really finally came into their own as a real, viable, edgy, hard rock, heavy metal band to be reckoned with, it ended. You know, because, I mean, I think Kiss Unplugged is one of the greatest live albums ever. Revenge. Um, even Carnival of Souls. And I mean, you know, you compare Revenge to Psycho Circus and it's like comparing a filet mignon to like a, you know, a Whopper. (laughs) The cohesion of Revenge is completely lacking from anything that's come after. Tim, what are you up to these days? After my last film, Chillerama, you know, my God, I've been going on and on about my relationship with Kiss, but I, um, I also had a very special relationship with Ray Manzarek of The Doors. And my two favorite bands of all time are Kiss and The Doors. And I always say that Kiss represented my guts and The Doors represent my soul. I was very blessed. uh, uh, You know, when we had the premiere of Detroit Rock City, it was just like, I'm going to invite my heroes. So Mickey Dolans of The Monkees were there and Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger of The Doors. And, you know, became very friendly with Ray and he was writing and he and I, um, he had written a novel called the poet in exile that imagined what if Jim Morrison really did fake his own death per the urban legend. And now in modern time reaches out to Ray to explain why he faked it, how he faked it, and why he's reaching out. And it was just one of the most beautiful books I ever read. And it was Ray's sort of eulogy to Jim and sort of making sense of his passing and to my unbelievable uh, amazement, he entrusted me to and my sister to write a screenplay based on the novel to turn into a film. And so he and I and my sister were working very hard for several years. Uh, after Chillerama, I decided that I really wanted to, you know, pursue the rock and roll interests of my film rock making and you know the maniacs films and chillerama and snoop dogg's hood of horror and all that 
I absolutely love that, but that's one side of me. I have other sides, and I really wanted to show those sides with this Poet in Exile film. It was going to be sort of a whole new side to me. And, you know, in the midst of that process, it was just so very, very difficult that Ray passed away so suddenly and unexpectedly. And uh, it really knocked me for a loop. And although my sister and I know a way to make the film in his wake and sort of have it be a, a eulogy for him as he was doing a eulogy for Jim, you know, things just happened and it kind of, you know, with the whole complication of the doors organization and the estate, it kind of got put on hold and it was just a really hard loss, uh, you know, most, you know, to just lose Ray. So I kind of took a break. Uh, you know, I, I purposely kind of got off of social media for a while and, you know, I've been sort of uh, plotting my return and uh, my return is, is very close to happening. I, I can't really get into it too much, but I will say that uh, one of the projects I'm involved in um, involves a lot of the uh, filmmakers of the genre and their films that uh, basically uh, you know, Hollywood was too afraid of to make. I'll leave it at that. And that's one project. And uh, the other project I'm doing is involving, um, you know, uh, some of my uh, uh, rock and roll vampire horror stuff uh, that I'm working on a series that will kind of, uh, I, I guess I'll just, for lack of a better metaphor, it's like dark shadows meets the monkeys. <laughs> And these are, you know, I'm here right now in L.A. taking pitch meetings with my partners, um, some very surprising uh, members of a certain band are involved. Uh, and uh, I, I can't wait to sort of uh, reemerge uh, and uh, come back swinging. This now is screenwriter Carl V. Dupre. How did you end up getting your start in the business? I was working in uh, the Northeast, right? I'm, I, this is where I live uh, today, Rhode Island. I was working as a production assistant in um, Rhode Island and up in uh, Massachusetts also, Boston mainly, uh, as a production assistant. I was working my butt off, and there was a certain point where... Um, I just decided that it was time to uh, move elsewhere because I had kind of like exhausted everything here. And I realized like I was never going to be able to find full-time work as most people do. Um, you know, you, you, everybody who works in movies and TV uh, locally, they have like day jobs and whatnot to support them. Um, I moved out to LA. I got some really solid advice from somebody who I, I told I wanted to, uh, I wanted to write and direct movies like that's what everybody else wants to do. But um, and I talked to this really smart person who told me, oh, you want to work in an editing room? 
I said, why? And they're like, well, you get to meet the director, you get to meet the producer. I mean, you get to meet all these people who like have these, the awesome jobs on movies. And she said, if you, uh, if you were to just work on the set, you would never get to have a conversation on any of these people. But when you work in the cutting room, you're the only other person around. And they have you like watch, you know, rough cuts of the movie and stuff. And that's what wound up happening. I became an assistant editor and I started working for certain people, certain editors who this was, and it was lucky I was working for these editors who would wind up, they were on their way up. Pete Schenk, who actually cut Detroit Rock City later on. And then this other guy, Patrick Lucier, who wound up uh, working on uh, the Dracula 2000 franchise and, um, since then, he's done a bunch of other things, writing and directing. But anyway, uh, I started working for them. And during that time, I was writing. And I think that the, the big thing that happened was I was finishing scripts and I was writing and I was like handing my scripts off to other assistant editors on these movies. And I, I worked on this really, this, this incredible like classic movie today. It's called Barbed Wire. It was Pamela Anderson's <laughs> and P- and Peter Schenk was the one of the editors on that also because like he's the main editor on it. We were we had like so many assistant editors. You think we were working on like Apocalypse Now? You know what I mean? It was like this this army of uh, assistant editors, and we were like passing scripts back and forth and all that. Adam Rifkin actually directed a brief part. Uh, he he's like the first director on Barbed Wire. Pete Schenk and him were friends. It, it was like it was weird. It was kind of it was almost like a job interview that I had with him, with, with, uh, Adam Rifkin. And he knew that I was, uh, you know, that I was writing scripts and he read some of my stuff and he asked me to, uh, be a writer on his show, uh, bone killers, which was for ABC TV. It's uh, kind of like goosebumps. Um, it's about like a haunted high school. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was live action. And, um, I, uh, you know, I got that job. I got into the writer's guild through that job. And I think that, that's when things started happening for me. You know, that was like my, my first writing gig. I did a few editing things here and there, but um, writing was starting to take a uh, front seat, we should say, to, uh, to everything else. So I guess working on barbed wire, working on barbed wire with Beach Shank, that was like, that, that was <laughs> my big break, you know, uh, in a weird kind of way. Things happened quickly from there in a good way. So that's where I made all those connections that would also later on facilitate uh, making Detroit Rock City. I, w- I was working with a bunch of, you know, KISS fans, rock and roll fans, really. That fed a lot of the inspiration for Detroit Rock City. I was working with Peter Schenk, who was like one of the biggest KISS heads I've ever met, and Adam Rifkin, and a couple other people. And we were just like, we were trading these stories about, you know, going to rock concerts and all that back in the day, way, way back in the day, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, you know, just like all the, 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 the excitement around all that, you know, you buy your ticket. Oh, it's like taking a while. You, you know, you bought your ticket, you know, you, you waited all that time. You bought your ticket and you're waiting and waiting. And then like the day of the concert, it's just like this awesome day. The day of was just like this, like it was adrenaline. It didn't matter. Like, like who you said, it, was, it helped if you were seeing like a really awesome band, but you know, even if you're seeing some of the view, you know, it wasn't like your all time favorite band. It's like, you know, you're going to go to a, a rock concert that night and, you're going to scream and have a good time and, you know, you're going to get your ears blown out. And it was, uh, you know, it's uh, definitely like, like that, that was, uh, something that I set off, uh, in order to put, um, you know, put the Detroit Rock City on paper. Well, when it came to Detroit Rock City, was that, Hey, we want you to write this project and here's, 
kind of what it needs to be? Or was that, I'm going to write this thing and then have to sell it? That was, again, it's like the butterfly effect type thing. Uh, I was working on this script. I was toiling. I was toiling on a script. 95 was the year I was working on barbed wire. And that's when I finished Detroit Rock City. And it was great. Um, this editor, Pete Chink, he was, we were working on this. Oh my God. Uh, I don't want to get too much into like what movie I was working on when, but we were working on this uh, Chuck Norris movie, Top Dog. All right. Another, uh, you know, American classics. That's where I said, well, I'm going to start writing this down. Let me see if I can like come up with a cohesive story about uh, going Oh, Kiss concert in 1978. That's right. I, I always knew it was going to be like, you know, I'm going to go to Kiss concert in 1978. Because Kiss to me was emblematic of like, that is the ultimate show. I mean, yeah, okay, there were other bands that had cool things, but it's just like you go to that Kiss concert and you've got like this incredible show just with the, everything, with lights and explosions. And, you know, I mean, like ELO, well, they had a spaceship sometimes. They had lasers. Okay, that was good. And Pink Floyd had the like floating thing. But I mean, gee, Kiss. At the Kiss concert, every single song had some kind of amazing thing go on. You know, uh, Gene Simmons blowing fire and spitting blood, Ace Freely's guitar smoking, all that stuff. So um, that was like, that was the, the band that I wanted the protagonist of my story to see. And I was really inspired by a movie called um, I Want to Hold Your Hand, a Robert Zemeckis movie about uh, these uh, kids going to see the Beatles at the Ed Sullivan show in the 60s I was like somebody that's somebody should make a movie uh for my generation about that I think that was the line I said to um to that guy he's like oh all right well yeah you should start writing that and um okay so I said yeah I'm gonna do that so six months later three months later I, I go out to lunch uh with Pete and this uh director friend of his who I knew from a few years back also uh a guy named James Malconian made a movie called the stone age and that took place in the seven at some point during this lunch you know pete Schink goes oh yeah carl's working on this movie uh about these kids going to see a kids concert and i was back up real quick i had i had totally given up I, I was trying these like different ways of telling the story and they weren't working i was trying like a, a pulp fiction sort of narrative where you go through somebody wound up doing this act i think it was called the movie was called go where you have like four main characters and you do a whole story from beginning to end through these four stories that simultaneously take place, you know? So you reset at the end of one story, you reset and you go back to the beginning, whatever, whenever the, whenever the story starts, you know, 12 o'clock, um, you know, then, then all this stuff mayhem happens. Then you go 12 o'clock again, and you see this other character. Oh, like, oh that was the supporting character. And they're going to see their story. So I was trying to that stuff. Nothing was working. Nothing was sticking to the page. So I had kind of given up on it. So when Pete Schenk goes, oh, yeah, um, you know, Carl's working on a movie about these kids going to see a Kiss concert. Uh, James Malcolm, who's like, he's a director. He actually had things done, produced. Um, he, he goes, that sounds really, really interesting. When are you going to be done with it? And <laughs> Pete Schenk goes, oh, he's working on it for a few months now. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have it done in, uh, what, it was February, I think. And I said, I should have it done by, like, April. <laughs> you know, it's a you know, like like screenwriter moments. Like I get up on it. I I, I hadn't touched it. And I was like, yeah, I'll have it done by April. You know, so that's what uh, I was like. All right, now I need to write this thing. And um, so I went back home, and um, that's when I like you know I said, well, let me go back to the I want to hold your hand template and think about that and like how can I do this? And um, 
you know, just it started growing from there. And um, I was like in the pit. I was writing for twelve, like twelve, fourteen hours. It was great. It was I editor, so I was like between movies, as it were. You know, like that one movie had ended, another one was going to start in whatever May. So I wrote and wrote and wrote, and I was like, I was just down there in like my cave, you know, uh, my writing cave. This, that was one of those like great experiences, uh, writing wise. You know, it's really wonderful. Like the characters start talking on their own, and you're really envisioning things. I, I, it was, it was, it, I was immersed in this uh, story. You know, I, uh, I picked my friend's brains about, like, hey, what do you remember about 1978? Firebirds, pop rocks, you know, all that stuff. I tried to throw as much of that in there as I could. You wound up, uh, yeah, so that's how I wound up, like, finishing that first draft. Totally under the gun. And the, the funny part to all this is, like, I sent it to James Melconian, and he's like, oh, yeah, um, this is a good script. It's a pretty strong story. He goes, so how do you know Kiss anyway? And I said, well, I said, I, I don't know Kiss. He goes, oh, all right. Well, uh, good good luck then. <laughs> and I, I, I just sat there. I said, I, I am never writing another script with a known entity in it. I'm never doing that again. Damn it. <laughs> and uh, it was the way I, had, uh, I had an idea about this. <laughs> just side note here. There's a, there's a buddy, there's a cop buddy movie, um, but it was um, uh, this guy who... Uh, this this detective for the FBI who um his partner is Elvis Presley you know in the 60s I don't know if you knew the like Elvis Presley worked for the FBI to help him bust drug dealers and stuff so I was thinking oh that would be interesting to tell a story <laughs> cop buddy picture with Elvis Presley as a guy's uh cop buddy you know what I mean um but I said I'm not going to write that now <laughs> I don't know I don't have I have no connection to Elvis Presley to state that was kind of a blunder you know, that's what I was thinking. Like, that was, uh, that's a few months of my life right there. Then I'll get back. And then that, you know, the, the, the story, the script sat in uh, my desk drawer for probably about a year, I want to say. And then we were working on this, uh, like I said, working on barbed wire. You know, I, uh, just, you know, there's this, there's this guy who, one of these other editors, and he, he was, uh, he wanted to be a director. Uh, his name was David Feldman. Two of us hit it off, you know, and, uh, uh, we were talking about like uh, ideas for movies and stuff like that, and like what we want to do. And he's like, "Oh, what do you got?" What he told told me a few things that he wanted to do. And I, I told him about Detroit Rock City, you know. And by that time, I I had actually I, I you know added more to it and uh, polished it up and all that stuff. And um, I told him about it, and he said, "Oh, I know this actor. He wants to play Ace Freely in the Ace Freely story. His name is um, Kevin Corrigan." And um, and Kevin Kevin Corrigan is like he he. He's like a, a big indie actor, you know what I mean? Indie movie actor. So he said, oh, you should give it to me. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let him read it, you know what I mean? And uh, I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. I mean, how could that, you know, how could it hurt? And uh, I gave it to him. This is 96 now. So I gave the script to David Feldman to give to Kevin Corrigan. Like I want to say about 10 days go by. As it turns out, Kevin Corrigan's manager knew a... Uh, a woman casting agent who wanted to become a producer. And she just partnered with a guy named Barry Levine and Barry Levine was a rock photographer back in the seventies. And his main client was Kiss. Kevin Cargan's manager gave the script to this casting director who was having lunch with Barry Levine like that day. Right. And they were talking about like what they were wanting to do. And Barry Levine was talking about himself. Oh yeah. I used to photograph Kiss back in the seventies. This woman was like, Oh, I just, I happened 
like literally happened to have this script that somebody just gave me back at the office. And she like plopped it on the, the table in front of him. And it said, Detroit, I said, we really, what the hell? Okay. So now here's like the real, like weird, like twilight zone area of the, is that he was going to get on a plane bound for London to shoot kiss when they put their makeup back on in 1996. So he read it, he read it on the plane. He gave it to Kiss's manager, Doc McGee, when he got off the plane. Because here, I want you to read this. It's going to be my first project. So, because I'm getting to get into producing, I want this to be my first project. So, I get this call from this guy, uh, Barry. He goes, "Hey, uh, I just wanted to let you know, Gene really loved the script." And I had, I'm trying to like figure out, like, <laughs> like they're always kept, like, is that wait, Gene? Was that Molly? Uh, I mean, was that like Kevin? Uh, Clark is manager now. That was Molly. And was that the casting director? I'm like, who's J- I was thinking G J E A N, you know, I'm like for second, that I wasn't even thinking about. And he goes, he goes, I go, Gene, who? He goes, Gene Simmons. What are you doing? And I said, so I'm like, I gave the script to that guy, David Feldman on a Monday. And then a, like a week and a half go by. And I get this phone call. I'm like, how the hell did that happen? And then I found out, but that's like really bizarre. Like, planets, you know, coming into alignment and stuff happening there for that script. So magically I had a connection to script, I mean, to, to kiss now, you know what I mean? I had this connection and, um, uh, the final piece to all this is like, we, we got it, we got it rolling there. We got it. Um, we got it. I mean, and, and that guy, Barry worked really, really hard, um, to keep it like uh, in the forefront. But then the last piece, this was, uh, all the while, New Line Cinema was looking for a project to do for Kiss. Uh, Michael DeLuca, the president of New Line at the time, was a huge Kiss head back in the day, and he wanted to do a project with Kiss. So he's like, that was one of the signs. Like, oh, let's come up with an idea for a Kiss story. Okay? And he had all these people working on ideas for Kiss movies. I, you know, it's like intersecting lines. You know what I mean? Like coming from long distances to me. It was pretty mind-blowing to think about um, how all that uh, came into play. They shot the script around and there were some interested people. It was supposed to, Fox wanted to do it as like a TV movie of the week back when Fox did that sort of thing. And there were all, all sorts of other things going on with it. Um, but then um, new, finally wound up at New Line. And they're like, oh my God, the development guy, Tim Sullivan, um, I remember talking to him and he goes, it was like finding the Holy Grail after all that. Like they had been working on it for that long, like a year or something. I don't know. And they're like, this is it. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty out there story. Um, the other, the other thing is, you know, I'm working on, I'm working on the, I was as an editor working with Pete Schenck and, and Adam Rifkin there at, at the beginning, you know, then the, the script got written and then Adam Rifkin comes back in the picture after the new line thing. He was like, I know that script. They were, you know, his, his agents, uh, set him up with a meeting and, like that's what he said. He said literally, like, oh, I know that script. I, I, he was working on that script a couple of years. I remember that. I remember when he was working. <laughs> it, it's a story of many coincidences. Uh, how that got uh, ultimately was greenlit was the fastest movie that New Line greenlit up until that moment. I think it was 21 days it took them to greenlight that. And usually it takes years for movies to get greenlit. So I'm curious, how did the movie change between when it got greenlit and then what we see on the screen today? That's the best part of, about all this. Uh, which is um, very little. And actually, Adam Rifkin um, was the one who told me, he said, the, he said the greatest thing about 
the, the speed at which they want to make this is they don't want to mess. They don't have time. They don't have time to mess with your, with your script. But uh, Adam's a very sharp guy. He's a writer, too, you know. The script did change a little bit. But I'll tell you, um, uh, the way it changed was um, they wanted to make it an R-rated movie. And, and uh, so, I mean, they, they, there, was, there was some F-bombs and stuff that, <laughs> that were added in. Adam Rifkin did a great job of taking, like, these scenes that had um, uh, something going on and then making it grow exponentially. And he also had, you know, and this great visual style to, to that. But at one point, he called me up and uh, said uh, the script was missing a scene where the script started when the, the hero, Jam, wakes up and um, the tickets, you know, the, the uh, his mother takes the tickets, you know. We don't see, we don't see her tickets. I mean, it's like, that's when the script starts. Adam Rifkin said, we need, we need to see these kids bonding a little bit. And I had written a scene where... They were jamming with their band, Mystery. Uh, they were jamming with their band, Mystery. And um, he goes, great, fax that over to me. It actually more resembled, like, it more resembled the previous draft uh, of the script. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, and there were, there were a lot of little, there were a lot of little things that he, he had, um, there were some great um, improvisational uh, actors that worked on that. There was uh, the guy from uh, SCTV, Joe Flaherty, played uh, Father McNulty. And, oh, the guy, I can't remember his name. Uh, I can't remember his name. But he played the the uh, the scalper. The, you know, the guy, who sc- the ticket scalper. And oh, right. Um, the ticket scalper. Richard Hillman? Yes, yes. He he had maybe, in the, in the script, he had, like, a few choice lines. There was just, like, one or two line, like, pieces. Of this guy had, like, this whole, you know, paragraph of just really great, like, uh, it was, it was uh, you know, he's really, he's really selling the tickets. Hey, get this, get Gene Paul live, y'all, and all this other stuff that there's some R-rated material in there. But I was, I was uh, laughing my butt off at that stuff. And he, that was stuff that he came up with. It, it, it ultimately, uh, it's, it's a writer's dream. You know, I got to see. Uh, I mean, if, if you love or hate Detroit Rock City, it, uh, it all goes back to this uh, script that I, I can say definitely I'm responsible they, they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to it that um, uh, would have tainted or tarnished it. And if they did, if they changed it a little, they improved upon it. Now the, the bathroom scene. You know, the bathroom scene was originally they were hiding out, and this girl just you know she cut the fart. Oh, I've never heard a girl fart before. I'm risking it's like, no, let's make her take a full on crap. <laughs> and and there's like this whole like the bathroom stalls you know fall down, and there's like water spraying. And that stuff was uh, that was not in the strip. That was added in. That was like uh, some plastic there that, uh, you know, it kicked it up a notch. That put it that way. Well, it's interesting that it's it's such a a love letter to Kiss, and we get that great concert at the end. Yeah. But we don't get them necessarily. I kind of like that. It leaves you wanting a little bit. Yeah, yeah. They were originally they they performed the whole song uh, in and uh, I don't know. I think there's a if you buy a DVD, there's a uh, 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 a scene of the, the concert where they played the song the Twilight Rock City but they had they tested it and it seemed like the audience was like once once the kids get to the the show like that was you know that was kind of like that was the end of the journey and but but and they so um, having that whole scene at the end was um, overkill but um, as, as far as that goes but um, I really liked that 
we see them, we see them just enough. Like you said, like you see them just enough to go, Oh man, it'd be really great to see them, <laughs> see them for real, you know? And yeah, it was, that, that was very good. Um, it was a very good, uh, editing decision, I think to, uh, have like this, however long it is, however many seconds it is of, uh, the concert inside Cobo Hall there. I, I was one of the, uh, I was one of the people, uh, in the concert, one of the concert goers. Oh, well, I wound up on the cutting room floor. So you got to stick around while they were shooting this. Cause I know sometimes it's like you hand in your draft and they're like, okay, see ya. We don't really want to talk to you anymore. They, they actually invited me for a couple of, a couple of days. So, um, I went up to Toronto to see them, uh, film, they they filmed the concert scene and the the scene in the elevator uh, from at the radio station. I got to see them do that. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, it's the old Hollywood thing of um, they don't like to see the writer on the the set. It's kind of a red flag. But no, it, it was wonderful. They were very they're very nice people, and um, and I already knew Adam and all that. So everything I love about uh, about you know movie making, it, it really is. It's it's a strange experience being a writer on the set of your own movie. It's surreal. And, you know, they've already, you know, the, 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 the writing part's been done. So like, what are you doing there? But you know, that's what, that's what you ask yourself. You're like, Oh, this has already been written, but it's really fascinating to see how, you know, and, and I was walking, um, I was walking around that the, the, like the elevator set. This started in my head. Now it's, now it's here. It's a strange experience. It's very strange. There's a part of my ego that really, wants to embrace all that and then another part that wants to and it's like oh no no don't uh don't get too crazy with that you know um i know today like the 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 motivating the prime motivating factor was kiss that was the thing that inspired the story and got the movie made and all that so it's really cool to be a part of it you know i consider my i'm an integral part you know they couldn't have made the movie without me but by the same token you know it did come from another place what was it like finally getting to meet Kiss? Yeah, that was incredible. Oh my god, I'm like a, I'm like a, I feel like a, a goofy little kid when I talk about this because um, the when I met them, um, they were doing a shoot in Hollywood um, for the for the, uh, the the tour books for Psycho Circus. You know, they had the Barry had Barry was shooting it, and he had all like the the, the, the lights. You know, they were kind of like this abstract set. Um, and he was just, you know, he's photographing them in you know, whatever various poses and all that. But, uh, these guys are larger than life and they had the makeup on and all that. And they, they and they are literally larger because they have the, the, those boots. They're wearing those boots that, especially Gene Simmons, he's like eight feet tall, you know, that was really incredible to just, uh, sound talk, uh, like they're real people, you know, they're real people, but, um, uh, you know, to me, like when you meet someone, you're like, you feel like you feel like you're on Mount Olympus, you know, <laughs> you're like, how did I wind up here? This is incredible. I loved how each, uh, each member just had their own kind of vibe about them that made them distinct. Peter, Chris, he reminded me of a, a kid from my old neighborhood. I grew up uh, in an Italian neighborhood uh, in Providence. Ace really is more like this meditative guy, you know, uh, just, just for somebody who, uh, did a lot of listening, you know, um, and whatever, you know, just like a few choice words, Gene Simmons, uh, very professional. Uh, I don't know. He, he just had a very uh, good way of presenting himself, uh, uh, in terms of like, you know, he's a, he's a businessman. Just that's very professional. And then, you know, uh, 
Paul Stanley, uh, just like just a sweetheart. You know what I mean? Just like a guy who's a uh, nice guy. And they were all they were like real people. You know, nice people. You know, and that was, uh, but that was wild. That was incredible. And I, you know, I, I still have those pictures that, uh, you know, where, you know, I get to like take a picture with them. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, phenomenal. It was like out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was like, you're meeting your idols right now. You know what I mean? It's a brush with greatness. <laughs> so what did Detroit Rock City do for you? It opened a lot of doors. It got me a, uh, a bunch of other, uh, work and, uh, you know that uh, in terms of you know, like professionally, it's still a calling card. So something like if uh, you know somebody's interested, like I still have people who like you know they, they recognize that. Oh, you know Detroit Rock City. You know it's um, it's uh, it's a known uh, it's a known movie. It's a movie that people uh, know about and remember. And it was, it's a studio film. It's released theatrically. Those are all huge things. You know, I was sitting in on, on a lot of meetings. A lot of people. I get a job with uh, back. Pardon me, Aaron Spelling was alive. There was uh, Spelling Television, and I worked. Uh, I worked on a bunch of stuff for them. I, I worked on a pilot uh, with uh, Mark Frost. I don't know if you know him, but he did uh, Twin Peaks with uh, David. I worked on a TV pilot with him. So uh, yeah, it was, you know, definitely. Um, you know, it was a huge. Uh, getting it, it got me on the uh, on the map. Validated me as a writer, as a screenwriter. You know, personally, um, Detroit Rock City was. I was able to. Uh, you know, just see my work on the big screen and like, you know, fulfilling this dream I had when I was a little kid and I was five years old going to see the, the first movie I remember seeing, seeing as a little kid was Godzilla versus Ghidorah, the three hit, or I guess it's called, it's called Monster X. Godzilla, Godzilla, oh, no, 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 you gotta be careful. Godzilla fans might be listening. Godzilla versus Monster Zero. Monster Zero. Okay. So that's what it was called. But, uh, basically Ghidorah, the three headed monster. And when I saw it, I was like, uh, you know, I want to be a part of this. I want to be one of the people that puts this, like, how does this work? Like, you know, how do they get to be projected? What happens before all that? And, and now here I was, I'm sitting in the theater, I'm watching, you know, my own name come up on the big screen. So it was like, it was pretty amazing. You know, that did a lot for me that way. So I was able to get uh, work in, uh, on those horror films, uh, you know, Hellraiser and, uh, the prophecy, uh, that was, uh, that was uh, another uh, benefit of uh, DRC. <laughs> well, I am curious about uh, the the two Hellraiser movies that you worked on, Hellseeker and Hellworld. I will admit to some of my ignorance when it comes to the Hellraiser series because I remember there were a few movies that were written as other things and then kind of got changed into Hellraiser movies. Were those any? Were either of those one of those? Well, one of them was uh, based on a story called Dark Can't Breathe that one of the producers, Joel Slosson, had written. That was Hell World. So it was a treatment that he wrote, and he wanted to write it, he wanted to do it as a standalone type thing. That was definitely, it was something that was planned on being something else. Previous one, Debtor, was a script that, that um, Dimension bought, and it was, it was a standalone thing. It was, it was a script called Debtor, and then they turned that into Hellraiser. The one before that, Hellraiser 5, Hellseeker, uh, myself and uh, the film's director, Rick Boda, came in and we, um, we were attempting to like, do something with, the, with this uh, script. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't based on anything. We, we just kind of like, we came in and we, we started like, with a page one rewrite 
of a script that somebody else had written, which was a Hellraiser script. There were two movies that were based, two movies that were supposed to be other things. I worked on one of those. That has to be quite a challenge as a writer. Absolutely. Yeah, you are, you feel, you feel like you're, you're being given the keys to something, you know, like uh, something really expensive. I got to be careful with this, you know, you got to be careful. And Clive Barker, huge idol of mine, a fantastic writer and a fantastic uh, filmmaker also, I think. You know, he 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 made some really good movies. He directed, you know, wrote and directed some really great films. That it was it was kind of daunting to work on. You know, work with the Pinhead and the Box and the Cenobites. But it was it was another. I remember because I remember seeing Hell Hellraiser when it came out, the first one, and uh, being totally blown away by it, and then having a chance to work on something uh, connected to that. You know, like that was uh, that was heady. Yep, it was a, it was a, it's pinheady. <laughs> it was great. No, that that those were that was a lot of fun. Um, and two completely different experiences, um, as far as writing goes. You know, on on um, on Hellraiser Five and Hellseeker, I was kind of like the middle writer. They had first they they had the, like a a couple of writers do like a script, and then they didn't like it. Then they hired uh, me to work on it. Um, and, you know, like I said, we, I worked on it with the director, but then they decided they wanted another writer also after me. So they're like, all right, well, uh, take it easy, but we're moving on here. And like, well, you know, that was it. Then for Hell World, I was a sole writer besides, you know, Joel did the treatment on it. But um, I was uh, I was the person who came in, you know, I, I, I turned around a script for them very quickly and uh, they liked it a lot. And I actually I went out to Romania to uh i went to bucharest to see them film it for like that was like uh, like two weeks i was out there it was a pretty amazing experience but i um i was uh, i was kind of like the hero that saved the day it's interesting it's an interesting experience completely different than the the other one there are all kinds of different uh experiences to be had as a as a gun for hire you know writer but uh yeah so those are good times those are and um it's really a pleasure to be. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to say I worked in comedy and horror. For my, you know, those are my two favorite genres. You know, I often wish I could write like I could wish. You know, I could wish I could write, write like a, my my one of my heroes, Aaron Sorkin. He, he can have people talking, have like drama happening. There's some people talking. I'm like, oh man, like, I'd love to do that. But no, I want to see like an alien burst out of somebody's stomach. I want to see like a vampire fly in through the window. Now, I want that stuff. You know, I, my brain just isn't wired for like just drama, you know, but, uh, I wish that my muse was a, a dramatic muse sometimes. Westworld meets the evil dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carl, what are you working on these days? I still have like, um, uh, I don't know, like I'm, I'm working the film scene here in uh, Rhode Island and, uh, I actually, um, you know, came up with, um, and this producer buddy of mine, it's more of, more of the, the horror franchise type stuff. But, uh, we came up with a, uh, with a sequel to Friday the 13th, uh, you know, I guess the 13th sequel would be, but we had a, a pretty good idea. And we're like, we're trying to get it shot out here. We're going to like, uh, bring it to, um, uh, new line and, and Paramount and see if we could uh, get it filmed out here. But it would be like, it would be Friday the 13th, part 13. And I'm also um, uh, writing uh, 
short stories, which um, I'm trying to get published. So it's going on right now. Uh, the last uh, thing I wrote was um, a movie called Incubus, which uh, which was actually shot here in Rhode Island. So I'm I'm pimping out the Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island is a location to uh, shoot shoot movies. It had uh, Robert Anglin in it. You know, uh, Freddy Krueger. Thank you so much again for your time. This has been great. All right, yeah, no, like I said, my pleasure. Next, we have an interview with actress Lynn Shea. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in Detroit when you did? I had a wonderful childhood. I, you know, I, I'm grateful to report that now when you hear other people's stories, especially. I lived on Fairfield between Pickford and Curtis and between Seven Mile and Six, six and Seven Mile Road. So that gives you perspective on the area. And it's still a beautiful residential area that... I actually visited not too long ago with my, my brother, who we grew up there together. I lived there pretty much my whole time until I went to University of Michigan. And I went to Hampton Elementary School, which was I could walk to school in the morning. I wasn't really a part of, you know, the, this was a long time ago. So the big, the big uh, landmarks for me were the Fisher Building and Hudson's. <laughs> so Hudson's was the toy store on the 12th floor on Christmas at Santa. And the Fisher Building, to this day, is one of the most beautiful and majestic buildings, I think, ever built. I don't know when it was, when it was constructed, but it's really like a cathedral. I mean, and that's how I experienced it when I was little. I remember walking in there, and the echo was, everything echoed, and everything clicking of heels on that beautiful floor, that beautiful tile floor. So it was a really routine but lovely childhood. I, you know, there were no big events that happened other than a really kind of comfortable routine of family dinner and going to school. And my mom would take me shopping and eating sandwiches at, uh, at the Fisher Building, tuna fish sandwiches. It was just really a, a very, it was a wonderful growing up, a place for me to grow up. It wasn't at all inner city chaos. It was that area was not considered suburbs, really. You know, the suburbs were more what became Birmingham and Franklin and all those uh, other places that were further north. This was just a beautiful residential area. And as I said to this day, it's one of the, it's still a lovely neighborhood. U, uh, University of Detroit is just a few blocks away. So the neighborhood always re- remained sort of partly Catholic partly Jewish and, and now it's partly black and I think I think it's still all three of those things. So um, that's a pretty nice way to experience different cultures e- even through your own little neighborhood. Well, what got you interested in acting? 
I'm a storyteller. I never thought about being an actress. I used to entertain myself by making up stories in my room. I didn't, there were not a lot of kids in the neighborhood uh, until I was about eight or nine. And even then, there were only just a few. So I spent lots of time alone. And I used to make up stories and put on plays with my dolls and stuffed animals. They would be running, you know, in other words, I'd finish the story and my mother would come in or whatever and get interrupted. And the next day I would sort of continue where we left off. That was sort of a natural thing that I did to entertain myself. And as I got into school, as I got a little bit older, I realized being in plays was really telling stories. So that was sort of a natural extension of what I already liked to do. Uh, and when I went to high school, same thing. I was I was in the drama club and the br- radio broadcasters guild and, you know, the little uh, high school clubs they had. And when I went to college, I went to University of Michigan and I was an art history major. I was not a theater major, but I always was involved again in, in theater because that's where you get to tell the stories. It literally wasn't until I graduated from Michigan I took the proverbial year in Europe, which would take up six days to explain what that was, how, how that all unfolded. It was the the, the classic twenty one year old adventure, and uh, yeah, it was really. I had a great time. That was a great. And when I came home, I it was time to get busy and get a job. So I actually got my first job at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in the registrar's office because I was an art history major. But I wasn't, I mean, I like art, but I had no interest in being a curate. You know, I wasn't that, I wasn't an intellectual. I was more the creative, enjoying the creation of art rather than all the details of the, the cultural details. I was literally, I think I had been in this job, I was in the basement at the registrar's office filing, and I was kind of getting, when do I get to tell some stories? <laughs> you know, when do I get to be in a play? And I, it sort of dawned on me. I thought, why don't I see if, uh, why don't I try to be an actress? So I applied to three graduate schools in theater, uh, Brandeis, NYU, and Columbia, which had a brand new theater department. I got into NYU and Columbia. I did not get into Brandeis, and I chose Columbia. So I stayed in New York, Mrs. Sikowitz's registrar's office behind. <laughs> Went to school for three years and got an MFA in theater, actually, in acting at Columbia. And then that was an easy segue into the theater world in New York, which was, at that time, we're talking 1971 like, to maybe 77, I guess this was, really. Yeah, long time ago, you guys weren't probably born yet. But it was the off-and-off-off-Broadway scene was really just getting started. You know, it's like we were, I was sort of part of a community, uh, Manhattan Theater Club, Playwrights Horizons, the WPA, the American Place Center, the Chelsea Theater Center, Lincoln Center, all these places had uh, weeks uh, sanctioned by equity because I, uh, I got my equity card in 1971, Center's production of... Uh, the Screens, which is a f- five-hour-long play written by Jean Genet, and I played an Arab wife, <laughs> and I had one line, and I think the line was Habib. <laughs> but I got to understudy the, this fabulous role of the ugliest girl in the world, and the whole role was done with a bag on your head, a canvas bag, and I, 
I, I did the best. I, I should have gotten the part. I still to this day, I did, I did a really ama- amazing audition. I remember everybody was sort of their, literally jaw-dropping. But another actress got it, and, I, and they asked me if I wanted to understudy. So I said yes, and I was not an equity member at the time. And so they could hire a certain amount of non-equity actors you know, for small roles. It was such a long, grueling, it, w- it was an equity production. So the woman that was playing, uh, Leila was her name. Um, the woman that was playing her on the weekends with a matinee in an evening, that was 10 hours of theater. I mean, it was exhausting. So the understudies would do, they asked the understudies if they would do the matinees. So I got to go on and play Leila as an understudy, and, that, and I got my equity card. So I had my equity card. From these experiences now in New York, for me, we're doing theater, theater, theater all the time. I became a part of this community, and I stayed in New York. And so that's how I, anyway, to answer the, the question, um, that was how I became an actress, is I just, it, it occurred to me that there was a place it wasn't about, I want to be, and I can't, I hope I get, and maybe I'll be uh, in Hollywood. I never, ever, I had no goals like that at all, and I still don't. What my goals are is to do the best work I can in the moment when I have the opportunity. That's my goal, and the story, and whatever happens to it from there is gravy. I mean, I, uh, I can't believe the life I'm living right now, to be honest. So I'm not going to sit here and ask you about every single role that you've been in because we would be here for a couple of weeks. But <laughs> there are a couple I wanted to ask you about, especially your what I understand to be one of your first roles, and that was working with Joe Micklin Silver on Hester Street. That's right. That's what that was my first movie role. Carol Kane and Stephen Keats. It, it, that's a wonderful film. If you've never seen it, it's 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 just I loved it, and I met Joan. Oh, I can't remember. And look at Joan Micklin Silver was probably one of our very early first women directors. I mean, people don't give her enough credit. And she created this beautiful story with such heart and such comedy. There was, I mean, it was really a beautiful little film. So anyhow, there was this role and uh, of a Polish prostitute. And it actually, she and the character had a really kind of nice storyline because Stephen Keats, who plays the I don't know what they call him, the Gringo, actually, who kind of comes he's he comes to to visit me, and we have a conversation where he asks me why I'm why I became a whore basically, and I explained to him that I could earn twenty five cents an hour as a prostitute as opposed to five cents an hour in the sweatshops. And I was trying to bring my family over from Poland. So I was doing it because I wanted to make more money faster. I mean, that was my goal. So it was a really nice little character with kind of a button to it. And we shot everything. And then the movie was finished and it was going to be screened in New York. And Joan, I remember, called me and she said, we had to cut your scene back. So I, she said, because of time and, you know, storytelling. I said, no problem. That's fine. You know, whatever. So I was so excited because they were going to premiere it at a, I don't remember the theater, but it was a, you know, a, a reasonably sized movie theater in New York. And I invited my parents to come from Detroit and they flew in and we go to this, you know, we go to the premiere and long story short, we get to my scene and that scene is totally cut. All you see is me kind of invite Stephen in and I kind of one, one, the expression one tit is sort of exposed <laughs> and, 
and I'm bending over washing under my arms, which is what they did. You know, they had would have a, a little basin of water and a cloth, and that's how you cleaned yourself. You know, I mean, it wasn't real sanitary, <laughs> the, whole, the whole deal. But it would not pass our, our inspectors today. And that was kind of it. I just kind of asked them to come in, and it's kind of this come-hither look. And then next scene, you know, kind of. So I was, needless to say, disappointed. It was, you know, I did, my mother was sitting next to me. We didn't really talk very much at the end of the movie. So now the credits are going to roll. I'm really excited because it's the first time I've seen my name on screen. So the credits roll, roll, roll. I don't see my name. I don't see my name. I don't see my name. Finally, the very last credit says, Lynn Shay, whore. <laughs> and my mother, literally, she stood up. And the, you know, the, the music was still playing. Nobody had gotten up yet. And I see her turn around and she starts marching up the aisle to get out of the theater. And so I get up and I follow her out. I follow her. She's going into the ladies' room and she threw up. That was my first uh, film experience. And you realize when I learned two things. Don't tell your mother <laughs> if you're playing a whore. And the other thing is, is expect to be cut because that's, that's the life of an actor too, especially in film. You know, you, the theater is a whole different experience and I haven't done it for a very long time now and I'd probably be terrified if I get to do a play again, but it's a really, it's very different. Um, it's almost like a different profession in some ways than film. I really was thrilled that I got to do the work I did in theater in New York before anything else. And I, and that didn't make me want to go to Hollywood and be a movie star. Believe me, <laughs> it was just like uh, it was another little check on the list. And you know, I felt terrible that my mom got so upset. And you know, and then I went on and kept doing theater and until uh, I came out here in 1977, actually. Well, what did your parents think about you guys, uh, you and your brother, being in such a disreputable uh, business like show business? I don't think they thought about it like that, to be honest. I, I think it was more, what they thought more is, you should be a teacher. Get your teaching certificate because nothing else is going to, in case nothing else works out. I mean, my brother and I were both very early on. My brother, when he was, I think, 11 or 12 years old, my parents built him a dark room in our basement. He was doing photographs and he was taking fantastic pictures. He, he was taking portraits first of the the uh, senior class at Mumford, all the girls with the pointy bras and the cashmere sweaters <laughs> would come over and be, they'd be in our basement for a long time with Bob <laughs> while he was taking their photographs <laughs> and the senior pictures and stuff. But he was actually a fantastic, and he still is. He's got a fantastic eye. And so he wanted to develop, and he would develop his own film. So I was hired to be the agitator. My brother would stick me in that little room with all the chemicals and the red light and the trays with all the chemicals, which is how you developed pictures. And it was very magical because you put a white piece of paper in a, in, a, in a tin, you know, in like a flat receptacle, basically. You'd agitate, you call, which is kind of you let the, the chemicals run over, the liquid run over the, um, the photo slowly. You have to lift and down and lift and get kind of a rhythm going. And very slowly, over about a minute or a minute or so, the image would start to appear. And you'd have to know when to stop. I mean, it was really, it was quite a beautiful experience. It was very different than selfies. Anyway, uh, so my parents obviously supported Bob enough and believed in his the quality of what he was doing to give him that opportunity, and they always, you know, came to my plays and and my dad. I mean, they helped me financially. I mean, I'm not embarrassed. I'm just grateful, you know, that they were able to do that when I lived in New York. 
uh, of course, an apartment was 250 bucks then, you know, to a um, but nevertheless, you know, they supported me in school. And when I graduated Columbia, they gave me a leg up because I certainly wasn't earning any money. We were good kids, you know, I mean, in terms of that, meaning we had something we loved and uh, ambition or whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's contagious. My parents were successful people. They didn't give up. You know, my mother was born in Russia and came here when she was 13 and didn't speak a word of English and was put in the first grade at 13 years old and graduated high school at 17 speaking perfect English, better than I do with not a trace of an accent. And my dad graduated law school at 21 years of age. So these were really not aggressive, but persistent people. And I guess I am too. Eventually, your paths would cross again. I mean, obviously, you're still in touch with your brother during this whole time. But I was curious, was Alone in the Dark, was that your first New Line picture? I don't know what year that was. What what year was Alone in the Dark? That would have been, I think, 82. It might be. Yeah, The Receptionist. Yeah, Bob just said, you could play this. (laughs) So I said, okay. He was always begrudgingly supportive of me. And I mean that. Bob gave me tremendous opportunity, including Dumb and Dumber, which put me in in line with the Fairley Brothers, including Nightmare on Elm Street, which nobody knew was going to be anything other than a good movie that Wes Craven made. I mean, Bob has been a huge part of my life, and I don't take it for granted. I mean, I feel whatever gift I might have, whatever um, unusual ability that seems to make me a little different than other actors. I don't even know what that is. I think it's some quirky point of view I have about living that that makes me understand characters in a way other people don't. I mean, there's a, it's really fascinating. I've been thinking a lot about that, too. Like, what makes me different? And, you know, I'm an old lady. <laughs> but, however, this movie I was in last night ended with me being hung and worms crawling over me. <laughs> So, old lady or not, baby, get ready, (laughs) because nothing scares me. I don't even know how to describe it, really. It's a drive, a drive to go further. And Bob was really, Bob has that as well. I mean, Bob started New Line Cinema in his living room, in his uh, walk-up apartment on 2nd Avenue and 13th Street. You know, a little five-story, five-floor walk-up railroad apartment he would go from the bedroom through the office to the bathroom to the kitchen back to the office back to the kitchen and back to bed i mean that that was and he had one employee and uh started new line cinema and i remember actually too my dad we found a letter that my father had written to my brother that we still had this was just a few weeks ago um and i actually remember the letter because i remember when bob got it i think believe it or not it was my father advising my brother not to use money to you to open, you know, to start a company that then you'd have to pay them back. And it was a real businessman's letter written. My father had the most gorgeous handwriting, and when you knew you knew it was a serious letter, he'd write it on those long legal yellow legal pads with the thin lines, and it would be you could see through the envelope. It was going to be a whole <laughs> there was going to be a whole discussion. And it was beautiful. It was just like a piece of art almost. And he would underline and write in red places that he wanted to emphasize. And um, so he was very cautious about, they were both cautious on one hand, but very um, supportive on another. And so Bob also is, is, a, is an extremely generous man. 
And he was, you know, still my mean big brother. He wouldn't let me pet the dog except on the ass. <laughs> but but he but he he really, you know, he would say, "Hire my sister." I mean, he did that with Alone in the Dark for sure. He did it with Nightmare on Elm Street. He told Wes, "Put my make, give my sister a part." Um, Karina, Karina, I have a little tiny role, and I wonder what ever happened to Jesse Nelson, who directed that, who was a very good director. Um, but anyway, that was that was. Um, and uh, Dumb and Dumber, I mean, there's a, I mean, I do have so many stories. I, you know, I'll, I'll run out of breath before I run out of stories. I'd, I'd done all these little t- teeny roles for New Line. And I get a call from the casting director for Dumb and Dumber. Um, and I knew that was a New Line movie. And that was Pete Farrelly's first movie. And he said, there's, we're doing this film and there's a little role of a character um, and we'd like you to do it. And, you know, for me at that point, for a casting I, to not have to audition, auditioning sucks. It's hard. It's really hard and it's not fun. And you try to turn it into fun, but even then it's still not fun. <laughs> you know, no matter how good you are at, at turning it into something that, oh, I'm going to do it just the way I think and I'm going to put my thing and I'm going to... Nerves are... I still, I get such adrenaline and my heart pounds so fast. It's, it, I can't think. I mean, it's not fun. That part is. So anyway, so to get a role and not be asked to audition for me was heaven on earth. And I ended up going, I can't remember where we shot Dumb and Dumber, but Pete Fairley, it was his first movie, and he comes over and kind of introduces himself. And he's kind of, he, he, he's this really handsome, smart guy, but he kind of always acts a little goofy. And, um, and Jeff Daniels was in a, in a dog suit. I had a whole bunch of, I, oh, the other thing is, uh, after Columbia, or, and I mean, I, I studied with Uta Hagen for two and a half years and Stella Adler, and I'm a member of the Actors Studio, and so I worked with Lee Strasberg for years in New York. I'm the real deal. I mean, I, I don't just go and pretend. <laughs> I mean, I really do know how to work, and, I, and, I, and you know, over the years, you learn a shorthand for yourself, but um, I, I always ask those beginning questions of where am I coming from? You know, what did I just do before I enter the scene? This is theater or film. Um, what objects are around that can give my character life and information? And no matter how big or small the role is, I still always go to those beginning actor 101 questions. Oda Hagen has a wonderful book called Respect for Acting, which you should put in this. Anybody that's a beginning actor should read this book. It's manual. It's a manual on how to create a character. And it's brilliant. I remember thinking, Mrs. Neugeberger is the character's name, and she has these dogs, and I thought, oh, I should put my, how people look like their dogs, to have my hair in the front, little teeny, tiny little pin curls, real tight little curls like a pom-pom on a poodle. And uh, we talked about wardrobe, and, and I, had, I came in with that real ideas. And Pete was like, oh, you know, everybody kind of woke up, and, you know, because I was, you know, for all he knew, I was this, I was Bobby Shea's little sister, and I was coming in to, because the, the, the producer told him to, you know, bring me in. And it turned out to be this really great little scene. And I kind of improvised. Jeff was right there. Jeff was great. And even he said, oh, that was really great. You know, even he kind of, you know, you, you have a day player come in as a star in a film. You know, you don't expect a whole lot, really. And, and sometimes you're surprised. And so I, I got a lot of support from that. You know, Pete said, that was really great. That was really funny. And 
we decided at the end, instead of me screaming, that I would whimper like a dog and that's it, left in. And I didn't know where that role had come from. Okay, so months later, Bob, I get a, a little note in my mail that's from Bob that says, for your scrapbook, I still have this sitting on my desk today, and I actually just read it to somebody. It's Pete Farrelly's editor, who, I, who was just here. It's another story. but um, And what it said is, it was a note from Charlie Wessler, who was one of the producers on Dumb and Dumber. And basically what it said is, Dear Bob, usually when a head of a, the head of a studio recommends a family member, we all cringe, you know, going, okay, you know, and he said, but in this case, thank you for sending us your sister. She did such a fantastic job. You know, we really appreciated her and you for sending her to us. So it was Bob, you know, he didn't tell me that. I mean, he, he, he pretended he didn't know where it came from, but you know, he said, hire my sister. God bless my brother. <laughs> well, you were kind of really a rabbit's foot for the Fairley brothers for, I know you made four films with them at least, but then you were cut out of one of them. But those three films with Kingpin and there's something about Mary and Dumb and Dumber, I mean, they were on top of the world after those three. Yeah, they were. I mean, that that was timing. I mean, Magda, we talk about them all the time, this movie I was on this week. And actually on my IMDb, they, those scenes from Kingpin, I looked at them, I watched them a couple of days ago. They're brilliant. They are brilliant. I didn't know I was, but they're brilliant. They're, they're brilliantly edited. They're brilliantly written. They're brilliantly acted. And they're hilarious. And I, I don't know how you, um, everybody's got a, a peak, I suppose. And I think that and Mary, Dumb and Dumber, Mary and Kingpin were their three top movies. And I think they've made some good movies since. Apparently, Pete just did a drama in New Orleans, which is where I ran into his editor, actually. They're wonderful guys, and they they put me on the map. I mean, they really did. And I had audition for Mary, too. I mean, even after Kingpin. And Kingpin, that's a long story. I don't even have the energy to tell you that story. I mean, I, they didn't want to see me for it, and I dressed up in my room, in my bedroom for six weeks. I created that woman, because she's described in the script as the angriest, ugliest woman God ever let loose on the planet. Those are lines I'll never forget. So I created that exactly what you see in the movie with the bad skin and the dirty hair and the yellow teeth and the outfit. I bought that outfit at Aardvarks on Melrose. They didn't want to see me. They wouldn't see me. They wouldn't see me. I finally called one of the producers five days before they were starting photography almost because everybody said no. They said, you're not right for this role. And I finally begged him. I said, I've created this whole presentation and he said, okay, we'll bring you in. And Pete thought I was a homeless person. They thought I would, Rick Montgomery, I, I sat down on the floor because when I came into the audition, I was dressed totally as her. I mean, I, I went in the whole deal. Rick walked by me about three times, and finally I knew my, I said, Rick, I, I said, it's Lynn. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, my God. He said, I thought you, were, you came in off the street. And he brought and he brought me into the fairly saying this woman wanted to reach, <laughs> and then they realized it was me. But that's how I got that job. I, that makes me love myself. <laughs> you doing that whole thing with your fingers open and your tongue—that is, yeah, that was all fuel. me. Oh God. Really? I know that, and that's why that that ending thing they kept it in because Pete said I I, he, I kept waiting for him to say cut. And he said, he said, I couldn't wait to see what you were going to do next. <laughs> so he just left me going. And it's still, I really, I think those are, again, I just watched them the other day. And now I'm so far away from it on some level. They, it's just 
brilliant comedy. Writing, you really jarred something loose, Tiger, pump and dump. I mean, who writes that stuff anymore? It's the funniest, it's the funniest, funniest shit ever written, in my opinion. Those are, those are perfect comedy scenes. Tell me, what do you remember about working on Detroit Rock City? Detroit Rock City, Adam Rifkin, another legend in his own time. I auditioned for it. It was a new line project. There we go again. You know, I'm really, I mean, I have probably Bob Shea to thank for a lot of my life. And, he, and I do thank him, actually. I have him to thank and my ex-husband, <laughs> who really set me up for the future, both of them. I auditioned for Tim Sullivan and Barry Levine, who was one of the producers, and Valerie McCaffrey, who was the casting director. The mother was, you know, kind of written as this very nasty, mean woman. And I remember I came in kind of looking like Hitler. <laughs> I, I combed my hair like the Hitler look in the front. And Tim, they were very nice. Everybody was very nice. And I auditioned and ended up getting the job. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I got it on the basis of the audition. I, I, Tim, Tim said we thought, you know, he thought I, that was, I was the only one that came in dressed up like Hitler. So uh, I hadn't met Adam or anything, and we shot it. We were two months in uh, Toronto, I think it was. And Adam is just a fantastic person. I just saw the last movie star, which he just did with Burt Reynolds, and you know he put. And Burt Reynolds is now doing another big movie, so he put Burt back on the map. Just this is just recent. I mean, it's just been announced that uh, Burt Reynolds is back in the game. He was retiring. He wasn't, and Adam made him do this movie. So Adam is kind of that guy, and I think Detroit Rock City is kind of a perfect movie. He found the perfect combo of the four boys. What Adam likes to say to me is he said she was written as just this caricature mother, you know, the mean mother, the mean 60s mother. And he said, you know, you gave her such heart and such depth, you know, that people love her. That's a pretty great compliment. The thing is, I never see anything on the surface in real life either. Then that's for better or for worse, of course. I mean, things are meaningful to me. And if something is, what is the stakes of your character? What did the, and this mother was not, she wasn't a mean mother. She wanted the best for her child. And she fought for him. You know, she wanted him to do the right thing. That music was bad. You know, it was going to hurt him. And I mean, so when you think about what that is for on many levels for a mother, that's really the way we all are mothers. You know, you want the best for your child. You, you, you don't agree with the things that they do that you think are bad. I tried to find the heart of that woman, and I, I guess I did. And the last line of the film for the mother was something that I came up with because she had no, there was no button on it. It was after uh, Sam Huntington comes, Jam comes over, and he, he I think he, was, he, takes the, he takes the drumsticks out of my hands, and he, and he really gives it to me, you know, where he had been kind of a passive kid in the, in the relationship up to that point. And he really lets me have it. And, the, and I'm left sort of dejected after the whole Matmock, you know, convention that I'm having. And the last line, Adam said to me, what do you think, what, what can we say here? It needs a button. And I thought, they grow up fast, don't they, was the right, was the right answer. And it was the right answer. And that's a line that's quoted a lot, too. So I feel like as an actress, I, I'm not just an actress either. I'm also a writer. And when things are missing, this is one of the reasons I like film as opposed to television for me. I often see things that I think enhance the story. 
And I'm in a position now where people listen to me. And when you're, uh, and that's not always the case, you know, you ha- and you still have to be judicious and elegant the way you approach a writer or a director. Can we try this here? Some directors don't want you to, to add stuff. Most in films say, if you've got an idea or you want to improv, let's do one with it, you know, doing what, what you think you want to do or whatever. Television is much more circumscribed. I mean, the it's a writer's medium. And it also moves very quickly. And I like I'm like a tea bag. I like to seep, you know, steep in the juice, because I get better ideas that way. And Adam allows you to do that. I mean, you know, he, he we said the words that were written, but if you had an idea, he's all about it, all about it. That movie was uh, became extremely popular. You know, I really was. It's a terrific film, and Kiss were, you know, really good guys, and they, and the fact that their music is in it, and they still have a, a huge following, and you know, so, and Adam has very good instincts about what works and what doesn't, and you know, right now he's got this movie director's cut that I have a small role in that Penn and Teller did, and uh, it's going to be opening shortly, I think, somewhere, and also this, you know, again, Adam did this last movie star, which is just beautiful. He's here for until it's over. You know, he's one of these guys that will be keep making films and coming up with new thoughts and ideas. He's one of the gentlest, kindest people I've ever met, ever. I adore him, adore him, and think he's a brilliant filmmaker. So I only have about a thousand other questions for you, but I know you've got your gardener coming over, so I want. <laughs> okay, and, and I appreciate that too. I mean, yeah, I mean, I you know, I I, I love talking about my life. It's fun because. So far, so good, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. And I feel I'm only two-thirds in. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> you're having another, another renaissance with the whole Insidious franchise. and just, Oh, it's insane. I'm, yeah. not, and I, I'm so busy. I'm getting ready to do The Grudge also. They're doing – I've got a phenomenal role in this brilliant, really scary – it's the scariest script I ever read, ever, 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 ever. So I'm getting ready to go do that, and then I'm uh, doing another film called um, it's called Get Gone, which is kind of about these hillbillies who live on uh, land that's been bought by the oil company. Uh, it's a really I just I just signed on to this. Um, a young new director, um, uh, Mark David, who's a friend, turned me on to it. So I'm getting to ask to do a whole bunch of different kinds of things, and that's the one thing I. I don't want to, you know, genre is, I mean, I'm considered a part of the horror community, which I'm so grateful for, and I really appreciate, and are, by the way, one of the nicest bunch of people you will ever meet, and they're not at all scary, you know, it's interesting, because they love all that stuff, but they're the gentlest bunch of people, maybe that's why they do love all that. I'm not a fan of gore at all, and I've never been... And to be honest, I'm still that that word. Those two words keep coming back about storytelling. It's it's like if it's a good story, I don't care what genre it is. If it's a good character, I don't care. I'm not. I don't only want to do horror films. I want to just keep doing different people. I love creating people. Uh, this this thing I just did is is called um, the Seventh Wish right now. I don't know what it'll end up be calling. And these are all small, you know, small. I mean, generally small budget films. You know, we're we're not talking even ten million, not even five million. Some of them are smaller than that by a lot. But they've got good stories and good people who want to work hard. This character that I just did, you know, it was on the page, pretty much not 
not circumscribed at all. And I'm really, I'm really proud of myself. I mean, we really created this very sort of complex woman. You know, I don't want to play the same person over and over or the same scary, you know, it's not fun. So, so far, so good. After 40, I got my equity card, 1971. What does that put me? 47 years in? (laughs) Oh my God. I didn't think I was older than 20. (laughs) When did all that happen? And that's the truth. I, I have lost total perspective on my own age. And now with Insidious 4, it has become... Everybody, know, you know, my birthday is October 12, 1943, and I'm proud of it. I mean, I don't feel, it, it's like, let's change that about ageism and about gender and age don't matter. What matters is character, ideas, and story. I mean, the other is like, and that's what I love about Mrs. Dumars and Kingpin and even Magda. You don't care. It doesn't matter how old they are. Elise, it doesn't matter. Is she 20? Is she 80? Who cares? She's a woman who's got a, a, a goal and needs and, and has a story to tell. And, you know, I mean, sometimes if you play somebody's grandmother, you can't be 20. And if you play somebody's, you know, I can't play a teenager, <laughs> certainly. But I could play the character of a teenager if I need to. And so um, I became very, uh, it became a real positive for me to talk about older women as leading ladies. You betcha. I mean, I want to be doing this when I'm 110. I want to die on set. I really do. Around people who care about me. (laughs) It would be good. And if you're on set, they care about you. We're lucky. Ms. Shea, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure. Well, we could do it again. Maybe one day when my gardener's not coming. (laughs) Okay, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I would love to talk to you about some of the work that you've done with Walter Hill and just so many other things. Yeah. You know, it really is. It is like smoke and mirrors. I swear to God. Sometimes I go, who are we talking about? When did I do all that? And I, I feel so... And there is something that happened. It was actually when I turned 70 years old. It was like there was this, like, who, who's 70? That's an old fart somewhere. And then I go, no, <laughs> it's not. And I say, yeah, my skin isn't as resilient as it used to be, and I got lots of lines in my face, and my, but my energy and my love of life is a hundredfold more than it was when I was 30. I mean, I really am. I, I'm unbelievably filled with gratitude. I have no idea how I got here. That's the real truth. Last but not least, we have an interview with director Adam Rifkin. How did you decide to get into movies? I loved movies ever since I was uh, a really little kid. I remember the first sort of uh, catalyst 
toward that love came in the form of um, an issue of Famous Monsters, a Filmland magazine that my grandfather bought me when I was probably about four or five. And I was just fascinated by the faces of the classic monsters, the, the uh, Frankenstein monster and Dracula and the Wolfman, all those great old universal monster movies. And that got me interested in monster movies, which was my first love. And I grew up in Chicago. And in those days, every regional television market had a horror show host. LA had Elvira, New York had Zachary, and Chicago had Sven Gulli. And on Sven Gulli, I would see all the Universal monster movies. I saw all the Hammer horror films. I saw all the AIP drive-in movies. I saw all the Japanese giant monster movies. And that film education and that love of those movies is what got me interested in wanting to make movies. I didn't really know what a director was or a producer was or anything yet, but I just knew movies got made in a land called Hollywood. And one day I was going to go there and I was going to make movies too. You know, you have one of the most diverse filmographies of anyone that I've ever talked to. And I mean that as a compliment because it's always an interesting thing when you put out a new movie because you never quite know what it's going to be, at least as a viewer. As you as a director, a writer, actor, etc., do you see a common theme as far as the works that attract you? I like all kinds of stories. I want to tell all kinds of stories. I want to tell funny stories and sad stories and weird stories and scary stories, big, little. I just want to tell all kinds of different stories. Now, I will tell you, as a footnote, that has hurt me in my career. Uh, Hollywood is a place that does not appreciate that kind of, for lack of a better word, versatility. They want to be able to pigeonhole you and know exactly what to expect from you every time. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, many of my favorite filmmakers, they deliver the same kind of movie every time and they do it better than anybody. And I get it. And Hollywood, you know, if they knew how to pigeonhole me like that, I would have been much more successful up to this point. But I can't help myself. I want to tell all kinds of different stories. Now, you're right. There are, for me personally, common threads in the stories, uh, even if they aren't necessarily overt. I have a nihilistic streak, so I like nihilism. I like characters who are uh, hopeless and have to somehow figure out how to cope with the hopelessness around them, see if there's any way that they can find hope in a hopeless world. Uh, things like this. Um, I like underdog stories, you know, misunderstood monsters, you know, being from when I was a kid, you know, Frankenstein, the King Kong, the fan of the opera, they were all misunderstood monsters. So a lot of my characters, even if they're not monsters, I feel somewhere deep down, they are misunderstood in that similar way. But yeah, no, it, it, it definitely does not help you to be able to do lots of different kinds of movies in, in Hollywood. The first movie of yours that I really remember seeing that really made an impact on me was The Dark Backward. Can you tell me how that one came about? Well, that was the first script I ever wrote. I wanted to make a movie more than anything in the world. I was living in Los Angeles now. I didn't even really want to be a screenwriter. I just wanted to be a director, but I knew nobody would let me direct a movie if I didn't at least write it first. Uh, nobody's going to just hand me a script and say, you get to direct this. So I knew nobody for my first movie was going to give me much money. And I knew that a small little movie with no stars and no money would be hard to get attention with unless it was, at least my, my feeling was, unless it was very unusual. I thought if I made a really tiny little movie, but my production value was that it was unusual, something that nobody had done before or thought of before, I thought that might enable me to stand out. So I had wanted to do a movie about 
a bad stand-up comedian since I saw a buddy of mine pursue stand-up comedy at an open mic night. And so then I just started to think, you know, I love the idea of a circus sideshow. I love freaks. I love, like I said, you know, hopelessness and nihilism. And I really wanted to kind of explore all these different tropes in, in my first screenplay. So I wrote The Dark Backwards. And um, it was not the first movie I got to make. It was the uh, third movie I got to make, but it was the first script I wrote and, and knocking on doors with that script got me a little bit of attention, even if it was not because people wanted to make that movie. That's how I met Brad Wyman, who would ultimately go on to produce that movie. But through him, I met him and his then producing partner, Cassie and Elwes, and their boss, Elliot Kastner, who was an old time producer who was cranking out low budget movies. And so because they liked the script, The Dark Backward, but Elliot wouldn't fund a weird, a weird wacko movie. He said, if you had a script that would appeal to the kids, maybe I'd let you direct a movie and fund it. He said, do you have anything for the kids? I said, yeah, I got a script for the kids. He said, bring it in tomorrow. I said, well, let me polish it up a little bit. Let me bring it into you on Monday. This was probably like on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. He said, okay, bring it in on Monday. I didn't have a script for the kids, but I ran home and I wrote one. I brought it in on Monday. It was called Never on Tuesday. It was a teen movie. That's what he meant. He wanted a movie for teens. And he didn't even read it. He just asked Brad and Cassian, do you do, will the kids like it? And they said, oh yeah, they'll like it. He said, okay, you can make it. So that's how I got my first movie made, which was called Never on Tuesday. And then that movie opened the doors for the opportunity to ultimately get to make The Dark Backward. The writing credit of Tale of Two Sisters, the movie that you made in between there, based on poems by Charlie Sheen, how did you get involved with Charlie Sheen at that point? <laughs> well, I knew Charlie through Brad and Cassie, and they grew up with him out here, actually. And he had these crazy poems that I loved, and he wanted to do a book of poems, and, and I was going to illustrate it. And in the process of doing that, I just, on a separate note, was making this experimental sort of short film with a bunch of kooky people. And then I thought, well, maybe I can combine his poems and this film. And it kind of it kind of expanded into a feature-length film. I wanted to do a parody of an art film, but it just kind of turned out into, it just kind of turned into a bad art film. You know, it didn't really seem like a parody. Um, it was way too long at the end of the day, but it was fun to do. And I've been lucky that I've gotten to make a lot of movies. Uh, and some of them I'm really, really proud of. That's not one of them. Uh, Dark Backward is one of them. Tell uh, uh, Two Sisters is not one of them. You did direct one of my favorite Charlie Sheen films, which was The Chase, which I really enjoyed. I saw that theatrically, and it's one of those that I wish that it had a different title because every time I go to tell people about The Chase, they end up looking up, what is it, the uh, Marlon Brando film or whatever? And it's just like, no, 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 I'm talking about the Charlie Sheen film. That was a fun movie to make. We had a very small amount of money, and uh, we had some cars to crash, and we had Charlie available for a couple of weeks between two big movies. So we all made this little wild car crash movie and just had a great time. I have to ask you, since you directed Detroit Rock City, were you a big Kiss fan growing up? I was a Kiss fan, but I was not a Kiss fanatic. I loved the 1970s, and I loved all the pop culture iconography from that decade. I have a romance for the, with the 70s. I, I, I have a nostalgia for it. So when the opportunity came up to recreate the 70s, and to have these KISS fans try and sneak into this KISS concert, I just couldn't pass it up. I just thought it'd be the greatest thing to be a part of. And I, and I of course, was a KISS fan, but, you know, there's a difference between a, a fan and a fanatic. And, and I, I can't say I'm a fanatic of any one thing in particular, except movies as a whole. I mean, I just love movies more than anything. But I was definitely a KISS fan, and, and I wanted to capture the feel 
of that. You know, we, when we were making it, we, we thought, sort of thought of it like a, a burnout version of the Knights of the Round Table on their quest for the Holy Grail, you know, and the kiss tickets for the Holy Grail. So that's w- what we had fun doing. Yeah, I had a blast making that movie. I imagine you got along with uh, Giuseppe since you ended up the directing and producing Giuseppe makes a movie. Yeah. Giuseppe uh, and I became great friends and I'm, I really think he's an amazing filmmaker and artist and all around you know, poet musician. I mean, he's just an amazing talent and uh, his movies for people who haven't seen them, he makes the craziest, craziest movies you've ever seen. You know, no budget, micro budget movies. He shoots them for, you know, a few hundred bucks feature length films in the trailer park where he lives. He uses all homeless people as his casts and though the, you know, just the most bizarro movies, but he's created this little cavalcade this family of misfits that he makes these movies with that I found to be kind of touching. He, he takes these homeless people and he, he creates a family environment for them and he gives them an opportunity to feel like movie stars. And he, he creatively collaborates with them in ways that they are never taken you know, they're never taken this seriously in other aspects of their life. And I, and I wanted to capture that in the documentary of him making one of his movies. Before I forget, I did want to tell you that I loved your cameo in Detroit Rock City, the uh, It's Raining Men billboard guy. <laughs> Thanks. That was a nice, nice touch. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Do you, you tend to make cameos in all of your films, correct? Sometimes, not all of them. Not all of them. I'm not in, I'm not in, the last movie star, which came out earlier this year. I'm not in the chase. I'm not in, there's a bunch of them. I'm not in, I'm not in the dark. Oh, I am in the dark backward. Yeah. yeah. I guess a lot of my, I'm in, but not all of them. My podcast partner talked to you a long time ago about director's cut when you were still just in the, and I can't say just because I know it was a major effort, but in the crowdfunding phase of it, had you done crowdfunding before that, or was that your first experience? I had never done crowdfunding. This was my first experience with it. It's been very, very interesting, very unusual. It's a very unusual way to, to fund a movie, but it's also been a great way to fund a movie. You know, making movies is hard. It's hard to get them made. It, you know, the movies cost a lot of money. Even small movies cost a lot of money. So any new and creative and fresh ways to find funding for movies and uh, new ways to get movies made, I'm all for, of course. And so when we decided to crowdfund this movie. We completely submerged ourselves in, in it and, and embraced it. And the crowdfunders have been spectacular. They funded the movie at a larger budget than we were even asking for. And uh, it's been really, really cool. I would definitely do it again. But, you know, sending 6,000 T-shirts and grab bags out is hard, <laughs> but it's worth it. When it came to casting your lead actress in Director's Cut, that had to be such a, a crucial role for you. And I'm curious, how many folks did you talk to before you ended up with Missy Pyle? We talked to a few different a- actresses, and every time we approached one, Penn would rewrite the script specifically for them. Because as you can tell from the movie, it is specifically tailored to whoever plays that part. And there were some other actresses who wanted to do it, and I was open to doing it with them, but... I just wasn't super excited about any of them, but I would have done it. But, you know, they didn't necessarily inspire me. And Penn was very encouraging about not caring how big the name value was of the person who played that role. Just that, you know, it was the person that we were the most excited about. So there was one person we were really far down the line on who was pretty big name value, added a lot of value. Uh, But 
just wasn't super enthused about it. And at that point, the movie was more of a straight-up horror film. The original script was very, very brutal. Uh, the character that Penn played was torturing the woman and forcing her to act in this amateur movie he was making. And it was very uh, dark. And then I met with Missy Pyle, and she was so light and so fun and so funny and so fresh. There was just something about her that was just really, I don't know, it was just inspiring. And so I said to, I, 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 I just cast off the other actress that we were down the road with. Uh, and I said to Penn, I didn't say to Penn, I think we should go with Missy Pyle. I didn't say to Penn, you've got to meet Missy Pyle. I said to Penn, Penn, I've cast Missy Pyle because she's just so great. And he was so excited that I was excited. He got super jazzed. And her involvement in the movie changed the whole tone of the movie. And in fact, in a way, changed the genre of the movie. Because like I said, the original script was just straight up horror film. But once she was cast, it wouldn't have been as much fun to see Missy Pyle get brutalized because she's so lovable. Instead, we thought it would be more fun to see her getting revered by the character Penn plays. He's not going to be brutal and, 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 and beat her. He's going to kidnap her because he's madly in love with her. And he wants to star in this movie with her as his lifelong dream of being her hero and being her leading man. And he, he became more like a Phantom of the Opera character. He became more of this, I mean, he's a stalker and a weirdo and a creep, but he, his motives are because he loves her. So it became more like the Phantom of the Opera. And so Penn became this misunderstood monster that you can sympathize with, even though his tactics are antisocial. So suddenly it became uh, more of a black comedy than a horror film. And it, I think it made for a much better film. Watching the movie again last night, it almost feels like you had to shoot the film twice. Or was it very deliberate as far as we're going to shoot this amount versus this amount? I mean, the, the, that you have whole chunks that you basically fast forward through is pretty ballsy. <laughs> Thank you. It was a puzzle putting this movie together. I'm not going to lie. And, and what was weird about it is we shot basically 70% or more of a movie that isn't what the movie's about. I mean, 70% of our shoot was making this B thriller that Missy is starring in that is being made in the movie. And we needed it to look like 70% of a real movie. So, so we shot it like we were shooting a real movie. We weren't spoofing a, a cop movie. We weren't winking at the camera. Look at uh, look, we're lampooning, um, you know, uh, cop thrillers. We had to make a real one, but knowing full well that 70% of our shooting schedule of what we're shooting isn't what this movie is about. What this movie is about is the creepy weirdo shit that Penn is doing in his basement with Missy tied up. And then he's going to use all this other footage that he stole from the set of the real movie and intercut it together with the shit that he's shooting. It was definitely a Rubik's cube trying to put it all together, but it was fun. Yeah. To see that, the and not to give anything away for folks, but to see scenes done a few times with her superimposed and sometimes even superimposed over herself, it must have been a, an interesting acting challenge for her to play the same character, but two different versions of it so much. Well, that's why she's so great. She plays herself in the behind the scenes of the movie being made. She plays a character in the movie within the movie, which she does perfectly brilliantly. And then she has to play the character of Missy Pyle, who's kidnapped acting in the amateur movie that Penn's character is forcing her to act in. So she's acting for her life in this third version of herself. And she had to do it all straight, not joking, tears in her eyes, tears streaming down her face, but somehow still did it in a way that was funny. I don't know how she did it, but she's amazing. 
I was so surprised by some of the the cast of the film. I mean, it was great to see Harry Hamlin in this role where he's kind of funny, but kind of not funny. And yeah, just being able to play that line, it's something that I really hadn't ever seen him do before. He was a total sport because he knew a lot of the role that he was going to play in the movie within the movie was going to be covered over with Penn superimposing himself over Harry. So he was totally game. Basically, everybody was game. Everybody had to be totally cool with just jumping in headfirst and saying, this is a weird-ass movie, and let's just go for it and see what happens. You know, so many people in Hollywood are so afraid to do anything risky, and everybody who signed up for this movie was game for something wild. And and so uh, I'm so happy that that they went for it. And I have to say the scene with Teller was one of the most amazing scenes I'd ever seen. He just, well, first, I really haven't seen him speak very much at all. But then he just pulled off this fantastic scene. And the way that you shot that just was really, really nice. Thank you very much. Well, that's what's fun about this movie. And that scene is a good example of it. Because for people who haven't seen it, there's a movie being made that Penn's character, Herbert, was involved with crowdfunding. And so the movie that's being made is being directed by Adam Rifkin. And Herbert has infiltrated the set because he, he, he put a lot of money into the crowdfunding campaign, so he bought an all-access pass to the set. That was, that was the reward he bought. And so the character of Adam Rifkin, you know, the, the me directing the movie within the movie, I'm getting to show off by making this flashy cop thriller that's sort of a, a ripoff of seven. So I got to show off my, you know, the sort of direct, yeah, you know, I got to be real directy <laughs> with the movie within the movie. Uh, and that's a good, that seems a good example of that. Cause I wanted it to look like something that, you know, a, a, a filmmaker, you know, trying to rip off David Fincher might've tried to do, but then, you know, what Herbert films and what Herbert, you know, in his basement with his camcorder and how it all intercuts with the real footage. I just thought getting to, to make both movies and intercut them would be a real fun challenge. It was a brain twister, but it, but it was fun. I remember you saying that Penn came to you originally after he had seen Look. And that was, what, 2010 that that was coming out? So this, is, this project's been going on for a long time for you. He saw it after that. We've been working on this project together ourselves for about five years, and he wrote the original script, I think, about five years before that. So it took a long time to get this movie made. By the way, the movie was finished and premiered January 2016. It opened Slamdance 2016. So it's been sitting on a shelf finished for two years plus. But it was such a it's but it's such a, a weird movie that every distributor who saw it said we love it, but we can't distribute it because we have no idea how to sell it. So for two years, we kept trying to figure out ways to get it distributed and get it out to the world. And just as we were about to throw in the towel and distribute it ourselves, Dread Central Presents said, you know what? We don't care that this is a tough sell. We love the movie and we're just going to distribute it anyway and, and have faith that the audience will find it. And so God bless Dread Central Presents and Epic Pictures because they had the balls to put this movie out when nobody else had the balls to do it. Well, now it's coming out at kind of a a fantastic time because you have this and the last movie star that's just out as well. People are raving about the last movie star. Luckily. And I'm very thankful for that. And Burt Reynolds who stars in the last movie star gives a brilliant performance. 
but along the lines of what you said before, and by the way, the timing is fabulous and, and I couldn't, and I, I feel so fortunate, you know, that I get to have both these movies coming out at the same time, roughly the same time. <laughs> you will never find two more different films from one another than the last movie star, which is a drama, straight drama starring Burt Reynolds and director's cut, which is just absolute bizarro world. So I actually think it's kind of fun that both these movies are, going to be pretty much out around the same time and people are going to see two totally different sides of <laughs> what i like to do well it's kind of what i was saying earlier where it's just like you know you never necessarily know where you're going to get from an adam rifkin film you know which is like i said a great thing you know even when it comes to the movies that you've written it's like you mean adam rifkin's the same guy that did mouse hunt small soldiers and now this thing you know it's it, it's always one of those like I can't believe that that's the same person who does all of these different things. Thank you so much. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the projects that you have coming up? I'm really curious about uh, the Faster Pussycat project you have coming up. There's not a lot to tell yet because it's in the very, very early stages of development, but Faster Pussycat is going to be a series, television series, about the life and adventures of Russ Meyer, the director of some of the greatest exploitation movies ever made like faster pussycat kill kill and beneath the valley of the ultra vixens and beneath the valley of the dolls uh stuff like that so i've always been a huge fan of russ meyer and i've always found him to be a larger than life character and so we're gonna do a series that basically tells the story of his life adam are you big on the social media if people want to keep up with you and all the projects that you're working on I am on the social media. Tell anybody out there within the sound of my voice. Well, I guess I could tell them myself. You can find me on Twitter at, at Adam Rifkin. I'm on Facebook. And I'm also on Instagram at, at underscore Adam Rifkin. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. It is a real pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, we're back and we're talking about Detroit Rock City. By the way, if folks want to hear more of Adam Rifkin talking about Director's Cut, I recommend checking out our earlier episode where Rob St. Mary interviewed him during the Kickstarter campaign. Josh, did you have a chance to check out Director's Cut? Yes, I did. I watched it a couple nights ago because I'd been following that project since before you guys even did the episode on it because I've always been entertained by Penn Jillette. And I've always really liked Adam Rifkin's movies, so when I saw they were kind of trying to do a project together, I was really excited, but I never have any money, so I never get to kickstart anything. <laughs> you know, I'm doing okay right now, so I saw it was finally out, even though I think he said it had been sitting on a shelf for about two years, waiting for somebody to pick it up. 
And I can see why, because they made the movie they wanted to make with really no compromise. It's in this day and age, it's really, really rare to be able to say that I don't think there's a single movie in existence that is like director's cut. Yeah, I really can't think of anything else. I can think of things that might have, you know, might use an element here or there, but nothing that is put together the way that director's cut is put together. And yeah, I was really, really happy with the final product because like you have been following that one since the Kickstarter and, you know, getting those updates and stuff. And then like hating that I couldn't go out to, you know, Chicago or LA or New York to see the premieres. And it's just like, Oh, I want to see this thing. Yeah. Especially because I think those premieres that they have are like a year or more ago. And it's like, what's going on with this movie? But at least they give, regular but not too regular updates you know there's always that danger zone of okay enough with the updates i don't need any more versus what the fuck happened with all my money that i gave you guys i i've talked to a lot of people who have who have backed things on kickstarter and kind of felt burned by the end result and like i said i didn't get to back this but if i did i would definitely feel like i got exactly the movie they were trying to sell. I, I know originally the movie they were selling was a little darker and a little more horror oriented, but the final product ended up just being so weird and enjoyable. And it's, and, and just, I, I can't even say too much about it because I feel like spoiling just the narrative conceit of the movie would almost ruin it. Did you get a chance to see um, the last movie star? I did. I watched that as well. I've kind of been doing my Rifkin homework lately. And that is, it's probably the least Rifkin-y of all of these, because I've, I've always felt he has kind of, I mean, he says himself, he has sort of a nihilistic edge. He's got a, a very dark sense of humor. And the last movie star, it, it feels like him sort of stepping away from his own persona and letting it be about Burt Reynolds's persona. Even though Burt isn't playing himself in name, the character that he plays in that movie is Burt Reynolds. They show archival footage of Burt Reynolds on interviews, you know, through the 70s and 80s. They use, you know, footage from Smokey and the Bandit and Deliverance and all these other movies that Burt Reynolds was in. And it just feels like a really interesting, graceful way for an old actor who kind of burned out in recent years to sort of recognize his place in the world and his own mortality. Heather, you will be very happy to know that Rifkin's next project is supposed to be one about Russ Meyer, and it's called Faster Pussycat. It's going to be a TV series about Russ Meyer. Oh, my God. Ooh, I don't know how to feel about that, actually. I'm a little, like, I'm excited but scared. You know, how anytime somebody tackles one of your art heroes, it's like, oh, oh, my. Well, with any luck, he'll be played by Ron Jeremy. <laughs> Ew, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I love Ron Jeremy as an actor, but that would be, oh, that's going to that's gonna be a very hard project to cast. But Rifkin's got the goods, so I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in seeing that, because God knows I love me some Russ Meyer. Now, it's one of those weird things where – so Carl V. Dupre mentioned a movie called The Stoned Age, and that was from 1993, uh, The Stoned Age was. But it's interestingly enough, Adam Rifkin was in a movie and wrote a movie that has been at times called Stoned Age. Uh, it was called National Lampoon's Stoned Age, and it was also called Homo Erectus. And that is from 2007, though, and has nothing to do with the 1993 Stoned Age, which I remember reading in a review of that way back when when I was still doing Cashews to Cinemart, and it was my friend Rich Osmond wrote this 
review of it. And when I finally sat down to watch the movie last week to kind of compare it to Detroit Rock City, I was remembering his review. Like as I'm watching the movie, I'm seeing things happen. I was like, I knew that this was going to happen. How did I know that? And it wasn't because it was a predictable film. It was because Rich's review had stuck with me for all these years. I have to say, I really enjoyed the Stone Age. I, I really uh had a fun time watching that um one of the characters is a total dick he kind of reminded me of the trip character but a little cooler and a little prettier you know they kind of condense the characters into two rather than into four and then they have their own like separate adventures but really it's more just like two guys and their friendship and them scamming on these chicks i laughed quite a few times while i was watching the movie and i thought that they did a really good job with it so if folks haven't seen The Stoned Age, I would recommend that one as well for being a, a pretty good stoner teenage comedy. And surprisingly with that one, it's like it was made during the same year as Days and Confused, and they tried to sell it like Days and Confused. The cover art on the video box was very similar to Days and Confused, but I think it was just that they both came out in 1993, and they really have nothing to do with each other other than a lot of pot use. Yeah, the weird thing for for me about The Stone Age was that was a movie I saw. I saw it way after it came out. I probably saw it around 2010 or so. I, I'd, I'd known about it for years, and I kind of just wrote it off as probably being like some Dazed and Confused knockoff. And I enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed it a lot more than I enjoyed Dazed and Confused. But halfway through the movie, I realized that Seth Rogen completely stole that movie and made Superbad. It's, it's the same plot. <laughs> It's it's just not in the 70s. It's just, you know, a couple guys wanting to get alcohol so they can get laid. It's it's the same damn movie. And that's and that makes sense because apparently they wrote Superbad in high school. So I can see how how the movies you like in high school kind of bleed over into what you're working on. But it it was such a weird thing to realize about the halfway point of that movie. I can totally see that. Now that you say that, I can totally see it. Yeah, you know, the one thing I I wrote out in my notes was kind of on the flip side of this as far as bad movies that remind me of Detroit Rock City or kind of fall into that same thing. You know, we were talking about what what happens if they get to the concert and then they get hit by a car, right? <laughs> or, or or the uh, you know, that that moment when they realize that Kiss does release a disco album, you know, and then like let's see them when they actually hear that, you know. I I did not like this movie whatsoever. Uh, and Sam Huntington was also in this. It was Fanboys from a few years ago. Oh, no. Did, did you love that movie or something? We, no. Do we have to bring that one up? <laughs> I, well, I just want to say that that one is the most ironic thing in the world to me because they make this quest to go see episode one, The Phantom Menace, before it comes out. And they luckily... I think they end it before they see the movie because you know had they gone to see it it would have been better to have been hit by a car you know because it, <laughs> it's just like they make this big deal it's like the cancer kid wants to see this movie before he dies boo fucking who and let's have this horrible road trip thing where they go and meet all these fucking people including harry fucking Knowles, and end up going to <laughs> see this movie and i'm just like yeah no i'd rather get shot in the head than have that be the last movie that i see can you imagine the disappointment of having that be your last film 
instead of them trying to get to you know the Kiss concert at the end of the seventies, it's like, oh hey, we're going to the the record release party for the new album, uh, Crazy Nights. <laughs> nah, that's a horror movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you imagine the disappointment of having to be in a theater with Harry Knowles? Like, God, oh, like, God. Being at that- I've been in a theater with Harry Knowles, and it was depressing. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Josh. It's a gremlin. The little, oh god! Don't, uh, I have never seen Fanboys, but um, I will never see it uh, unless they change it to Mike. You just came up with the best title. If they had called it "The Cancer Kid Wants to See This Movie," boo fucking who? And that was the title. I would actually be like, I will watch that. I'm intrigued, but just call it fanboys. Just the phrase fanboys is like it's like holy water to a vampire. I'm like, oh, I'm good already. It's very much like the spiritual precursor to like the Big Bang Theory. It it's painful. Oh Jesus! Ugh. I'd rather go to Crazy Nights. <laughs> I think Seth Rogen actually has the only good part in that when he shows that he has a full back tattoo of Jar Jar Binks. So we kind of, like it's oh like the God, filmmakers yeah. know that this movie sucks. And I take it back; it wasn't actually Harry Knowles in this movie. It was Ethan Suppley playing Harry Knowles. That's, so that's. But acknowledging him is the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, God, I mean, just everything about that movie. And I remember when it came out, oh, Harvey Weinstein's recutting this movie and blah, blah, blah. And like that, when that was the biggest thing you could vilify Harvey Weinstein for. But I can't imagine that movie was salvageable at any point. It's just sad looking at this cast list and seeing all of these people in there, you know, remembering that Christopher, Christopher McDonald um Kristen bell i mean our main characters you know i i kind of like dan folger sometimes and jay baruchel but yeah it, everybody who was in this movie hopefully they're ashamed to put this on their resume and that's saying a lot when it comes to william shatner <laughs> <laughs> yeah it sat on a shelf for a long time and i feel like the people that were in it wish that it had just stayed there we cannot end the show on such a sad note I think we need some rock and roll, guys. I think we need to name our favorite Kiss albums. What do you say? That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can pick more than one because I can't. I can't just decide on just one either, Josh. So it's all good. And you can in both. And you could have separate, like both group and solo categories. You can so. even do pre and post makeup if you want. Though I have no post makeup albums. Um, I would only do the makeup era. And I'm going to cheat, Heather, and I'm going to say Kiss Alive 2. Hey, I, it counts. That's a, that's a fine, fine album. That's a no shame. I even like Side 4 with all those originals on it. I, I really enjoy, well, it's got, isn't Rocket Ride on there and Back in the USA? And yeah, it's got some good stuff. I love Rocket Ride so much. <laughs> it was kind of tough between that and Ace Freely's solo album, because I really like Ace's solo album. Oh my god, that Aces of all the four like first solo albums to me Aces is like stone cold solid. It is just badass. It is and I like the others. I mean except for Peter, sorry Peter, but like <laughs> like Jeans and Pauls I think were good efforts, um Pauls especially, but yeah, oh my god. Oh, but you can't you cannot touch Aces. Oh, I love Ace. He yeah, that that album just smokes. Much like his guitar. Peter's voice, like when he got to do rock songs, oh my god! Like I mean, Peter on Black Diamond, forget about it. So good, yeah. 
and nothing to lose. I mentioned that one earlier. Um, again, sodomy. But it's disappointing because, you know, you hear him rocking out and you're like, yes, yeah, Peter kicks ass. And you hear the solo album and you're like, oh, oh, no, that's not <laughs> that's not what I was I was hoping for. But no, those are those are perfectly respectful answers, Mike. Jo- Josh, I think I always especially when I was younger, I kept going back to Destroyer because there's just such a odd array of songs on there like everyone knows you know detroit rock city and shout it out loud and beth but like god of thunder i feel like still doesn't get enough respect as just being an intense heavy song you know from a group like kiss and and there's that one great expectations is so weird and nothing like anything else they made and i really have a soft spot for that song but I, there's, you know, I, I like some of the, the post-makeup stuff, too. Like, I, I always thought music from The Elder was kind of cool. Revenge, I think, is is, is pretty solid. Alive 3, I, I think, doesn't really get enough credit just because it's not Alive 1 or 2. I don't think I've heard one that I 100% full-on hate, but there are a couple I haven't listened to all the way, too. Okay, I'm so glad you name-checked Great Expectations. Like, that is <laughs> one of my favorite. It's so... So weird and so dark. Like yeah, it's, they're, they're, it just has a strange aura to it. it it's so cynical. I mean, cynical, which is a very unusual, I think, emotion, especially for seventies kids, because it's just oh, it's so. And one of my favorite Gene songs uh, by far. Like I love. I actually love a lot of Gene songs, though. Mm-hmm. Gene, I might. I may. I may snark on the man, but uh, musically, he's, oh, he's great. <laughs> yeah, he's he's my like. Going back to wrestling terminology, he's he's my favorite heel. I know that everything he does is probably wrong, but I just can't help but love the way he does it. Uh, well, and he he is our beloved Velvet Von Ragnar. Never oh, forget. Naturally. Okay, my my favorite is a tie, and which is probably cheating, but oh well, that's uh, I can't help myself. One would be Love Gun, though Destroyer. Oh my God! I mean, those first several albums are mighty you know like but love gun for me oh nails it and then but it's tied with lick it up i love revenge i'm glad you named revenge because i think revenge is great but i just think lick it up's more solid yeah lick and, it up's really good oh my god it's so good i mean exciter oh shit that yes you know all of that it's so so good such a great vocal from paul too and um so those two are my favorite my least favorite is hot in the shade oh my god because <laughs> there's at least like two songs off of crazy nights i can stand hot hot in the shade is like hot in the shit it is not oh god it's awful yeah i uh, i had a copy of hot in the shade as a kid and i still don't think i've ever listened to the whole thing <laughs> no there's no need to that it's like my uh, my husband calls it hot in the lame <laughs> <laughs> now ironically the concerts that they did during that era, from all accounts, were fantastic. Like they were great live, but they were always great live. That's one of Kiss's superpowers. But um, so that oh, of the solo, uh, Ace Frehley. I mean, uh, even actually latter day Ace Frehley, like uh, like he the Origins Volume One, like we just got that, and that's um, it's Ace doing some of his favorite songs. It's a covers album, and um, it's it's top notch. Like Ace is Ace is still the man. And least favorite is probably I'm sorry, I, I do I'm not a Peter Chris hater at all, but Peter a lot of Peter solo stuff. Oh, it, it doesn't get better. It doesn't. It does not get better from, for the most part. There's actually one 
he did in the mid '90s. That what I've heard is actually pretty good. It's more rockin'. But um, oh, and Gene Simmons' asshole. That's not a good album. <laughs> While you were saying that, I accidentally talked myself into listening to Hot in the Shade because there's a track on there called Forever that is apparently written by Paul Stanley and Michael Bolton. I have to know. <laughs> oh my god, that's a uh, oof. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. I feel responsible. This no, is. That's- don't worry, it was going to happen someday. This sounds like my kind of cheese, though. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Puisque vous avez un passeport diplomatique, il m'est impossible de fouiller dans vos bacs à la tête. Semblant. Mais comment semblant J'ai besoin d'un prétexte pour rester ici. Demandez-moi si. J'ai des cigares. Vous avez des cigares Comment Vous avez des cigares Plus fort, plus fort. Je voudrais que cette dame m'entende. Vous avez des cigares Oui, non. Euh, s'il y en a, comptez-les. Comptez, comptez, comptez. Un, deux, trois. Ce que vous voulez, contrôlez. Mais bah, ça est nous, Suzanne, qu'on soit obligé de donner de l'argent à la frontière pour des choses qui sont destinées à faire plaisir. Ah, les tickets, c'est moi qui les ai. Voilà, merci, madame. Monsieur, monsieur, s'il vous plaît, votre passeport. Je ne veux pas partir, je vais seulement... J'ai une chose importante à dire à cette dame. Je regrette, monsieur, mais c'est impossible. Mais je suis diplomate. Oui, on dit ça. C'est facile. Votre passeport. Votre passeport. Ah, j'ai dû le laisser. Ah, Avis tourné au passeport. Dites, avez-vous mon passeport Non, monsieur. Mon passeport, s'il vous plaît. Ah that's right. If you can understand French, you know that we'll be back with the discussion of the earrings of Madame De. Finally, after being delayed for about six months, we're going to be putting that episode out. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Josh and Heather. Josh, what is the latest with you, sir? Uh, not a damn thing. This this is the most I've done in forever. The last time I was on a podcast was an episode of Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts, and then... Mike just killed the show, so I'm afraid that I might have had a da- something to do in the downfall of his his wonderful show, and I'm afraid that yours might be next. Do not worry about the projection booth. But yeah, besides that, I, I, I've done nothing uh, professionally. I was writing for that site until it went down for one whole article, so my whole plans to put myself out there fell apart, but uh, if anything does happen, I'll let you know. If anybody thinks I'm interesting, they can just find me on Facebook uh, under the name Josh Stewart, appropriately enough, or on uh, Twitter at Bracky Wacky, which is B-R-A-K-Y-W-A-K-I, uh, where usually I spew a lot of uh, crude non sequiturs because that's just sort of my wanton life on there. And Heather, what's the haps with you? Well, I just got to launch my brand new column on the History of Music videos entitled Picture Music over at Diabolique, uh, which is something I've been wanting to do for years. Um, Conducting research about music video uh, history has been a a passion of mine since probably the late 90s. Uh, So it's very exciting. And while you're on the Diabolique website, you can also find my recent articles on the Joe Sarno double feature of Vampire Ecstasy and Sinew Centers, as well as my commentary on the uh, on art shaming and why it is so ridiculous. 
Thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.